This is Audible. Podium Publishing presents The Red Sea, Book One of the Cycle of Galand, written by Edward W. Robertson, performed by Tim Gerard Reynolds. Chapter One. Riddy gazed up the mountain, and the mountain gazed back. The sun was high, but the air was colder than midnight in the dreaming peaks. The trees were hard, bitter things, sheathed in harsh, scratchy bark, sprouting thin, sharp needles, dribbling sap so sticky it was impossible to wash it from your hands, as if they wanted you to be as miserable as they were. The birds in the boughs cawed like they were cursing her. The mountain itself was full of gravel slopes, cracked black rock, and forests of the hateful trees. It didn't want her to be there. The feeling was mutual. She hiked her pack up her shoulder and moved on. Stones clacked under her feet. Three days ago, Darko had left to scout for a better route through the crags ahead. He'd been gone twice as long as he'd promised. She kept her ears open for the tweet of his whistle, but she no longer did so with any sense of hope. They had left the islands with six people. Three thousand miles later, she was the last. She pressed harder, sweating despite the chill. With every step, the thin wooden box inside her coat brushed her stomach, reminding her why she was here. The sun slid west. To the north, the mountains were a fortress wall. They were close, though, maybe no more than another day or two of hard walking. And a few days after that, she would find the sorcerer. Past the next ridge, a steep-sided valley had been scooped from the mountainside. Western crags painted the valley with shadows, but Riddy had at least an hour of sunlight left. Low shrubs studded the descent. They smelled stale, dusty. She'd been wearing boots since her unexpectedly early arrival on the mainland, but after years of sandals, they still felt large and awkward. The slope steepened. She switched back down it, pebbles trickling away in tiny avalanches. Halfway to the valley floor, her path ended before a short cliff. She swore. She didn't have time to backtrack. The descent was already taking longer than she'd expected. The sun was now screened by the trees on the western heights. Another few minutes, and it would be gone completely. She moved closer to the cliff. It was only seven or eight feet high. If she lowered herself from its lip, she'd only have to drop a few feet to the slope below. Riddy stepped up to the edge, moving her pack from her shoulder. Her right foot slipped. She threw out her hands. Her bag flew over the edge. A sharp crack popped from the stone beneath her feet. It gave way, and she went with it. She hit the rocks piled at the bottom of the cliff, breath rushing from her lungs. The unsteady scree slid forward, sweeping her away, pummeling her body. Dust spumed into the air. She flung out her limbs to arrest the slide, 
pain exploded in her head. A flash of light, then darkness. A rushing noise, in and out. The sound of surf, but not surf, not breathing. A roar in her ears, the roar of pain. She moved to sit up. The pain spiked so badly she whited out. When the rush receded from her head, she breathed carefully, assessing. Her whole body hurt, but it was the pain in her legs that made her scream. Lying on her back, she rolled her neck forward. White feathers poked through the ribs in her coat. Below that, white shards of bone poked through the tears in her trousers. She passed out again. One yellow light stretched across the valley. She'd only been out a few minutes. Her leg was broken. Bone speared through the skin, blood soaking the leg of her pants. She shifted. Pain lanced through her other leg, too. This was also broken. A wave of heat. Then a wave of nausea. Then a wave of pain. She lay among the rocks until these feelings receded, then reached into a coat and withdrew a pouch on a string. The egg of a shark, the cured leather was smooth and smelled of the sea. She withdrew a pale green succulent studded with red bumps. The hern plant was so bitter she gagged, but she forced herself to swallow. Within a minute, the pain eased. She was still bleeding. If she didn't stop it, her mission would end here. Careful not to jostle her legs, Riddy eased into a sitting position. Dust and rock chips fell from her coat. She got a knife from her belt and cut the leg of her trousers away from her bloody shin. Seeing the mess, she went faint, as bad as she'd feared. But the hern was fuzzing her mind, helping her to bind the wound without dropping into shock. The sun was set, the bowl of the valley falling into twilight. Frozen winds hissed over the rocks. Her exposed leg felt strangely warm. It was her own fault. She should have made camp, tackled the valley in the morning, looked for the safe route rather than jumping down the ledge. She'd pressed herself too hard and failed her father. She'd failed the others, too. Jer and Lassa, dead in the shipwreck. Volo, murdered by bandits on the trek from the sandy southern coast where they'd made landfall. Sue, drowned in the river they had forded south of the mountains. And Darko, who had disappeared two days ago. They'd left home knowing some of them might not return to the islands, but so long as one of them made it... No death would be in vain. She had to move on. Lying on her back, she laughed senselessly. The hern was making her loopy. Any more, and she might forget her wounds and try to walk, or simply lie on her back, giggling until she froze to death in this hateful place. Yet her laughter wasn't entirely drug-induced. The question in her mind... How do you climb a mountain with two broken legs? 
sounded so much like one of her father's philosophical questions. For a pirate and a frequent drunk, he could be a thoughtful man. The thought of him gave her the answer. You didn't climb a mountain with two broken legs. First, you healed them. Riddy sat up, taking deep breaths, trying to clear her head. She didn't have the power within herself to heal the damage, but the shells could. Using them, though, meant that she wouldn't make it home. Was he worth it, the man beyond the mountains? Or had this mission been a march towards suicide? For a moment, although she'd never met him, she hated him. Above, a star glimmered from the deep blue sky. She had to find the pack. She rolled on her stomach and pushed herself up for a look, trying not to scream at the pain penetrating the fog of Hearn. Her pack was thirty feet uphill, half buried in loose rocks. Getting to it would hurt worse than anything she'd ever felt. Was there another way? She could shred the other leg of her pants, tie the strips into a rope, tie this to her boot and fling it at the pack until she was able to snag a strap with the boot's toe and drag the whole thing to her. But this was a fantasy. It would take too much time and too much strength. There was only one way out of this. Pain shrieking in her skull, she dragged her broken body up the hill. By the time she reached the pack, the pain was so bad she no longer knew where she was or what she had intended to do with whatever was inside the bag. She opened it, staring dumbly. The idea returned. She was about to save herself and guarantee she'd die within another two weeks. She set the box on the flattest rock she could find and opened the lid. The smell of brine wafted from it, along with a faint tang of ocean rot. But she was used to that. Four shells lay within. In the gloom, they were no more than indistinct lemon-sized lumps. She had the feeling she would need all four. Rudy closed her eyes, reached within. She found the shadows inside her and those in the shells. Dark, viscous fluid streamed from the box and into her legs. When the shadows touched her skin, they were even colder than the mountain air. Her legs began to itch, then to burn. Tears slid down her cheeks. With an agonizing tickle, the broken bone slipped beneath her skin. Her legs straightened. The pain faded, replaced by numbness. The stream of nether shifted to her other leg. This, too, itched, burned, numbed. When it finished, there was nothing left but empty shells. She dumped these in the rocks, then tossed the box aside. It would only be dead weight. She stood. Her legs held. She laughed softly, the only noise besides the shifting of the wind. 
She picked up her pack and walked carefully down the scree. Though her right leg was bare, completely exposed, it still felt warm. Once she reached flat ground, she sat and got out her fire kit and struck sparks onto the waxy length of a candle fruit. The flame caught. She held it over her leg. The skin was marred with black streaks as vivid as paint. Her heart caught in her throat. She had less time than she thought. There was no time to rest, not until she found the man beyond the mountains. With the moon peeking from the eastern ridges, she hitched up her pack and trudged across the valley floor. One step after another. Nothing but the rocks before her and her feet beneath her. She didn't look up. The mountains had lasted longer than she'd expected. If she crossed one more ridge, thinking it was the final, only to see another before her, she thought she might sit down and not get up again. The ground sloped down, then up. She wrapped her exposed leg in a blanket, but she still couldn't feel the cold on it. She checked it often to make sure her flesh wasn't freezing. The air was starting to do funny things. Usually it was still deadly cold, but sometimes she walked into a streamer of wind that was so much warmer, it reminded her of home. She had been forcing herself not to think of the islands. In time, though, knowing she would never see them again, she let herself get lost in them. The beat of the sun and the caress of the shade. The gem-like hues of the sea and the shallows. The dolphins that swam beyond the breakers, and the whales that cruised much further from shore, where the water was a deep and brilliant blue. The way the purple sands of Swall Beach changed their design every time she visited. She had lost these things, but she could save them for the others. Or would it be better if she failed? They couldn't undo what had been done. But if they repented, the gods might still show them mercy. The ground beneath her grew level. A cold wind struck her face, but was soon washed away by a warmer one. It carried the smell of fresh water. She frowned and lifted her eyes. Miles away, mountains encircled a vast plain, the slopes lush and green. Below, mist rose from three lakes, each one far larger than any bay in the plagued islands. On the south shore of the nearest lake, a city claimed the land up to the hills, Twists of smoke rose from chimneys. She had arrived. Chapter Two Galador Rift was the hub of Gascon trade, but it possessed one small floor, the gigantic mountain range cutting it off from the Middle Kingdoms to the south. Historically, Galador's merchants had three options for dealing with this impasse. First, they could detour 200 miles to the east, take the pass at Riverway, and then swing southwest toward the bustling cities of the kingdom's interior. Very safe, but very slow. 
Second, the traders could drive their wagons west to the coast, which was exactly as far away as the riverway, and sail south to Ollingham. This was the fastest, but also the most expensive option. Third, they could challenge the West Dundons directly. Though, in addition to the snow that only vacated the passes for a month in late summer, the routes were also snarled with the corpses of those who'd challenged the mountains and failed. None of these options were what you'd call good. So Dante had decided to give Galador a gift a way to repay its people for their aid in Narashtovic's war for independence years earlier. He would bore a hole straight through the mountains, giving the Galadese merchants a fourth option that was the fastest, cheapest, and safest of all. Like all good deeds, however, it was turning out to be a royal pain in the ass. First, a subset of the Tagvog, the Lakeland's governing body of trade, had questioned whether the tunnel would expose them to bandits, raiders, or invasion. Once Dante convinced them how easy it would be to destroy the tunnel if need be, the argument shifted to the passenger's placement. This was a strategic matter. They needed a defensible, practical location, as well as political— the entrance couldn't be too near nor too far from the holdings of the Tagvog's major members. As discussion raged, Dante had grown so frustrated he'd been on the verge of calling off the whole thing. Blaze saved the endeavor by asking him how he would handle it if someone were proposing a new route into Narashtovic, the city where Dante ruled. Would he give them leave to stick it wherever they pleased? or would he fuss and fidget over every tiny detail? Unfair for Blaze to know him that well. For the sake of his sanity, while the Tagvog argued on, Dante trekked across the mountains to the agreed-upon site of the exit and started tunneling north toward Galador. The work would take weeks. Surely the merchants would have made a decision by the time he neared the lakes. Now, though, he was no more than three days away from completion. And as he worked away on the tunnel, converting the stone into mud and sluicing it away, the Tagvog still hadn't chosen exactly where to place the tunnel mouth. If they didn't decide soon, he would. He shunted his mind away from that line of reasoning. Other than the politicking, the job was surprisingly pleasant. He was the only one between Pocket Cove and the Woden Mountains capable of shifting solid rock in this way, which was rewarding in its own right. And the tunnel's solitude was a welcome break from his endless responsibilities administering the sealed citadel of Narashtovic. Once he'd been hungry for that role, and, admittedly, the power and prestige that came with it. But he'd been overseeing the city for several years now. While he knew his work was important, among other things he had freed the city, along with Galador and others from the Gascon Empire, there were times when he wished he had no status at all, and was able to pursue his study of the Nether in peace. Near the blank wall of the tunnel's end, his torch stone was fading. 
he picked the white marble up from the smooth floor and blew it out. He could have worked in darkness, but darkness was creepy, especially when you had a mile of mountain looming over your head. He called forth the nether and shaped it into a tame, pale light. He glanced down the tunnel. Assured there were no horrors sneaking up on him, he turned back to the blank stone wall and delved into it with his mind, finding the nether within it, the ancient death that seemed to lurk within all things. The stone flowed away, the wall retracting, bringing the tunnel another five feet closer to the squabbling, bureaucratic, but mostly charming merchants of Galador. Dante paused to reach further into the rock, making sure there were no cracks or faults exposed by his efforts. Sir? A voice spoke in his ear. It was Steddon, the monk he'd brought with him to oversee communications and scheduling. At the moment, the man was miles away in Wending, Galador's capital. Dante spoke into the loon affixed to his ear like a bit of jewellery. Yes, Steddon. There's someone here to see you, sir. Is that someone a mole? A mole? You know, Dante said. Small, furry, freakish nose, likes to burrow. Ah, uh, no, sir. She appears to be human. Then she's going to be a disappointed human, as I am currently a mile underground. I'm aware of that. Steddon said, but she has a message for you. She says it's from... Yes, Steddon. Well, sir, she claims it's from your father. Then she's lying. She says she's from the plagued islands, that your father's name is Larson. Dante's spine stiffened. Put her on the loon. Let me speak to her. That's the other thing, sir. She's fallen unconscious. I tried to heal her, but there's something stopping me. Dante scowled at the wall. He was far from drained of Nether. If he left now, it would cost him hundreds of yards of work. Yet he needed the strength to help this woman, not because it was the good thing to do, but to find out why she was trying to deceive him and which of his enemies she might be working with. I'll be back as soon as I can, he said into the loon. Thank you for informing me. He turned and jogged down the tunnel, his pale light floating in front of him. He had to run close to three miles before reaching the nearest side tunnel out to the mountains overlooking the lakes. His horse awaited, tethered in the shade. He rode down the switchbacks, descending through terraced slopes thick with tea bushes. The outskirts of most cities tended to be slums, but Wending's upper slopes were fancy suburbs, the sprawling lawns, orchards, and manors of the city's wealthy traders. Swooping roofs capped three-story buildings. Outside many, a forty-foot pole jutted from the center of a ring of cleared dirt. Personal churches, Harkening back to the days Galladie's wagons would gather to barter under poles like these, set along the roads. Outsiders often considered this blasphemous, but in Galador, trade was God.
he took the main boulevard through the city. Below, the massive blue lake glittered in the sun. He reached the docks, which smelled of fresh clams and not-so-fresh fish, stabled his horse, and found the ferryman waiting for his arrival. The man rode him to the pocket-sized island where Lolligan made his home. A salt miner and tea vendor, Lolligan had been rich well before the wars. After the assistance he'd provided during the conflicts, he'd become one of the region's preeminent businessmen. This came with a cost, though. Dante now expected the man to put him up whenever he was in town. The ferryman docked at the island's private pier. Dante thanked him and hopped out. As he crossed the lawn toward the manor, Steddon emerged from the ground floor and dashed toward him in a flurry of black robes. She's still alive, the monk announced. He was a bit chubby and had a habit of staring through you like he couldn't wait to get back to monk work. Still unconscious, though, and I'm not sure she'll wake up without your help. Show me to her. Steddon led him inside and down a hallway to the ground floor guest rooms. There, a woman lay in bed, dressed in a heavy coat and patchwork trousers. The woman was a few years younger than Dante, and her skin was a medium brown, not often seen this far north. She didn't look sweaty or feverish, but there was a faint cast to her, like a reflection in a bubbly pane of glass. A cloying smell of burned cinnamon hung in the air. Yet for all that was strange about her, he was struck by an uncanny sense of familiarity, like he'd met her before. Dante reached for her wrist. Rock dust clung to the hairs of his arm. Her pulse was fluttery, weak. Her breathing was shallow. Dante pushed up his left sleeve, drew an antler-handled knife, and nicked the back of his arm. The nether flocked to the dribbles of blood, feeding hungrily. He reached out to the nether inside the woman. And was stung as sharply as a bee. He took a step back, wincing and shaking his head. He turned on Steddon. You idiot! She's nether-burned! The man hunched his shoulders. I'm sorry. I've never seen a nether burn before. I know it's difficult to gather first-hand experiences of everything in the world. That's why they invented studying. Aren't you a monk of her own? I'm sorry the man repeated more softly this time. Dante let out a long breath and leaned over the woman. We can't heal her. Touching her with the nether will only make it worse. Give her water, if you can. You're sure of this? Check in with Knack. He treated me for it once. But I'm afraid this is one of those annoying injuries where the only treatment is time. Dante opened her coat and made a quick assessment of other wounds that could be treated through mundane means. Other than a few small scabs on her palms and knuckles, she looked perfectly fine. Until he got to her shins. There, her brown skin was striped with finger-sized lines as black as the inside of the mountain tunnel. For future reference... That's what an etherburn looks like.
He pulled a sheet up to cover the woman's shoulders and turned to Stedden. Tell me everything she told you. Apparently, the woman had been staggering down the southern foothills toward the city. Found by a small-scale tea farmer, she'd spoken Dante's name in an accent the farmer had never heard before, refusing to say anything else. Concerned for her well-being, the farmer had escorted her via ferry to Lolligan's. There she'd spoken to Stedden, giving the same details the monk had relayed to Dante. Dante plunked down in a chair. I suppose she said nothing of the message itself. No. Stedden moved to a desk at the front of the room. However, she seemed to understand she might not make it to your arrival. She made me swear to Aron that I wouldn't open it. And then she gave me this. He picked up a wooden rod and brought it to Dante. Roughly ten inches long and two in diameter, it was a piece of polished wood, bright brown and warm orange reds. It appeared to be seamless, but it was light enough it had to be hollow. After a great deal of fooling around, Dante discovered it twisted open in the middle. It carried a rolled-up sheet of paper inside it. He skimmed its contents. I'll be in my quarters. If she wakes or shows any change in her condition, come to me at once. Stedden bobbed his head and sat down beside the foreign woman's bed. Dante exited and climbed the stairs to the much larger and nicer room Lolligan had assigned to him. He locked the door, sat on his bed, and unrolled the paper. It was a single sheet, covered on both sides. It was written in Malish. Had his father been able to write? He couldn't remember. He could hardly remember the man's face. He read the note in full. He let the page rest on his leg, remembering, then read it a new time, lingering on each line. He dropped the note on the bed and went to the window. Light shimmered on the lake. He didn't see it. Instead, he saw the grassy fields of a village outside Bressel. He felt something in the room with him, a presence. The hair stood on his arms and neck. Dante gathered the nether in his hands and turned toward the door. Across the room, a blonde man stood before him, a sword hanging from each hip. Lyle's boss! Dante said, dispersing the shadows. The bolt on the door was still firmly locked. You walked through the wall, didn't you? Blay shrugged. Like you wouldn't if you could. What if I'd had someone in here? The other man folded his arms. Like who? Like, say, a woman? Then I would have had a heart attack and died, sparing you and your imaginary companion the embarrassment. Let's return to the antiquated practice of knocking, shall we? Unless you'd prefer that I enter your room by blasting the wall down. That would be rude. It's Lolligan's wall, not mine. Blaze rocked on his heels. So, is it true? Dante eyed him. What have you heard? 
They say a strange woman staggered out of the mountains, and that she's here on behalf of your father. Shocking. I know. I haven't seen him in nearly twenty years. That, and I always assumed you were hatched, not born. I think it's real. He nodded at the note on the bed. No one else would know some of those details. Blaze gestured to it. Can I? I'm surprised you asked first. It's much easier to ask for permission, knowing you can always sneak in later. He picked up the page, eyes tracking the words. When they'd met as teenagers, Blaze hadn't been able to read at all. The fact he was now literate in both Malish and Gaskin struck Dante as nothing short of proof of the existence of the gods. Blaze finished reading, lowered the note, and raised his eyebrows at Dante. He knew your mom. He knew you. The events he mentions, they're like you remember them. It was a long time ago, but yes. Right, so when do we leave? Dante laughed. We're not going anywhere. But you just said this is your dad. And? And he's sick and dying. You're one of the only people in the world who could help him. Dante sat on the cushions of the window seat. He's the one who decided to leave. I've done perfectly well without him. Why mess with a good thing? We're only issued one father per existence, Blaze said. Most humans, when given the chance to see a parent they thought was long dead, would leap at the chance. He left me. Alone. That was his choice. This may be difficult for you to understand, but after that, I've had no desire to ever see him again. You're right. I don't understand. I'd give anything to see my dad one last time. Dante watched him a moment. Really? You'd give up Min? Trade your relationship with her for one last chat with your dad? Blaze batted at the air. I didn't mean it like that. How about our friendship, then? I'd give you up for a good ham sandwich. Dante rose to collect the note. If you won't take this seriously, then I won't either. All right, point conceded. It wouldn't make any sense to trade a meaningful relationship for a few more minutes of an old one. So, we've established that you wouldn't give up anything. That there are, in fact, real limits to what you'd sacrifice. The only thing left to do is find out exactly how little you would give up. Blaze glared from beneath his blonde eyebrows. Clearly, more than you. Dante crumpled the note and pocketed it. People like to pretend that there's nothing more important than family, that they'd sacrifice anything for it. But parents abandon their children every day. Kids forsake their parents. Brothers betray each other. There's nothing sacred about blood. Family isn't sacred. It's an ideal. We all have to break our ideals sometime. But having them gives us something to live up to. He leaned against the wall, arms crossed. If you won't go, mind if I do? You absolutely will not. I'm not up to much here. I may as well go make myself useful.
Don't you dare try to threaten me with this. Dante's voice was soft, concealing its quaver. This is my family, my decision. Maybe it's none of my business, but I've known you long enough to know that, in a situation like this, you'd rather reject it out of hand than give it real consideration. I've made enough mistakes to be able to live with one more. Just think about it, all right? Why do you care so much? I'm not saying you have to go make nice with him. You can go heal him up, then rub it in his face that you're such a raging success. Dante frowned. What exactly would that gain me? If you're that sure you don't care, then stay here. But if you've got any uncertainty at all, and you don't see him, you could regret it forever. I'll think about it. But I make no promises. That's all I ask. Blaze pushed off from the wall. He moved to the door and unlocked the bolt. If you decide you're going, you know I'll go with you. He walked outside, using the door this time. Dante sat on the bed, removed the wadded-up note from his pocket, and smoothed it against his leg. An hour later, he left his room and found Lolligan in his study. The room overlooked the lake, and was cozy with bric-a-brac gathered over a lifetime of travel. The salt merchant was approaching seventy years of age, but his white goatee remained neatly trimmed, and he showed no signs of slowing down, be it in his business or the speed at which he walked between meetings. Seeing Dante, he smiled and rose from a plush chair. Back from work already? I didn't expect to see you until this evening. The tunnel entrance, Dante said. Has the Tagvog decided where it will go, or are they still having a contest to see who can waste the most of my time? The old man's smile fell. Unlike many businessmen, he seemed primarily motivated by the desire to explore what was possible and to forge connections between people. Unnaturally good-natured, he now looked hurt. I understand your frustration, Lolligan said. You're giving us a boon, and we're so busy squabbling about where to unwrap it that it sounds like we don't care what's inside. But I promise you, everyone in the association knows what this will mean for the lakes. Two days from now, I'll finish the tunnel. If your people haven't decided where they want it by then— I'll make that decision for them. The old man frowned lightly, then rediscovered his smile. We discuss things too much, I'll agree, but that's only because words are free. I let them know we've indulged ourselves long enough. Dante left to check in on the woman, but she was still unconscious. There was a stillness to her body that he didn't like at all. Steddon informed him that she hadn't so much as shifted position during the hour-plus since Dante had first seen her. He stood over her for some time, but nothing explained why he felt like he'd seen her before. At first light, he hiked back to the tunnels. 
Inside, he pushed the passage's end closer and closer to wending, shifting the nether within the rock until he felt a tingle in his veins. He slept right there in the tunnel, curled in his blankets. When he awoke, he had no idea how long he'd been out. But it was long enough to have recovered. He returned to the stone, melting it away down the passage, leaving the way forward as smooth as the surface of a pond. Via Loon, a message came in from Lolligan. The association had made its decision. Dante extracted himself from the tunnels and hustled back to Wending. They had selected a spot in a small hollow outside the city, presumably so that if bandits or soldiers from the Middle Kingdom ever tried to use the tunnels to invade, it would be a simple matter to assault them from the ridges above. Dante cut his arm fed his blood to the nether, and opened a hole in the side of the hollow. Within a day, he'd connected this leg of the tunnel to the one he'd driven up from the south. He emerged from the tunnel, tired and dusty. Along the ridges of the hollow, dozens of faces appeared. The merchants of the Tagvog lifted their arms and cheered his name. This marked the beginning of a two-day celebration of feasting, drinking, and drunken promises of greater feasts to come. Of all the festivals Dante had been invited to, he thought he liked Galador's the best. The lakes held so many different varieties of fish, crabs, and mollusks that he doubted he'd ever be able to sample them all. The first day of the event was held at Lolligan's. It was fun, but a little stuffy. The second day, they convened on the city docks, which took on the air of a proper holiday, complete with food stalls, wandering entertainers, and children tearing about the streets without looking where they were going. Tables were dragged to the docks and loaded with seafood of all kinds, accompanied by the tea and spiced rum the lakes were famous for. As the sun drooped toward the western peaks, the people began a slow migration to the tables. Once the seats were filled, Lolligan rose from his seat beside Dante and rang a silver bell. Two hundred faces turned his way. Tonight, we celebrate the essence of trade, a connection built between two people. It's there, in our new pathway to the Middle Kingdom. He gestured in the direction of the tunnel's mouth, two miles to the southwest. But it's also right here beside me, in the form of the man who made it possible. Years ago, Dante Galland came here as a young man with a crazy idea, that his lands and ours could be free, that they should be free. At the time... Backing him against the Gascon Empire felt like madness. In time, though, that decision has repaid our investment of trust many times over. Tonight, we celebrate our dear allies in Narashtovic. Cheers erupted from across the tables. Lolligan let them fade, then winked at the revelers. And you know what? Let's celebrate ourselves, too. 
for having the wisdom to set us down this path in the first place. This drew even more shouts and upraised glasses. Blaze smiled at Lolligan and took a long drink. Gazing across the happy, rum-flushed faces, Dante felt at odds with himself. He'd given them something of great value. In the process, he'd strengthened the bonds between the Lakelands and Narashtavik. He should have felt satisfied, proud, accomplished. Yet the arrival of the nether-burned woman had stolen that from him. He never thought about his father because he never had to. After the memories contained in the letter, though, he no longer knew if the past was buried as deeply as he'd thought. He tried and succeeded to drink his way to good cheer. Late that night he went to bed intending to spend a day or two longer in Wending to recover from the work, not to mention the celebrations, and then returned to Narashtavik. He'd been away for weeks and was looking forward to going home. Someone shook him awake. The room was dark, chilly from the breeze off the lake. His head swam with drink. Steddon, he croaked. What the hell's the matter with you? It's the stranger, sir. The monk drew back, staring down at him with a face as serious as a cat's. She's awake. Dante jumped out of bed. Dressed only in his sleeping robe, he followed Steddon downstairs. Three candles barely lit the woman's small room. She was lying in bed, but her eyes were wide open. The room smelled like meat kept sealed for too long. Dante moved beside the bed. The woman's eyes snapped to his. You are him. Her voice was raspy, weak, accented in a way Dante had never encountered. He leaned closer. She grabbed the collar of his robe. You are Dante? I am. Who are you? He will soon die. You must go see him. Dante drew back. He doesn't deserve it. Perhaps not. But you do. You don't even... He cut himself short. She had begun to shake, limbs jerking, teeth clacking. Her eyes rolled back, her back arched like a drawn bow. A dark blot moved up her cheek. He tried to swat it away, but it was within the skin, staining it pure black. The stain reached her right eye, painting it out. A second tendril crept up her left cheek. He watched, helpless, as it moved into her left eye and filled it with blackness. Her body relaxed, pooling on the bed like cool oil. He felt for her pulse, and found none. What's happening? Steddon whispered. Has she? Dante whirled on him. Did she say anything? Before you came to me? Only that her name was Riddy. I ran for you as soon as her eyes opened. Did I do wrong? No. He unclenched his fist. There was nothing more to do for her. Thank you for coming to get me. 
A part of him wished to study the body, to see if he could learn more about the ethereal burns that had taken her life. But at the moment, he had no stomach for it. He exited the room and headed upstairs. Rather than returning to his room, he went into blazes. The man was snoring loudly, tangled in his sheets. Dante pulled up a chair and sat, thinking. He wouldn't have been surprised if Blaze had gone on snoring for another six hours, but hardly fifteen minutes had passed before the man's breathing hitched. Blaze stretched, yawned, and opened his eyes. He saw Dante and shrieked. Not much fun, is it? Dante said. Blaze scowled, his face puffy from sleep and drink. What are you doing here? Besides being so creepy that poison centipedes think you've gone too far. Did you mean what you said? About going with me to the islands? Yeah, of course. He slumped forward, rubbing the corners of his eyes with the tips of his forefingers. Has something happened with the stranger? I've decided to go. As soon as we can. I'll just have to make a few arrangements first. Uh, well, that probably won't be necessary. Yes, why would we need to prepare? We're only traveling thousands of miles to a set of islands I've never heard of until two days ago. I'm sure all we need to do is buy a few meat pies and bring an extra pair of socks. Blaze looked sheepish. I mean, I've already spoken to Ollivander and Snack. They're fine with you taking the time away from Narashtovic. There will still be food, travel, logistics. Yeah, Lolligans helped me out with that. All good to go. Dante's jaw dropped. You said it was my decision. And I haven't as much as spoken to you about it since then, have I? I simply wanted everything to be prepared so we could move as fast as possible. You might have at least consulted me. This is what I'm here for, to lend a hand, make rough business a little more bearable. Blaze rested against the headboard. Besides, he was spending all day out climbing around mountains and tunnels. It got boring back here. Dante got up and moved to the window. It would be dawn soon, and the fishermen were already paddling out to check their nets. He knew their lives weren't as simple and placid as it appeared, yet sometimes he envied them for knowing where each morning would take them. Do you think I'm making the right choice? Blaze yawned loudly. What time is it? Minus five in the morning? Right now... I wouldn't know whether it's the right choice to fry an egg or scramble it. Dante stared into the darkness a moment longer, then turned and kicked the bed. Come on, then. If you've already got everything prepared, there's no sense wasting time. Next time I'm going to rent us some of those horses that refuse to wake up until noon. Dante closed the door and jogged down the stairs. Blaze may have wrangled the logistics, but there were two tasks left before they set out. Examine the woman who had brought him the news, and then bury her.
Chapter 3 Blaze stood in the ship's prow, hair tousled by the wind of the voyage. The sea was grey, and the spray hissing over the railings was as cold as winter rain, but he was grinning like he'd just been promoted to chief ale quaffer. Reminds you of the good old days, doesn't it? he said, over the smack of the waves and the creak of the boards. Dante tightened his grip on the rails. Which days were those, exactly? Before all these dratted responsibilities, when all we had to do was roam, us against the world. You mean, like when we were being hunted in the streets of Bressel? Or in Wetton, when they dragged you off to be hanged for murder, those good old days? All right. Maybe they weren't so good. Maybe they were just... old. Blaze wiped spray from his forehead. Even so, they were fun, in their way. Dante grunted, turning to port to watch the city of Ollingham fade into the mists of the horizon. It had been his first visit to the Jewel of the Middle Kingdoms, but they'd hardly spent eight hours there before boarding the Thorn Wind and shoving off. They would sail south for a day, then turn east and pass through the slanted straits on their way to Bressel, capital of Malin, to arrive in another three or four days. After the Thornwind made port, Dante hoped to hire Captain Collins to take them south to the plagued islands. Failing that, they'd look elsewhere. Bressel remained the largest port he'd ever seen and after leaving a note of credit with Lolligan, Dante was practically carrying enough silver to buy his own vessel if he had to. There were many varieties of sea, Captain. Collins turned out to be the highly unctuous variety, more of a hotelier than a naval commander. Or perhaps he only behaved that way when he had two lords paying lodging on a pair of cabins. Whatever the case, whenever he passed, he asked Dante whether he could be of service. The fifth or sixth time the captain came by, he hardly slowed down. In need of anything more, my lord? Dante looked from his bench, bracing himself on a nearby railing. Yes, in fact, passage to the plagued islands. Collins threw back his head and laughed. Gladly, and while I'm at it, shall I deliver you to the backside of the moon? I'm afraid I'm serious. Can you help us? The captain went dead sober. The plagued islands are not in our schedule. I'd be happy to pay you for the detour. I will not sail into death for any fee. Then do you know anyone greedy or stupid enough to do so in your stead? I will see if I can think up a few names, Colin said, though I think it would be best for you if my memory failed me. The man bobbed his head and strolled off. Dante watched him go. During the ride from Wending to Ollingham, he'd spoken to Knack about the plagued islands, lacking any information about their destination except its name. However, as with all exotic, faraway locations, the stories and rumors were less than credible. It was possible that the people lived on the slopes of living volcanoes, He'd seen much stranger arrangements, like the tree cities of Spiron, 
but Dante highly doubted the islands were actually so warm that you never needed clothes. Winter came everywhere. As for the meaning of the island's name, he'd gotten nowhere. Some claimed that no one who ever visited them ever came back. This was nonsense on the face of it. If so, then no one would know anything about the place. Others claimed that it was so rife with poxes that the lucky ones left the islands with melted faces. This was surely exaggerated, but even if it held a kernel of truth, Dante was unconcerned. There were a few diseases he couldn't treat or cure outright. Besides, the autopsy he'd conducted on Riddy hadn't turned up any buboes, sores, cancers, or rots. If she'd carried any sicknesses from the islands, they were no more than a nuisance. From the way Captain Collins spoke, however, Dante was beginning to doubt his ability to heal would convince many sailors to take the risk of the voyage. Then again, all it took was one captain looking for a score. Early on the second day of their voyage, the thorn wind sailed directly toward a mountain. Dante watched in consternation as the peaks grew nearer and nearer. Just as he began to suspect Collins had gone mad, the ship hove to port, entering the strait that separated the mainland from the chain of rocky islands. Blaze was back in the prow, gazing at the peaks in solitude. As Dante approached him, he understood where they were. The Carlin Islands. He turned to go. Don't. Blaze didn't remove his eyes from the mountains. It's all right. Dante stayed where he was. What is? I know why you did it. To save those who could be saved. It had to be done. For a moment... Dante was back in the courtyard of the citadel, where he and Lyra had been all that stood between their people and the conquering armies of the Gascon Empire. It had smelled like guts and smoke. In their red uniforms, the enemy soldiers had looked like a rushing tide of blood. Lyra was out in front, striking down the sorcerer who'd been about to kill Dante. In perverse payment for saving his life, Dante cracked apart the earth itself, dropping her and the king's army to their deaths. She had been from the Carlins. She had also been Blazer's first love. After the Chainbreakers' War, it had taken three years before Dante saw Blaze again, and even longer before their friendship resumed. Seven years after her death, Blaze hadn't said anything about forgiving him, nor had Dante expected it. Maybe there was no other choice, Dante said. Even so, I'm sorry. Me too. But I imagine she was happy to die in such service. You know how she was. When she fell, she actually smiled. Did I ever tell you that? Blaze chuckled, glancing his way. Are you serious? She was an odd one, wasn't she? I suppose that's why she fit right in. Other than the sighting of a lone pirate vessel, which the Thornwind outran handily, the rest of the trip was quiet. 
Soon they came within sight of Bressel. It was the first major city Dante had spent time in, and remained the archetype he compared all others to. Shacks and slums on the outsides, incomplete walls, muddy streets, few of them cobbled, all of which stunk of dung. Church spires, including the Odellian, said to be over five hundred feet high. And the docks. Larger than most cities, these encrusted the estuary where the Chancet River flowed out into the sea. The Thornwind maneuvered into the river and soon made berth. Colin strode up and down the deck, delivering orders loudly but calmly. Dante packed up the book he'd been reading and shouldered his bags. As he debarked, Collins pulled him aside. The bearded captain passed him a small square of paper. I can't promise they're here, but if anyone is willing to help you, it will be these men. Dante blinked at the paper. It contained two whole names. Thank you for going to such lengths. The man bowed, spreading one palm before him. Dante crossed the gangplank over the brackish-smelling waters. Blaze followed behind him smiling at the bustle of longshoremen, sailors, fishermen, and vendors. There were even a few kneeling within the crowds, short, pale, hairless creatures with a fishy cast to their faces. Dante hadn't seen one since leaving Brussel a decade earlier. So, Blaise said, pub? New ship first, Dante said, then pub. Counterpoint? By pubbing first, we'll be more enthusiastic about finding a new ship, not to mention more charming towards its quartermaster. Our list is only two names long. The pubs will be our morale booster if those fall through. Blaze narrowed his eyes, then nodded once. Wise. Extremely wise. First name on the list? This was one Captain Davids of The Lurcher. After asking around and discovering his malish was still fine despite years of neglect, Dante was directed to appear a short ways upstream. On finding the lurcher, he was met by a quartermaster named Laurie, a man whose ruddy face was wreathed in red whiskers. We're looking for passage to the plagued islands, Dante said. You came recommended by way of Captain Ben Collins. Laurie gave him a long, level look. We won't be headed that way. Perhaps if it were summer. Summer's only a few weeks off, Dante said. How long would we need to wait? I wasn't finished. Perhaps if it were summer, and the whirlpool were down, and my men were starving and in need of immediate coin, and if I was promised nine virgins of— Blaze exhaled loudly. We get the point. You're not man enough to take us there. Laurie smiled, red whiskers twitching. If you're trying to goad me, you have to find far worse slander than that. Your mother is a tramp. Dante held out his scrap of paper. We were told the Yasmina might make the trip. Do you know where it might be? Yes, Laurie said. In pieces, at the bottom of the Red Sea, off the coast of your precious islands. I see. So, do you know anyone who would be willing to take us there? Well, 
Under normal circumstances, and assuming there was a bit of silver coming my way for it, I'd send you to Captain Twill, of the Sword of the South. But what are the abnormal circumstances stopping you from doing so? Those being that, last I heard, Twill was about to die of illness. Let me guess, Blaze muttered, picked up on a trip to the plagued islands. The man scratched his neck. Can't say I got close enough to her to find out. Is she here now? Dante said. Like I said, silver. Dante fished into a pouch and removed three Galadese coins, careful not to let the others clink. Laurie hefted them in his palm, frowning deeply at them. Where are these from? The color of money doesn't care whose face is stamped on it. Agreed. He pocketed the coins and stood, rolling his neck with a series of cracks. And for this much, I'll introduce you myself. The hefty man ambled down the dock and into the mucky thoroughfare fronting it. Boards were laid in the mud, but these trails were dominated by men bearing handcarts and wagons piled with crates and casks. After years spent among the Gascons, who favoured long coats and fur hats, the Malish jackets looked flimsy, more decorative than functional. After a brief jaunt, Laurie turned off the thoroughfare and onto a pier. So far, every dock had been jammed with merchant vessels, but this one berthed a single ship. If the wallowing carracks they'd seen previously had been broadswords, the Sword of the South was a rapier, sleek and slim, with a short foremast and a taller mainmast. Its decks were empty, and it rode high in the water. Laurie stopped before it and cupped his hand to his mouth. Hoy! After a moment of silence, he repeated himself more loudly. A scuzzy-looking young man popped up from the deck. Mr. Narren, if you please, Laurie said. The young man eyed them, mouth half open, then disappeared once more. After a minute, another man appeared, brown-skinned and green-eyed, wearing an orange-trimmed white jacket, the sleeves of which appeared to be connected to its vest using laces. Is that you, Laurie? He spoke with an upper-class Malish accent, but this was accompanied by a second accent Dante had never heard before. Looking to finally join a real crew? Laurie gawked. You have a real crew on this ship? But I'm sorry, there must be some mistake. You see, I was looking for the Sword of the South. Naren removed a pick from his breast pocket and scraped between his teeth, which were remarkably well preserved for a sailor. Mind getting to the point? Some of us have work to do. This is Dante, Laurie said, and this is... He gestured at Blaze, then shrugged. Someone who didn't pay me enough to remember their name. He flicked his hand in a salute and turned to go. What? That's it, Blaze said. I said I'd introduce you, not arrange you to be married. Laurie strolled away in the direction of the lurcher. Naren folded his hands behind his back and gazed at them from behind the railings. 
Did you have something you wanted, or did you just come here for a look at my handsome face? We heard Captain Twill is unwell, Dante said. I'm a healer. The man's mouth tightened to a thin line. Thank you. Not interested. Mr. Lorry made it sound as though your captain's condition is very serious. And that is precisely why she's in no need of whatever toad icon you've come to peddle. Dante raised his eyebrows. You will want to let me see her. And how do you expect to be compensated for your services? I need passage to the plagued islands. Therefore, my ability to reach my destination depends on my ability to heal your captain. Naren regarded him for a long moment, then sighed. Permission to board. Dante bowed his head and climbed the portable staircase set beside the boat. As he crossed onto the deck, he caught a whiff of something floral and spicy. Naren was wearing some kind of perfume. Possibly that was the custom in his land— but Dante feared he might be using it to deal with the scent of death. The man led them to a cabin in the aftercastle. Wait here. He opened the door, a bell jingling from the handle. The interior was too dark to make out. As he closed the door behind him, the room exhaled a whiff of something fetid. After two minutes of silence, Naren reopened the door and nodded them inside. The cabin was spacious, as far as ship's cabins went, meaning that it was merely cramped rather than claustrophobic. A bed took up the left wall. Within it, a woman lay propped up by pillows, her features barely visible in the thin sunlight sneaking past the curtained windows. Her blonde hair was sun-bleached to the point of whiteness, and though her youngish face was heavily tanned, this couldn't hide her drawn, wan skin. She might have been quite attractive, if not for the oozing sores pocking her face. Despite these, she met Dante's gaze head-on. Her eyes were a pale, washed-out blue common to the Colin Basin. Mr. Naren tells me... You consider yourself a healer? Dante shrugged. I imagine the hundreds of people I've saved would agree. I'm impressed, she said. And of those hundreds, how many did you cure of the weeping end? Never heard of it. Fortunately, a complete unfamiliarity with my enemies has never stopped me from defeating them. He moved nearer to the bed. The fetid smell intensified. Dante breathed through his mouth, doing his best not to display his distaste. Where did you pick this up? The Plagued Islands? The Golden Isles. That's the only place the Weeping End is found. Do you know what caused you to be afflicted with it? I thought you were supposed to be the physician. Humor me. No pun intended. Twill continued to stare at him. They say it comes in contact with the Snorriba, a kind of snake favoured here for its skin. This trip we took some aboard, 
Rubbing your hands with tint leaves is supposed to ward off the sickness, but it didn't help me. Dante nodded vaguely. In Narashtavik, he'd established an institution known as the Carnatarium to study the causes of death, but the roots of sickness remained elusive. Some diseases seemed contagious, but others didn't appear capable of passing to others. Everywhere he traveled had competing theories as to how these illnesses came to be. Dirt and filth was a common one. In Malon, where they believed in the purity of the ether, impurities were pegged as the cause. These could come in the form of rotten food, vices, particularly sex, or the consumption or smoking of various herbs, even blasphemous thoughts. Removing the impurities could be achieved through leeches, emetics, sweating, enemas, or anything else that expunged liquid from the body. No matter which land you went to, traveling physicians sold a panoply of oils, pastes, incense, and ichors. As for Dante, he wasn't certain what he believed. Nether was drawn to blood and death so there were times he suspected an imbalance of shadows could cause sickness. But foul air seemed to be the most common factor. That's why there were so many diseases in swampy, warmer places, or in houses with too many people and too few windows. This suggested that when no ethereal treatment was available, a cure might involve fresh air and isolation. Exploring these matters could be the secondary focus of his voyage. That way, no matter what happened with his so-called father, Dante could return with something valuable. Well, no matter the cause, I have a cure, he said. This will only take a minute. He drew his knife and scratched the back of his left arm. Blood welled in the nick, shadows flocking to it like dumb moths. On the other side of the bed, Naren gasped. Nethermanta! He rushed for the door, grabbing the handle. All hands, all— Steel whispered on leather. In a blink, Blaze drew both swords, putting one to Naren's outstretched wrist and the other to his neck. A suggestion, Blaze said. Shut up. The cords of Naren's neck tensed and flexed like rigging in a gale. You came to kill us. Why? I'm sure this looks very bad. What with certain people's swords pressed to certain other people's jugulars. But I promise you, we mean you no harm. In the gloom of the cabin, Naren's eyes were as white as little moons. Who are you, people? Dante let his hands dangle at his sides. I'm, as you say, an ethermancer and I will make your captain whole, if you'll allow it. That's not my decision to make. Captain Twill? The woman tried to speak, but her throat caught. She swallowed, baring her teeth. The weeping end is a death sentence, slow and nasty. If this bastard means to kill me fast, that sounds like a blessing. Naren removed his hand from the door. Blaze put his swords away. Dante exhaled, then moved his vision to the shadows inside the woman's frame. 
her body was being broken. Wrongness whirled within, tearing her apart from her spine to her skin. Dante drew streams of darkness from all corners of the room. It settled on Twill's skin, sinking into it like the water left on the sand from a retreating wave, penetrating to the deepest sources of that wrongness. She gasped, sitting up in bed. Naren started forward, then stopped himself. Twill closed her eyes. Her entire body trembled. Dante paid her no mind, smoothing out the ulcers within her, then sending the nether through her veins to cleanse her blood. The sickness was deeply rooted. He could leave no trace behind. Scouring her clean took many minutes. His hold on the nether grew less fine. Finished with her insides, he moved to her outsides. The sores on her face sealed. Scabs formed, then dropped to the sheets, revealing smooth, unbroken skin. Beside him, Blaze looked completely nonchalant. Naren looked ready to jump out the porthole. Twill's eyes remained closed. Dante reeled in the direction of the nearest chair and sat. Twill's eyes sprung open. She sat up cautiously, turning her hands palm up, then palm down. She opened the dresser beside her bed and withdrew a mirror. Without being asked, Naren raked the curtains back from the windows, spilling sunlight into the cabin. Twill held the mirror to her face. She laughed, touching her smooth skin. Is this some kind of trap? What do you mean? Dante said. The ethermancers refuse to see me. So are you here to taint me with Nether? Prove I'm as debased as they say? Healing the unwell is about the only thing they've ever given back to this city. Why would the priests turn away a sick person? Because she's from a place that deserves no saving. Colin Basin. He gestured toward her eyes. Why? It's the seat of a wrong sedition. Worshipping the wrong god leaves our souls impure and opens our bodies to sickness. She swung her legs out of bed and planted her stocking feet on the floor, looking surprised by how easily she was able to stand. What's the deal? You talk like a local, but you're as ignorant as a child. I grew up here, but I left Malin many years ago. Be happy about that, Shadow Slinger. If you hadn't gotten out... She mimed, wrapping a noose around her neck and pulling it tight. She popped up on her toes, sticking her tongue from the corner of her mouth. Naren told me you want to go to the Plagued Islands. That's why you healed me. I thought it would be a little easier than stealing your ship and enslaving your crew. Well, I'm certainly grateful to have skipped out on death, but we have a problem. My gratitude won't do anything to feed and pay that crew. Don't worry about payment. Blaze smacked Dante on the shoulder. This guy's got more money than a pub on Falmux Eve. Twill smirked, then sobered. Whatever you're offering, I'm sure I'd make more by turning you into the priests. 
The only thing you'd earn doing that, Dante said, is an abrupt booting through death's door. She laughed and threw open the windows. A cool wind swept through the cabin, carrying the smell of fresh water. No worries, Mr. Dante. I can still feel a heart beating down in me somewhere. I'll take you to the islands, but I'll need a few days. My crew's out drinking. I choose to pretend they're mourning my fate, and my holes are empty. I won't travel to the plagued islands without a full belly of iron. Fine by me. We could use a few days in the city ourselves. Be careful out there. If they know what you are, they'll kill you. Years ago, Malin had been his home. He'd been looking forward to revisiting it, to learning what had changed and what had stayed the same. But after Twill's revelation that Nether users were now enemies of the state, an affront to tame, first god of the Selicet, Dante spent as little time on the streets as possible. Most of his time was spent in libraries and monasteries, seeking anything they had on the culture and history of the plagued islands. There wasn't much to find. When he stumbled on something useful, he made the monks a donation in exchange for their making a copy of it, or, more rarely, to purchase the book outright. The gods of the Selicet were the same in Malin as in Gask. Tame, Carvajal, Lear, Menoch, and so on. Dante was able to navigate the monasteries with minimal gaffes. As he made his rounds, however, the single difference between the two nations grew more and more glaring. Here, there was no Aron, the god of death and of Nether. He allowed himself a very small amount of chatter with the monks. Some were completely apolitical, either from devotion to their gods or exasperation with the games of the court. Others, however, couldn't get enough of it, either because they had designs on entering the political arena or because gossiping about lords, ladies, and the clergy was the only fun they were allowed to have. So they thought nothing of Dante's interest in the subject. He picked up the gist very quickly. After Samaran's failed war to revive Aron's worship in Malin, the same war that had brought Dante from Malin to Narashtavik, anti-Aron sentiment flourished. Aron's believers, revealed by the war, had been driven out or killed. His worship was outlawed once more, and anything related to him, such as the wielding of Nether, was outlawed as well. Six or seven years ago, when Dante had been closer to Malin, this oppression of Aron's people would have infuriated him. Now, it only made him sad. When he at last departed on the Sword of the South, he turned his back to Malin, happy to leave it to rot. Two hours later, and the city had vanished completely. The only land in sight was Sentinel Mountain, behind and to starboard. Dante retired to his cabin. Due to the smallness of the ship, he had to share the room with Blaze and was not looking forward to the snoring. Out of sight of the crew, he used his loon to contact Nag. 
A member of the Council of Narashtavik, Nak acted as their de facto secretary, coordinating communications through their small, and extremely secret, network of loons. So you're off, Nak said. Any idea when you'll be back? Dante gripped the edge of the bunk as they hit a swell. Tuesday? Certainly no later than Thursday. I'm not trying to schedule a dinner date. I'm merely looking for a rough estimate. If the winds do what they're supposed to, and winds are proverbial for their steadiness and predictability, Captain Twill thinks it will take a week to get there and two weeks to get to Bressel. So, depending on how long things take at the island, I'd think we'll be back in Narashtavik in six weeks. Eight at the utmost. Just in time for summer. I bet you can't wait. Summer. When the heat and humidity lay on the city like a drunk husband. Dante closed down the connection and opened one of his books, hoping to take his mind off his most hated time of year. Now and then he ventured out for fresh air and a glance at Captain Twill, who he hoped to speak to regarding the plagued islands, but she was busy seeing to the needs of the ship until that evening. The night was chilly and blustery, but possibly in response to her recent time spent trapped indoors, Twill met him atop the aftercastle. She stood with her shoulders thrown back, her hair kept from blowing in her face by a number of braids and ties. I want to thank you again for making this journey, Dante said. There's only one problem. I have no idea what our destination is like. If you don't know squat about the islands, what makes you so keen to get there? Family business. She looked him up and down. You don't look like an islander. That's because I'm from one of those families that enjoys living as far away from each other as possible. He pulled his cloak tighter around his chest. So what are they like? The people there? I couldn't say. I've never met them. I'm sorry, there must be some mistake. I was under the impression you were Captain Twill, veteran traveler of the Plagued Islands. The Sword of the South has been making this trip since before I was a swabby. The inhabited islands have designated trading bays. They call them swappers. You drop anchor and sooner or later somebody comes down to the beach. We use telegraphy, flags in our case, to explain what we've got and what we want. Once we've agreed on a price, we row out to a little island off the shore and drop off the goods. The locals come out, make their inspection, and if everything's on the up and up, they take our stuff and leave theirs in its place. Then we pick it up and go on our way. System smoother than a greased otter. What if they take your goods and run off? Then our boat never comes back. I've heard of the occasional theft, but most towns value a good trade partner more than a one-time score. I can see that working, Dante said. What manner of goods do you get in return? Spices, flowers, herbs, stuff that smells good, tastes good, or makes you feel good. And is it really that dangerous there? Everyone else seems to think so, which means my crew thinks so 
which means that if I, a skeptic, were to get in breathing range of the locals, I turn around to find my ship has left without me. Dante scratched the side of his jaw. So how will they react to when Blaze and I expect a ride home? Don't worry, Twill smiled. We'll just tow you behind the boat. You don't believe the islands are diseased, then? They have their share, same as anywhere else, including one I've never seen elsewhere. The Black Creep. If that one gets you, you won't even know it until a week or two later. A week after that, you can hardly stand. After that? She hummed a malish funeral dirge. Do you know the cure? Or how you contract it? Wouldn't have any idea. Like I said, the men would mutiny if we tried to spend any time on shore. Anyway, the plagued islands might not be as bad as they say, but the name had to come from somewhere, yeah? The next day, clouds scudded in and out of the skies. Dante read more, mostly in his cabin. He found he got seasick when he could see the horizon rolling around in his peripheral vision. As the afternoon drew on, Blaze swung the door open, letting in a rush of sunlight and salt air. Someday, I'll stop being surprised that you'd rather jam your nose in a book than look at the new world unfolding around you. But it isn't this day. Dante didn't look up from his book. What am I missing? Let me guess, it's big, flat, and blue. There are also birds. I'm trying to learn about what we're getting ourselves into. There's virtually no information about the plagued islands out there. It's almost as bad as Wesley. Blaze stayed in the entrance, keeping one hand on the door to keep it from whacking him. I've got a surefire way to learn about the islands. By going to them. They weren't always this isolated. Hundreds of years ago, they were on the route between Malon and the continent to the south. A place so important you don't even know its name. He wiped his nose and his collar. What made you decide to do this after all? Dante shook his head slowly. Idiocy, I suspect, along with a large helping of spite. Ah, spite. The only force capable of giving love a run for its money. I thought about what you said. The few parts that were useful, anyway. And I found myself upset. Sorry about that. I only wanted you to give it some serious thought. I wasn't upset at you. I mean, no more than usual. I was upset at him. For leaving me alone. Maybe he had a good reason. Or maybe he's just an asshole. I decided I needed to find out which, while there's still time. So it doesn't even matter what the answer is, so long as we find one. That should make things easier. He jerked his head at the doorway. I'll be outside. I've never been south of Bressel before. Dante closed the book and followed Blaze out of the cabin. The sea was slate gray, just as it looked from the south shores of Malan. As the days went on, however, the sea's hue shifted from gray to gray-blue, and then to navy. Every morning, 
the air felt a little warmer. As he ran low on reading material, he spent more and more time outside the cabin, for there wasn't much to see besides gulls and petrels whose wingspans were wider than a man was tall. None of the books he read laid out the island's history in full, but, bit by bit, he pieced together a tenuous approximation. Many centuries in the past, there'd been a fair amount of trade between Malin, the plagued islands, and the lands further south. About six or seven hundred years ago, however, a series of wars had broken out between the island's clans. At the same time, a terrible sickness had emerged. These two events had killed trade for decades. Over time, though, it resumed, only to be brought to a sudden halt roughly four centuries ago, when another conflict had engulfed the island. No specifics were mentioned, but hundreds of Malish had perished in the fighting and the ensuing plague. Ever since, sickness had ravaged the land, limiting contact to the few souls brave or greedy enough to tempt disaster. He fell asleep, compiling his notes. A knock woke him some time later. Blaze threw open the door. It felt as though he'd been asleep for no more than two hours, meaning it should be early afternoon. But the light from outside was dull and gray. I think, Blaze said, you're going to want to see this. Dante was tired enough that he wouldn't have cared if a pod of dolphins were fluke waltzing on the surface of the water, but the earnestness in Blaze's voice drew him from his bunk. Outside, most of the sky was clear and blue, yet it was as dim as twilight. Ahead and to starboard, a pillar of clouds connected the sea to the sky, wider at the top than at the base. Behind it, the sun was a dull coin. A dense mist hung around and above the miles-high pillar. At its base, the ocean wasn't flat. Rather, it was concave. The horizon dented like a ball dropped in the middle of a taut sheet. Twill appeared atop the aftercastle, leaning her arms on the rail. So is that all it takes to extract you from your cabin? Dante drifted toward the starboard edge. What is it? It's the mill. Aron's mill. That's what they say. I've never met the big man to ask in person. He gawked across the waters. Can we get any closer? Twill snorted, walking down the castle stairs. Sure, if you've decided you want to go to hell instead. We're already closer than anyone else dares to get. What is it? Well, Poole, miles across. Biggest one I've ever heard of. He pointed at the sky. Is it causing the spout? Or is the spout causing it? Again, she said, joining him at the rail, Although Aron is surely aware of my curiosity, he's never seen fit to give me the answers. She watched for a minute, then strode away, yelling orders. As they drew closer, the winds worsened, buffeting the sails. Sailors kept busy in the rigging, trimming the canvas to every shift and direction.
The sky grew darker yet. Blaze strolled up to the railing, grinning vacantly. I've never seen so much nether in the air. It's like someone dumped a flock of crows in a thresher. He glanced at Dante. What? I still can't believe you learned how to use it. Sorry to have encroached on your hallowed ground. I'll remind you the only reason I learned to wield it was so I could try to escape from you. At the time, Blaze's departure from Narashtovic had wounded him to the core. Now Dante found himself laughing about it. It's very strange that tragedy can become comedy through the simple addition of time. I think that only happens when you've endured something together. Go through it alone, and it may always feel sad. I could buy that. Having someone else around also helps you know you're still sane. Blaze stared at the grim spout towering over the ocean. A benefit that is coming in very handy right now. They passed the mill from miles away. The waters were so dark they were almost black, churning in a vortex, fighting and foaming. Mist soaked them, followed by a pelting rain. The sails luffed madly. Waves bashed the hull, spitting foam over the deck. Dante took a chair outside the cabin and plunked down. There was no way he was going to hide indoors when there was a chance to learn something about the whirlpool. The skies lightened, the winds calmed. The whirl of water and the pillar of storm fell behind them. If anything, though, they skimmed along faster than ever. After a few minutes convincing himself this was so, Dante found Twill atop the aftercastle, overseeing the helmsman. You're right, she confirmed. We are going faster. That's the whole point of sailing around the mill. We caught the current. We'll be at the islands within a day. There was no further excitement between then and nightfall. Dante went to bed early. He woke before dawn. The cabin was humid, sweaty. When he went outside, it was hardly any less stifling. The only thing keeping it tolerable was the constant wind. The sun rose on an azure sea. They weren't traveling as zippily as the day before, but the sword of the south was still making better time than at any point prior to the mill. A few white clouds adorned the sky like strips of lace. The sun was punishing, driving Dante into whatever shade he could find. Land ho! High in the rigging, a sailor pointed dead ahead. Dante moved to the prow. Ahead, a dim blue shape lay on the horizon. With the ship still streaking forward in the current, the shape quickly resolved into a green island of jagged, knife-like heights and wave-battered coasts. Twill dispensed commands, prompting another round of sail trimming. White birds soared with hardly a flap of their wings. The waters were now a bright, sapphire blue. Those surrounding the island were pale, but no less gem-like. Low black cliffs skirted the shores. Above them grew the lushest, greenest forest Dante had ever seen. 
they sailed past the northernmost point, diverting to the east side of the island. The small bay swung inward, ringed by vivid purple sands. Animals shrieked from the trees, their calls so strange and piercing he couldn't tell if they were birds or creatures. He saw no sign of inhabitation at all, but given the crush of the jungle, thousands of people could be living inside it, and you'd never know. The ship swung around another outcrop of rock, revealing the island was much bigger than at first blush. The letter delivered to Dante by the dead woman had instructed him to come to something called the Bay of Peace. He, of course, had no idea where this was, but Captain Twill strode up and down the deck giving orders as naturally as if she were directing a carriage driver to her home. They veered past a long arm of black rock, gleaming with pools of water, its fringes shifting with birds and crabs. The sword of the south hove around it and entered a calm bay sheltered from the northern currents. Tiny islands spangled the waters, low and level enough to serve as swappers. Dead ahead, a small river fed into the bay. The shores had been cleared of trees and were crowded with a mix of stone and wooden buildings. Despite the heat of the day, columns of smoke rose from the settlement. Here you are, Twill said, grinning crookedly. The Bay of Peace. Half the sails were down. As the ship coasted inland, slowing in advance of the reef protecting the inner bay, men tossed lead weights over the side, measuring the depth with lengths of cord. Dante kept his eyes on the settlement. As they passed the first of the little islands, yellow flickered from the shore. Dante craned forward. Figures dashed between the houses. The smoke. It wasn't coming from cook fires. The town was burning. Chapter 4 Twill stared at the blooming flame, spine straightening. Mr. Fredericks, come about. We're getting out of here. Hollers and screams filtered from the shore. The ship lurched, heaving around. Dante ran toward the captain. What are we doing? She barely looked his way. That appears to be a war. I'm removing ourselves from it. Do you intend to find somewhere else to land? Assuming the entire island isn't on fire? Good enough. He moved back, giving her space to conduct her business. As the ship turned, avoiding a black rock spiking from the waves, Blaze thumped up beside him. Where exactly are we going? Away, Dante said. There's a problem with that. Those people over there appear to be getting killed. We haven't yet stepped foot on this place and you already want to start meddling. How could we even know who to help? Easy rule of thumb. You help the side whose village is being burned. In all the wars we've seen, have you ever known the village burners to be on the right side of justice? Across the bay, a shirtless man stumbled onto the shore, clutching a staff or spear. A figure stalked after him, dressed in chainmail, sword gleaming in the harsh noon light. 
He battered the spearman to the ground and drove his blade into the man's body. No, Dante said, I haven't. He jogged across the deck toward Twill, who was deep in argument with Mr. Narron. Captain, we need to go ashore. She scowled his way. First rule of successful trading. Never, ever get involved in local affairs. These people are about to be slaughtered. It may be very easy to get a corpse to agree with your price, but you'll find it rather more difficult for him to pay you. I won't feed my men to a war they have nothing to do with. You don't have to, Dante said. Give us a longboat. We'll do the rest. Twill gritted her teeth, then gave the command. A minute later, her crew had lowered a longboat to the water. Blaze scampered down the rope ladder to the boat, Dante on his heels. They paddled toward an empty beach just south of the town, soaring over the bay's placid waters, which shallowed rapidly, turning an outrageous aquamarine. Dante watched the shore, but between the smoke, buildings, and jungle, there was no way to get a clear view of what was happening. Should I assume you have no plan whatsoever? I thought I'd charge at them waving my sword around and whooping like a barbarian. Or were you looking for something more subtle? Given the circumstances, I suppose that's as good as we can get. But make sure you don't hurt anyone who doesn't deserve it. Blaze glanced over his shoulder. If we're going by your generous standards, I don't think I have anything to worry about. The longboat made landfall, sand grinding its hull. The beach was forty feet deep, fringed by ground-hugging grass. Beyond that, tall trees grew in profusion, their trunks naked of leaves, giant fronds sprouting from their crowns. Dante hopped out of the boat and sprinted for the cover of the trees. As he ran, he pulled his knife, slicing a shallow cut into his skin. Nether surged forward. Beside him, Blaze drew both swords. Inside the tree line, they paused to assess what lay ahead. Two hundred yards up the sand, three men ran toward a wooden building, stilts elevating it a few feet above the grass. The men charged up its steps. While two of them ducked inside the front door, the third turned and fired a bow up the beach at five men carrying swords and piecemeal metal armor. The archer loosed a second round, staggering one of the pursuers, then ran inside the house and slammed the rickety door. The four remaining armored men continued toward the house. One carried a flaming brand. Blaze rushed forward. Dante swore under his breath and ran after him. As the man with the brand touched the flames to the door, Dante splayed out his hand. A bolt of shadows streaked through the sweltering air. It took the soldier in the side of the neck. His head snapped to the side. He crumpled, half-smothering the brand. The three survivors looked around in shock. One rolled the body aside and picked up the torch. Another reached into his pocket and withdrew a round, apple-sized black object. Dante was now less than two hundred feet away. With little cover besides the unadorned trunks, the soldiers spotted him, pointing and jabbering. White smoke curled from the door. As the brand-bearer scampered from the flames, Dante loosed another spike of nether. It arced toward the man like the idea of a bird.
An instant before it struck the foe in the chest, it burst into a shower of black sparks, winking away to nothing. Dante inhaled sharply. Stay close. They've got a sorcerer. Blaze grunted. As if bows weren't bad enough. Is it too much to ask people to fight fair? Dante shaped the nether and slung forward a third bolt. The soldiers were backing away from the burning building, hands held out before them. As the third bolt neared, one of them jerked a hand across his body. Darkness speared towards the bolt, deflecting it to the side. The three soldiers turned and ran. The door and the roof of the house crackled and burned. A rain barrel rested at the side of the building. Dante veered toward it. Give me a hand. No time! Blaze trumped up the steps, skipped to the side of the flames, and crashed his sword into the wall. Rather than hardwood, this was made of a thin, knobby-jointed plant like the bamboo that grew on the slopes of Galador. The sword crashed through several sticks and lodged fast. Blaze twisted it side to side, cracking a hole in the wall. He stepped aside for fresh air, waving at the smoke. As he did so, an arrow whisked through the air where he just stood. He ducked to the side, pressing his back to the building. Knock it off, I'm trying to help! The barrel was a quarter full of stagnant water. As Dante attempted to lift it, it sloshed forward, unbalancing itself. He danced away and the water hissed into the patchy grass. Above him, a window covering rolled up with a clatter of sticks. The archer stared him down from behind a knocked arrow. They're gone! Dante gestured broadly, making a shooing motion. You have to get out! The man licked his lips, nostrils flaring, the smoke wafting past the window. His green eyes stood out from his heavily tanned face. He withdrew into the darkness. Dismayed shouts rang out from further up the beach. Dante couldn't understand a word of it, but panic sounded the same in every language. He dashed away from the house. His sword slapped against his hip, but with no desire to draw any more attention than necessary, he left it sheathed. Blaze vaulted off the steps, stumbled and caught up. His face was drenched in sweat and streaked gray with ash. Wood splintered behind them. The archer burst through the wall of the house, coughing into the collar of his simple shirt. He glanced at the dead soldier on the burning porch, then at Dante. Stilted houses flashed by on either side. The soil was a purplish clay that clung to Dante's boots. After passing through irregular rows of houses, a plaza stretched before them. Once upon a time, it had been cobbled, but now it showed more gaps than stones. At its north end, a man with a long curved sword advanced on a line of spearmen. He wore a visored steel helmet with greaves and vambraces around his shins and forearms. He was outnumbered six to one, but as he moved forward, the spearman stepped back. Blaze jerked his chin at the helmeted man. Keep him off me. Before Dante could respond, Blaze bolted to the southeast side of the plaza, where a trio of swordsmen were shouting at a woman clutching a black box to her chest. With no desire to charge his target across open ground, Dante loped towards the houses at the edge of the plaza. The helmeted man gestured fluidly. 
Hammers of shadows struck the guts of the two nearest spearmen. They bent double, flying backward. One of the survivors cocked back his spear and hurled it toward the Nethermancer. The helmeted man skipped to the side, flicking his sword at the incoming spear and batting it aside. The man was already drawing more Nether. It flowed to him greedily, hungry to be used. Best to take him out in one stroke. Ideally, one he'd never see coming. Dante moved into the shadow of a weathered stone building. As the man lashed out with his sword, lopping off the head of an outthrust spear, Dante delved into the nether in the clay beneath the sorcerer's feet, softening it, preparing to swallow him in it, and then turn it to stone. The man halted. Without turning, he pushed both palms toward Dante. Dante yanked his mind from the clay, but before he could refocus his attention, a wave of nether hammered into the side of the building. With a deafening rumble, the upper story gave way. In his time, Dante had used the nether to solve any number of impossible problems. Not once, however, had he deployed it to stop a house from falling on him. There was no time to run. As the stones tumbled down around him, he softened the ground beneath him to muck and plunged beneath the surface. Mud flowed into his nose. He held his breath tight and returned the ground around him to solid earth. Blocks bashed the surface above him. Encased in hard clay, unable to move, he tried not to panic, forcing himself not to breathe. Within moments, the thuds and vibrations ceased. Once again, he softened the earth, then hardened it beneath his feet, pushing himself upward. With a slurp, the top of his head crested the surface. His eyes cleared. His crown bumped against unyielding stone. To prevent himself from inhaling, he blew muck out his nose, then twisted his head to the side, freeing his mouth. He stayed put, catching his breath, letting his body adjust to the idea that he was no longer buried alive. Shakily, he wiped viscous clay from his eyes and nose. Light glowed from small gaps in the rubble. He appeared to have half a building on top of him. He heard nothing from the plaza. At first, he imagined the stone was muffling the fighting, or perhaps that everyone had turned to gawk in wonder. But then he heard a bird caw from nearby. The skirmish had ended and he had a bad feeling about who remained in the plaza. Last he'd seen Blaze, the blonde man had been charging after the soldiers accosting the woman. If the helmeted man came for him, he'd be defenseless. Dante needed to sink back into the clay and swim out the other side of the house. Outside, footsteps crunched toward him. Dante went still. Dante! Blaze called. Come on, Dante, I know your head's hard enough to survive a few tons of rock. I'm here, Dante said. Sand gritted his mouth. He spat. Don't touch anything. It's not stable. What's going on out there? They ran off. Stone flowed away from Dante's head. Once he had room to straighten his neck, he went to work on the rocks in front of him, drawing them away as smoothly as water. Ran off, he said. Weren't they kicking our asses? 
Thoroughly. But they came here for something besides imprinting their sandals on our backsides. Once they got what they came for, they cleared out. A shaft of daylight appeared before him. What were they after? Not sure. Turns out I've never been here before. You all right in there? Dante finished the cramped tunnel and wormed his way out on his hands and knees. His shirt and trousers were caked with pounds of purple clay. Seeing him, Blaze burst out laughing. You look like you lost a fight with a vineyard. Did you see where he went? The sorcerer. Lost track of him. Dante stood, knocking grit and clay from his clothes. He'd just buried me alive, and you thought it was a good idea to take your eyes off him? It's surprisingly easy when you're running in the opposite direction. Now, that makes a lot more... He cut himself short. Across the plaza, a man stalked toward them bearing a stone-tipped spear. He wore knee-length trousers and what appeared to be a sleeveless undershirt. On one foot, he wore a complicated sandal, but he'd lost the other in the fighting. He barked something unintelligible. Do you speak Malish? Dante said in that tongue. Gaskin? The man repeated himself, pointing at Blazer's swords, then the ground. When they didn't move, he lifted his spear, drawing back his elbow. Blaze frowned. Listen, friend, these swords were just deployed in the protection of your people, considering that two men and two women jogged into the square, three armed with spears, one with a bow. One of the men called behind him. The reinforcements flanked the lone man, weapons trained on Blaze. I think, Dante said, you should put down your swords. The problem with the act of disarming yourself is it's typically followed by getting stabbed. More armed townsfolk filtered into the plaza, dividing themselves between the commotion around Dante and Blaze and in looking to the bodies scattering the grounds. If you don't put them down, there's going to be an incident, Dante said, and if there's an incident, we're going to have to kill all these people and flee to the boat. The spearman yelled again, a vein throbbing in his forehead. Blaze sighed and crouched, lowering his swords to the half-cobbled ground. The warrior leveled his spear and advanced toward the blades. To the right, a young woman ran into the square. She carried a curved sword and wore bone braces studded with steel. Her eyes locked on the two foreigners. Dante, is which of you? Dante blinked. Her malice was accented and slow, but wholly intelligible. That would be me. And who are you? The woman turned on the others, speaking rapidly, jabbing a finger at them. The language was foreign, but every now and then a familiar-sounding word leaped forth like a salmon from a mountain stream. Several of the warriors jogged off, faces sober with purpose. She turned back to Dante. Like everyone they'd seen on the island, her skin was light brown. Her eyes were the same hard blue as the sea. You came on a boat. This boat brought iron? Dante nodded. 
It turned about when it saw the fighting, but I'm sure you can flag it down. The woman spoke to the spearman who'd made Blaze lay down his arms. The man argued a moment, then held up a hand in surrender, glowered at the cobbles, and trotted off. You were just attacked, Blaze said. And your first concern is the shiny stuff our boat brought? The attackers, they have steel. Without it, we can't defend ourselves. She glanced at the slopes above the city. You will come with me. Where to? Dante said. The woman met his eyes. To see your father. Despite the heat, goosebumps stirred on his arms. Soon enough. First I will tend to your wounded. That is not why you are here. My father brought me here to heal his sickness, didn't he? If he's lasted for weeks already, I'm sure he'll survive another few hours. Let me see to those who might not make it that long. She touched her right elbow with her left hand. The gesture had the crispness of a salute. My name is Wyndon. To help, you will follow. Wyndon strode west from the plaza. The land sloped uphill, carrying them past more of the bambooish houses. Some of these were perched atop thigh-high foundations of black stone. Most of the streets were unpaved. The few that were cobbled were as gappy as the plaza. The sun was relentless, but a steady offshore wind dried most of Dante's sweat. Flakes of ash fluttered in the wind. Townsfolk jogged toward shore with rods braced over their shoulders, a bucket of water hanging from each end. They all glanced at Dante and Blaze, but no one said a word. The men and women both wore sleeveless shirts. The men wore short trousers, the women dressed in skirts, with one side hanging below the knee, the other side rising to mid-thigh. It's funny, Blaze said, staring after one of them. I've always heard people from climates like this stroll around with everything out to the wind, but these people are as modest as people who have to wear clothes. Try not to sound too disappointed about it. The road leveled out. Houses and shops surrounded a large square, the center of which held a large building of black and purple stone. Carved columns held up overhangs. At the structure's base, a row of weathered, somber statues gazed out to sea. As Dante watched, a man cocked a metal-headed mallet and slammed it into the side of a statue. With a painful crack, it split in half, tumbling to the clay. He's supposed to be doing that, is he? Blay said. They're stone, Wyndon said. We will need it to rebuild. She climbed the steps. Arched, doorless entries led to a cool foyer. Four men and two women lay on mats on the stone floor. A woman and a man tended to them, dressing their wounds with redolent poultices, the scent unfamiliar to Dante's nose. Wyndon spoke to the couple, who eyed Dante, then showed him to a man with a deep gut wound. The foul smell it produced promised he wouldn't live out the week. The cut on Dante's arm had scabbed, but he suffered a few scrapes from the destruction of the house. He used the blood from these to feed the nether, and sent the shadows to work. Within moments, 
the man's wound sealed, leaving nothing but a bright pink line. As Dante worked on the others, someone called Wyndon outside. By the time Dante finished treating the wounded, his hands were a little shaky, but after his work on the tunnel in Galador, he knew his limits very well. He hadn't reached them yet. Have you delayed seeing him for long enough? Blay said, or would you like to stop for a beer on the way? I was helping the injured. Good enough, or is your compassion all for show? I meant a celebratory beer for your good deeds. Wyndon walked back inside and rejoined them. Your captain, she says that they will go, that they will be back in two weeks, that you will meet them here at the bay then, or they will move on again. They're leaving. Blaze glanced toward the building's entrance, which was elevated enough to have a view all the way down to the bay. Was that part of the plan? Dante shrugged. We don't know how long we'll be here. We can't expect them to stay. He turned to Wyndon. We're ready to see him. Then we walk. She led them around the back of the building and into the jungle. There, people rested in a hot springs, easing their muscles after the exertion of the raid. Steam wafted from the waters. The bathers glanced at Wyndon, then rested their gazes on Dante and Blaze. The path bent to the right. Within a few feet, vines and shrubs grew so densely that someone had to hack them back, tunneling their way up the hill. Wyndon drew a long, square-headed knife, chopping up the stray twigs that had already begun to encroach on the trail. Since making landfall, Dante had been too busy killing strangers and stopping other strangers from dying to let Knack know they'd arrived. As they marched on, Dante touched his brooch to activate his loon. He felt nothing. Heard nothing. He tried a second time. Then a third. He switched the device to allow him to speak to his friend Morn instead, but this failed as well as did every other connection he attempted. Keeping one eye on the clay trail, he sank into the bone that comprised the loon's main functionality. The nether that fueled it was gone. My loon, he murmured to Blaze. It's gone dead. Blaze cocked his head. Gone dead? What, have you been using it too much? I haven't been using it at all. Well. You have to use it sometimes, otherwise it'll use itself while you're asleep. Dante stared, then scowled. You're disgusting. And this is serious. Is yours working? Blaze gazed into the distance, muttering to himself as he tested the loon. He shook his head. Nothing. Has this ever happened before? The only time they go dead is when you use them too long, without allowing their nether to replenish. It's possible we're too far away for the loons they're paired with. The distance could have depleted the nether, broken them. In other words, we're completely on our own here. Dante stared up at the woman's back. Looks like. They climbed on. 
The trail rolled up and down, but did more ascending than descending. Within twenty minutes, the air was notably cooler, though still as warm as an early summer day in Narashtavik, and far more humid. Dante sweated nonstop. Birds hooted and squawked. Insects buzzed everywhere. Dante was soon slapping himself whenever he felt the faintest tickle. Who were they? Blaze said. The people who attacked your town. Wyndon's jaw tightened. People of the High Tower. Torin, as we call them. Raiders from the South Coast. They had swords, chainmail. Where'd they get it? Raiding? Trade? Wouldn't know. Does this happen often? She drew a leathery canteen, eyeing him. It didn't used to. Now it does. Patches of the trail were staggered like high steps, requiring them to scrabble up the slick clay. After a few minutes, a rhythmic noise began ahead, booming, hissing, and repeating. It sounded like surf, but they were currently a few hundred feet high, and at least a mile inland. Ahead, the sun brightened. Wyndon came to a stop. Stepping up beside her, Dante squinted against the glare, then gasped, shuffling back from the edge of a cliff. Hundreds of feet below, waves sloosed through a gap, white-headed and roaring. Sixty feet away, the land resumed. The ravine was spanned by a web of ropes. Blaze laughed in disbelief. I'm to believe a sick old man crossed this. Of course he didn't, Wyndon said. Are we sick or old? No. Then we will cross. It's much faster. A set of steps had been hacked into the cliff's edge, leading down to a platform in the rock three feet wide by six across. On it, Wyndon reached into a wide sack spiked to the wall of the platform and grabbed a carved wooden hook. A thong dangled from a rope drilled through its handle. She tied the cord around her wrist, then secured the hook over the topmost rope and stepped onto the lowermost. As she walked forward, she used her free hand to grab the vertical ropes connecting the upper and lower ones. Dante observed her methods, then descended to the dugout platform, took a hook from the bag, and edged out onto the ropes. These swayed beneath his feet, but he adjusted quickly. Far below, the sea crashed and boomed. Dante didn't mind. The crossing took his mind off the destination. By the time he stepped foot on the solid ground of the other side, Blaze hadn't budged. Dante grinned, enjoying the rare opportunity to be the first to have braved something ludicrous. Come on, he called hands cupped to his mouth. Or would you rather wait alone in the jungle? As if to punctuate this, an animal roared from inland. Blaze grimaced, got out a hook, and crossed over. Safely on the other side, Blaze glowered at Wyndon. Tell me there's a reason you have him stashed in the Forbidden Heights. It helps the sickness. Not much further. 
They walked on. The woods were as thick as before the rope crossing, but where previously the land had rolled up and down, it now progressed in a series of rises and plateaus, as if it had been sculpted into steps by a giant. As Dante grew winded, they topped another plateau. The ground ahead was clear, a pocket of sunny grass within the shaded forest. A square stone building rested in the clearing. It was smaller than the one in town where he'd healed the people wounded in the raid, but given its remoteness, its presence felt greater, like a hidden temple. They crossed to it. A cool breeze stirred the grass. Wait. Wyndon climbed the three steps to the doorway and entered. You ready for this? Blaze said. I don't see how I could be. Dante wiped sweat from his brow. But I'm here. The woman walked back onto the stoop and nodded. Heart pounding, Dante walked up the steps. The front half was one large room. Though slits were cut in the walls to allow a cross breeze, it was as dim as twilight. After the glare of the tropical sun, he could hardly see a thing. At the far wall, a figure stirred from a pallet, gingerly propping himself upright. As Dante's eyes adjusted, he gazed on the face of his father. Chapter 5 The man was older than he remembered, yet younger than Dante had imagined. Late forties, wrinkled around the eyes and mouth, black hair streaked with grey, his beard the white of dirty snow. His face was drawn. A blanket wrapped his shoulders, obscuring his form. A wave of heat rolled over Dante's body. He had virtually no memories of the man left, and the few he did possess were vague. He supposed, at first, he'd been trying to forget. Better that than to dwell on them, to be constantly reminded that his father had sailed off to the Golden Islands, orphaning Dante to the care of a monk in a sleepy village. After a few years, however, Dante no longer had to make any effort to leave those memories behind. By the time he found his copy of The Cycle of Aron, and began his journey into the ways of the Nether, where he'd come from had become irrelevant. Like clearing your throat before you speak, or the memory of a dream fading as quickly as you woke up. The emotions Dante felt on seeing Larson again were as just as hard to catch on to. The man's eyes were blue, and though the rest of him was tired and weak, these still bore the shine of life. His voice was a whisper. You came. Dante drifted closer to the pallet. You caught me at a good time. I didn't think you would, and I wouldn't have blamed you. His gaze moved to Wyndon, then Blaze. Where are the others? Those who sought you. Only one of them made it to me. A young woman. She died after delivering your message. The sick man winced, eyes crinkling. Sorry to hear that. 
Dante stopped beside the low bed. I hope it was worth it. He felt for the shadows. After healing the people in the town, his hold on the nether was tenuous, but he wasn't exhausted yet. He should be able to stabilize the man, at least. If the work proved difficult, he could finish it tomorrow. Dante stretched out his hand. Do you know where your illness came from? Bad air? Old meat? Did you share clothes with someone who was sick? None of the above. The bearded man chuckled, then coughed, his sun-tanned face paling. Went somewhere I wasn't supposed to, like I always do. What do you mean? The stained cliffs, Wyndon said. They're cursed. And the act of visiting them causes you to fall ill. That's the law. Dante maintained a neutral expression. Know what? It isn't important. Neither are your symptoms. All that matters is that something is wrong, and I will make it right. He closed his eyes and followed the shadows into the man's body. Treating him in this way, it was easy to pretend that the man before him was simply one more in the long line of people Dante had mended. Not to suggest that he was any kind of saint. He had hurt as many as he'd healed. Putting people back together was a type of penance, a way to remind himself that, although effective at it, the nether wasn't made to destroy. It obeyed its user's wishes, for good or for ill. He had been causing and healing injuries for a decade. Finding the wrongness inside Larson was no more difficult than lacing up his boots. It existed in spots across his organs and limbs, dark and opaque. These spots looked and felt like nether, but when Dante tried to move them, they refused to budge. And when he sent the nether to cleanse them out, he could find no purchase. Frowning, he withdrew, observed the spots from afar, and tried again. Again, he couldn't do so much as make them wobble. They were as slippery as a wet fish, as intangible as sophistry. He had seen these stains before, inside Riddy, the woman who'd been netherburned. He'd taken them as an odd symptom of the burns, However, attempting to treat the netherburn with more nether actively made the condition worse. In Larson's case, Dante was unable to do anything at all, for good or for ill. After ten minutes of mental strain, his grasp on the shadows was as clumsy as a dead limb. He stepped back from the pallet, wiping sweat from his brow. It's no use. I can't help him. He turned and walked out of the doorway into the blinding afternoon sun. Speech drifted from the house. Footsteps rustled. Blaze joined him in the grass. Uh, Blaze said. So that's it? I can't help him. It's almost like he's netherburned. Whatever's wrong with him, the shadows can't touch it. I can't believe we came all this way. But he's not netherburned, is he? I don't think so. It's odd, though. Riddy had similar symptoms. I assumed the netherburn was what killed her, but maybe it was masking something even deadlier. 
If this is that unfamiliar to you, maybe you're missing something. You can't give up this fast. Dante untucked his shirt, flapping its hem to dry his sweat. I tried everything I know. Whatever it is, it's beyond me. How odd. Blaze folded his arms. I don't think you've ever admitted something's beyond your power. Why are you so quick to give up on this? Dante was spared having to respond by Wyndon, who emerged into the clearing, the steady wind ruffling her brown hair. Around them, bugs were singing, but her face had gone as stolid as a tombstone. You can't help him. Dante shook his head. I can try again tomorrow, after I've rested, but I'm afraid it won't do any good. Her eyes dimmed. This outcome will be disappointing to many. Why? Who is he to you? The people he sent to Gask, why did they give up their lives for his? Years ago, when he first came here, he brought the trade back, too. Iron tools and steel blades. For that, he was made part of the family of Kandak. Later, he helped drive off the Torin, too. He was good to us. Wyndon tugged the bracer up her left forearm. But he was no good to you. Dante snorted. Are you always this blunt? Do you find it better to hide from truths? The truth is, he was neither good nor bad to me. He couldn't be either, because he wasn't there. So guess why I came here? To learn why he left. He smiled ruefully. Wrong. I came here to make him well, to show him what I had become without him, and to rub it in his nose. Wyndon laughed. But you couldn't. Good Hade. Hade? One of our words. It is like... She gestured as if reeling in string. When mean feelings are thwarted, you should be happy for the chance to be corrected by your failure, but it only makes you feel worse. Dante creased his brow. That's a big concept for a small word. Regret, it has many forms. It's important to know the differences. Wyndon nodded back at the black building. We stay here tonight, and you will try again in the morning. Dante had little desire to stay. He had no interest in the explanations or apologies he expected Larson to start making, especially if it became clear Dante couldn't help him, and he was on his deathbed. But between the fighting, the hiking, and the expenditure of all the nether he could safely command, he was exhausted. Thankfully, Larson was, too, and slept through the afternoon. Wyndon passed the remainder of the day beneath a thatched shelter in the trees, grinding roots on a stone table. Dante wandered around the woods, examining the insects. There were your typical ants and spiders and such, but most of the species were new to him. Some of the creatures were very slightly new. A periwen beetle that was iridescent blue rather than matte black. But others had no analogue to anything he'd seen such as the thumb-sized red insect that walked on six tiny snapping claws. Blaze had a rare bout of good sense and left him alone. The sun set, 
alighting the clouds with red, pink, and orange. Back of the house, Wyndon fed them a mealy paste. It was spiced with a substance that tasted like the distilled sweetness of fruits, but an underlying brackishness permeated the mush. As soon as Dante finished, he went to sleep on a pallet in the back room. He slept fitfully, woken twice by Blaze and Wyndon murmuring in the adjoining room, probably discussing whether he could heal Larson. He woke with the dawn. Wyndon helped Larson outside to tend to the obligations of nature. After a meal of the leftover paste, Dante returned to the main room and kneeled beside the ailing man's bed. Taking another go at me, Larson rasped. Dante nodded. After the night's sleep, the shadows flowed without resistance. He attacked the black stains inside the man from every angle he could think of. Lost in the work, he gave no thought to the individual he happened to be working on. By mid-morning, with his command slipping, Dante let out a long breath, stood and walked to the front stoop to sit in the shade. Wyndon followed him. You found nothing. I tried everything. Whatever's afflicting him, the nether's no use. What exactly does your law say about how the disease is contracted? That it comes through visiting the stained cliffs. The ground there, it's tainted. When storms stir it, you can get sick. Is it contagious? She looked down, thinking. Sometimes it takes people who haven't been near the cliffs, but I think that's when winds and rain flushes the tainted ground into the air or streams. I've never seen anyone tending to the sick fall ill as well. And do you know of any potential cures? Even anything to treat the symptoms? There is another option. Wyndon stared down the mountain slopes to where the sky met the sea. A plant. It is known to sometimes reverse the wasting sickness. Dante gawked at her. Let me get this straight. There is a cure. Right here on the island. But instead of going and getting it yourselves, you thought it was a better idea to send a team of people on a journey over two thousand miles a journey that cost them their lives to fetch me. And as it turns out, I'm completely useless. The cure? It kills the one who takes it as often as it works. Also, getting to it is very dangerous. Can cost more lives than it saves. Wyndon met his stare. As for the idea to find you, it wasn't mine. It was his. Make of this what you will. No need. I'll ask him myself. He went back inside. On the pallet, Larson's eyes were closed, but as Dante approached, he blinked them open, smiling sadly. It didn't work, did it? I can't help you. The older man nodded, sinking back to his blankets. Thanks for trying. It was a big ask. Dante stood over him. Do you have anything to say to me? Could I say anything that mattered? I doubted. I don't expect your forgiveness, Larson said. I just wanted to see you one last time, 
selfish to the end. I wonder how far the apple has fallen. I'm here, aren't I? Larson grimaced, working his way up to his elbows. I left you with a friend, someone I trusted. Didn't mean to stay gone, just to fill my pockets with enough silver to see you never went hungry. But life takes its own turns. When I got here, I found I couldn't leave. Oh, I've heard. Wyndon says you're a man of high influence on this island. I'm sure you found it very difficult to give up the first prestige you'd ever found in life. You asking why I left you, only to help them instead? I wonder why I should care. You shouldn't. I made my choice to help these people fight for what was theirs. I knew what it would cost me. Dante ran a hand over his stubble. What was happening here that these people couldn't handle themselves? The Tauran. Twenty years ago, they were on the verge of enslaving the entire island. Nasty people. They leave their newborns on the slopes for three days to see if they're strong enough to deserve life. Imagine how they treat their enemies. Tired out by so much talk, Larson rested his head on his blankets. I convinced the captain of our ship to reopen trade. We brought these people the steel to fight back, forced the Torren all the way back to their tower. But they're here again. Did they resume their attacks once you grew sick? His father shook his head. The raid started up again two years ago. I discovered our old alliances had decayed too far. I might have been able to revive them, but the sickness stole my strength away, and the Torin grows stronger by the day. Dante nodded. When the man said nothing more, he walked outside. Blaze stood outside the entrance. How much did you hear? Dante said. None. And your insinuation is shocking. I can't help him. But Wyndon says there's something that might help. A plant. Sounds like it will involve travel and personal risk. Hmm. Hmm, what? Hmm, as in, I have no opinion what you should do, so consider this grunt my acknowledgement that I was listening. Dante raised a brow. You're not going to tell me exactly what I should do? I thought that was the basis of our entire friendship. You came here, Blaze said. That was the goal. Without you spouting moral imperatives at my every decision, I'm like a ship without a rudder. He pinched the bridge of his nose. Thirteen days until the Sword of the South carries us away. I suppose we might as well try to do some good. He glanced back at the temple. Besides, I have no intention of sticking around here with him. Wyndon was nowhere in sight, but a rapping noise pinpointed her spot in the jungle. Dante found her smashing roots with an iron-banded stick. This plant of yours, he said. Let's go find it. She wiped her hands on a rag, expression the brightest it had been all day. To town. We will need supplies. She jogged to the temple, 
returning a minute later and heading down the pathway toward the bay. Blaze glanced back up the trail. Who looks after him when you're not here? There are others in Kandak. The town. One will go if asked. Who is he to you, anyway? Dante said. An unreadable emotion crossed her face and swiftly disappeared. When I was very young, he saved my life. From what? Blaze said. The raiders? Yes. She didn't seem inclined to explain further. Dante walked into a cobweb and batted at his own face. This plant of yours, what makes it so treacherous to get? It only grows near the Torrens Tower. To get there, we will need to cross the Dreaming Peaks. We will have to bring shells for the dreamers. Naturally, Blaze muttered. Her smile was faint, but compared to her normal flintiness, it gleamed like the seas below. Your land, does it make sense to outsiders? Certainly, Dante said, if only because people have heard of it beforehand. There's virtually nothing known in Malin about the plagued islands, but long ago, trade between them wasn't uncommon. What changed? Her smile vanished. Malin got greedy. That would be historically consistent. Do you know of the Swappers? The islets where you trade goods? That was always how we made our deals. Hundreds of years ago, after decades of trading with them, Malish merchants asked to see our island for themselves. We let them in. We showed them. They left. When they came back, it was with a great fleet. They were mapping the place, Blaze said, checking out what was worth stealing. Winden swung her heavy-bladed knife through a thorny twig that had grown across the trail in the last day. And where our defenses lay? They arrived, invaded, attacked us with steel. Their treachery, it wasn't enough. We burned their ships, trapped them on our shores. The fighting, this took months. At the end, every last Malish man was killed. After, they called the islands plagued, and trade came to an end. We should compare notes. One time they tried to hang me. Dante stepped over an oily puddle. Considering the bad blood, you speak Malish very well. That's your father's work. He came from Malin. He brought others with him, and he knew there would be more. He thought teaching us their language would make them respect us. Did it work? She thought. No, but it has made it easier to see through their lies. At the rope bridge, Blaze crossed without complaint. Other than a few mud holes and slick spots, the remainder of the descent was no trouble, and they soon overlooked Kandak. At first, Dante thought the fires were still burning, but this turned out to be nothing more than the steam of the hot springs right outside town. From above, he saw several black stone structures, all but reclaimed by the jungle, hidden within the crush of foliage. Within the city proper, others were placed with no rhyme or reason. 
even though they were obviously expensive and should have been clustered in wealthy neighborhoods or centers of prayer or business. In fact, something about Kandak reminded him of the city of Narashtavik, prior to its renaissance. A shadow of itself, a monument to an age of glory long gone. As they neared the settlement, two men with spears materialized from the brush. Recognizing Wyndon, they relaxed, settling their spears on their shoulders and launching into what proved to be a lengthy conversation. This is driving me crazy, Blaze said. I swear, I recognize some of those words. Malish, right? From the traders. Dante flicked a fly off his forearm. Bet that would make it much easier to learn. Want to try? Gods, no. Learning Gaskin was torture enough. Besides, if I learned to speak Torish, then you'd expect me to learn how to write it. The sentries padded off on foot. Dante realized he hadn't seen a single horse or beast of burden since coming to the island. Wyndon continued forward, looking preoccupied. We have a problem. We don't have enough shells. Then I have some very good news, Blaze said. It turns out you live on an ocean. Chardon shells. The raiders, that's what they came for. We'll need them to pass through the Dreaming Peaks. Dante cocked his head. These are currency. To dream, they eat a certain plant. The plant is poison. The antidote is the Chardon. And these are difficult to obtain. Very. Here's an idea, Blay said. We get a boat, then we use this ocean of yours to sail around the peaks to wherever the hell the plant we need grows. Wyndon favored him with a sour look. The current would destroy us, and it's too strong to paddle back against. Even if the boats made it down, we'd have to travel overland to return. So how do we get these Chardon of yours? This matter, leave it to me. In Kandak, men drew wagons down the streets, the beds heavy with lengths of the knobby, bamboo-like wood. Stone-headed hammers clonked against wood. Women were bashing down burned timbers from houses damaged in the raid, while men loaded the rubble into wheelbarrows and carted it away. The air smelled like baked shellfish, roasted fruit, and the root paste they'd eaten at the temple. On their way to the shore, they passed several people carrying baskets of food to those cleaning up the mess. Soft waves rolled up the sand. The bay was even busier than the cleanup. While men hauled in nets of fish, clams, and mussels, women sanded down wide-bodied canoes. A crew of men struggled with an iron anchor, wrestling it into a waiting canoe that looked far too small to need such a weight. Presumably it was to stand against the currents. Nearby, a thatched roof was suspended between four tall posts, providing shade for sailors and fishers who needed a break. Wyndon brought them beneath it. Here, stay. She walked down the sand without another word. Blaze watched her go. She's lucky I'm housebroken.
They plunked down on a bench of red hardwood. The townsfolk glanced at them, then went back to their work. A man scraping the bones of some large mammal looked their way repeatedly. Like many of the men, his head was shaved. He was in his mid-twenties, and he had a mean scar on his throat. After some vigorous carving and sanding, he rinsed his hands in the surf, then padded into the shade of the thatch. Marlon? His accent was much thicker than Wyndon's. Sort of, Belay said. The man frowned. Sort of? By birth, Dante said. Not by choice. You're here. Why? Dante glanced down the shore, but there was no sign of Wyndon. We're going on a journey. We need Chardon. The man's face brightened. Chardon? I have Chardon. Larson Galland, Blaze said. Do you know him? Yes, a great man. Yeah, but I hear his son is a lackwit, unable to lace his own boots. Anyway, we're here to help, Mr. Galland. Any Chardon you can spare us would be of great assistance. The man shook his head. No gift. We'll trade. He tapped the scabbard on Blaze's right hip. Steel? Blaze drew the straight-bladed sword, turning it side to side. This was my father's. I wouldn't trade it for all the Chardon in the sea. Ah. He pointed at Dante's sheath. Yours? Also from your father? Blaze burst out laughing. Dante couldn't help smiling. My father's still asking favors of me, but I can't trade my sword either. I find myself needing it too often. So the swords are a no, Blaze said. Fortunately, I brought some travel-sized models as well. He tugged up the leg of his trouser and produced a knife with a nine-inch blade. He held it out to the young man. How many Chardon is this worth to you? The man took the blade and flicked its edge. After some fiddling and prodding, he held the knife to his ear, gazing out to sea. Its song is... He waggled his hand side to side. For this, two Chardon. Blaze gave Dante a look, which Dante quickly sorted from the catalogue of Blaze looks. This one was skeptical, but not overly so, with a softness to the eyes indicating mild enthusiasm and a crook of the mouth showing self-aware amusement. If Dante was interpreting it correctly, Blaze thought the man was trying to take advantage of them, but not in a spectacularly outrageous way. Furthermore, Blaze seemed to be indicating that even if they did get screwed, it wouldn't be a big deal, presumably because it was only a knife. Of course, they could have had this exchange in Gaskin, and their ostensible trade partner would have been none the wiser, but that would have made them look shifty. Two, Blaze said, I can't part with this knife for less than four. Not four. This knife, it doesn't sing. It... The man gestured, searching for a word, then he began to hum. It doesn't hum. It sings, like a soprano in the Odellion of Bristol. Four.
He sighed through his nose. Three, no more. Blaze crossed his arms, brows bent, then nodded. I can't believe I'm agreeing to this robbery. Fine, three it is. The man hesitated, then nodded. Get Chardon. Wait. He loped off. Dante watched him go. We're sure that was a good deal. He agreed, so probably not. But it's only a knife. And you probably have nineteen more of them on the left side of your body alone. Blaze shifted on the bench. Let's just say you wouldn't want to hug me. Within two minutes, the man with the scarred throat returned bearing a small sack made of pale leather. He loosened the drawstring and withdrew a black shell. It spiraled tightly, small spikes sticking from its curls. Chardon, the man said. Very good. Blaze took it and made a show of inspecting it, hefting it in his palm, then stepping into the sun and holding it up to the light. Bit small, don't you think? No, very good. He showed them the other two. They smelled very faintly of old rot. They seemed to be intact. Dante took one down to the water, approached a woman tending a net, and after a brief gesture-filled talk, confirmed it was a Chardon. He returned to Blaze and the scarred man, and they exchanged goods. The man smiled, bowed, and walked off, jabbing his new knife at the air. He'd hardly been gone five minutes when a young woman joined them in the shade. Sun-blonde strands streaked her light brown hair, which was braided in tight plaits and tied behind her head. Chardon, she said. Blaze rose with a smile. We're happy to trade. What have you got and what would you like? Over the course of a lengthy haggling session, she convinced Dante to part with his belt, which had a large silver buckle and steel studs in exchange for two shells. The bartering drew a small crowd, several of whom were also looking to swap. By the time Wyndon walked up the sand toward them, they'd collected thirteen Shadden. She eyeballed the lingering townsfolk. What is going on here? We're making your life easier. Blaze lifted the two pale sacks of Shadden, jingling them. Thirteen shells. You got Shadden? She grabbed one of the sacks and plucked out a shell. She lifted it and stared into its hollow mouth. How? This isn't our first time in foreign lands. We know how to get around. You fools. These shells, they're worthless. But they're Shadden, Dante said. I made sure of it. She tossed the shell at his chest. These are Shadden shells. The dreamers, they need the meat. Blazer's mouth fell open. I don't mean to alarm you, but it appears you live amongst a society of thieves. Dante glared at the townsfolk, who'd begun retreating rapidly. We traded for these. You have to get our goods back. I traded my belt, and my third favorite knife.
This is not possible, Wyndon said. But they cheated us, Dante said. Look, they're right over there. She shook her head sharply. This is not cheating. This is Tonin. The sweet lie. The sweet lie, Blaze said. The lie that tastes better than truth. You swallowed it. So you are to blame for what comes after. Well, that's rude. No wonder no one likes to come visit you all. In your land, you always tell the truth? Sure. Except to our magistrates, tax collectors, and in-laws. But when it comes to trading, particularly with people who are trying to help us, there's a certain expectation of not skinning each other alive. The truth is whatever tastes best, she said. If you prefer a lie, it would be cruel to give you something bitter. This is how it is done. Dante muttered a curse. You might have told us that. I told you to wait, not to trade. At the very least, you'd have to admit it's confusing to refer to Shadden as shells when it's what's inside of the shells that matters. Everyone knows what is meant by this. She sighed in annoyance. I have more left to do. Try not to get skinned again. She stalked away. Dante gave Blaze a look. Like this is my fault? Blaze dropped back to the bench. You are so eager to deal, I'm surprised you didn't trade them one of your balls. I think they got those anyway. Blaze gazed out at the people hauling nets, launching boats, and slicing up mussels. They may be filthy, thieving liars, but they sure are hard workers. Don't observe their honest labor directly. Your mind will be overcome by its strangeness. The waves washed the shore. A breeze blew past them, ruffling the ragged leaves of the roof. You know, I'd like to be angry about this. But it's just too damn nice out. It was close to an hour before Wyndon returned. She bore two bags on her shoulders and an impatient look on her face. We leave. Blaze stood, planting his hands on the small of his back and stretching backwards. You'll be happy to know we were perfect guard dogs in your absence. I may have even bit a kid. You are terrible at this. The essence of a good lie is that other people want to believe it. As she made to go... An older man approached her and spoke briefly. Wyndon looked annoyed, but that seemed to be her resting state. The man scampered down to the shore, rummaged through a bag, and returned with a bone flute. He put it to his mouth, eyes downcast, and began to play. The tune was mournful, yearning. Wyndon nodded toward the road they'd taken in and walked away from the beach. As Dante fell in behind her, the flautist was joined by a second, then a third. What are they doing? Blaze whispered. The song of going, Wyndon said. It is always played before a journey. So, if you die, the gods will know you were loved. Well, that's nice. It's Tonin, 
another lie. She didn't slow down until they'd hiked out of town. The canopy enfolded the path, dousing them in welcomed shade. After a few hundred yards, she took a fork in the trail, heading west of the slopes where Dante's father lay in the temple. He found he felt very little for the man. It had simply been too long. Dante had assumed he'd died long ago. Perhaps that had been Tonin, a sweet lie, better to believe than the unknown truth. But it meant Dante had also made his peace long ago. And while he believed Larson had wanted in part to see Dante one last time before dying, Dante thought his father had primarily summoned him to the island because he believed Dante was the only one capable of curing him of his sickness. Even so, Dante was happy enough to try to find the plant that might help him. Not for Larson's sake, but for that of the people in Kandak. They deserved the chance to live free of the Torin raiders. Since learning to use the nether, Dante had hurt countless people with it, but he'd also used it to free far, far more of them. If he could mend whatever was wrong with Larson, and allow him to help his adoptive people to fight back, then Dante would leave the island with no regrets. They spoke little. The trail degraded quickly, with some portions so washed out and steep they had to detour through the shrubs. It was so warm that Dante had been toying with the idea of cutting his trousers off at the knee, but after struggling through a patch of oozing orange thorns, he was glad he'd left his clothes intact. After one such detour, they stopped on the path to drink and catch their breath. Dante got a rag from his pack and wiped off the worst of his sweat. How far is the march to the dreamers? Three days, Wyndon said, if we can keep up this pace. And from there, two days more. Don't worry, we'll be back before your boat. You said the trip's dangerous, Blaze said. Anything we should watch out for? She tucked her hair behind her ear. Snakes, spiders, floods, quicksand, cotters, the tauren, poisonous thorns. I thought you were supposed to lie to me in situations like this. Maybe it would be faster to list the things that won't try to kill us. Wyndon considered this. Me. She moved on. Within minutes, the ground leveled out. Worn black stones jutted from the ground. Most were all but hidden in ivy, moss, and brambles, but the visible portions were straight, squared off. The walls of buildings. The path led through the middle of the ruins, but Wyndon diverted around them into the jungle. What was this place? Dante said. Destroyed by the malice during the old wars. Wyndon made a sweeping gesture above her brow. It should be left in peace. Even the birds seemed to agree, going quiet as the three of them skirted around what remained of the city. It took ten minutes to bypass it. A minute after they'd gone by the last building, the ruins faded behind them, lost to the jungle. These plants of yours, Blaze said, what do they look like? 
Wyndon paused to pluck burrs from the straps of her sandals. We won't see them here. Yes, and if you won't tell me what to look for, I won't notice them even if they start growing out of my nose. Mulberry. A red flower, small with two petals like the ears of a rabbit, grows in the shade of the waterfalls on the southeast side of the island. Wonderful. Blaze stooped low, examining the foliage along the crooked trail through the clay. So all we need to do is find a flower shaped like a foxhound. Then it can do the hunting for us. Late that afternoon, rain pattered the leaves of the canopy. Within a minute, the sprinkle transformed into a deluge. Dante strung a top between the branches and crouched beneath it. The storm blew itself out within twenty minutes, but it left the ground sticky and sodden. Dante's boots soaked through. He doubted they'd make three more miles before the overcast skies darkened toward night. At day's end, they made camp beneath a tree that was twice as wide as it was tall. Its leaves grew in such greedy profusion that the ground around its trunk was almost dry. They ate another meal of root paste. With the hour no later than seven o'clock, Wyndon dug into a bag, removing several finger-shaped bulbs covered in rough skin. With a series of quick flicks, she peeled the skin away, then used her flint to light two bulbs. They burned with a soft, steady light and the smell of camphor. With the candle fruit providing light, they spent two hours gathering and preparing sand root, then slept. The rain returned in the night. In the morning, the air was damp and cool, warming within minutes from the rising sun. As Dante walked downhill from camp, a small golden-furred creature flung itself through the branches. Its limbs were long and loopy, and its eyes bulged like melons. Rather than paws, it had hands, on its back legs as well as its front. As it dangled from a branch by its tail, shelling a nut with its front teeth, Dante finally understood how far away he was from everything he knew. Throughout the morning, the terrain continued to rise until streams of mist rolled through the trees, condensing and falling like fat, inconstant raindrops. Late that morning, they ascended from the mist and found themselves at the edge of a cliff, overlooking a shallow, tree-choked valley miles and miles long. Scores of rocky plateaus jutted up from the sea of vegetation. Wyndon moved to a squat tree. Two ropes, one fat and one thin, stretched from the cliffs to the branches of a tree a hundred yards away. Wyndon pulled in the lighter rope, hand over hand. A length of wood emerged from the branches of the lower tree, straps dangling from its underside. Beyond the connecting tree, another length of rope carried on for hundreds of feet, forming the second link in a chain that appeared to span the entire valley. Oh, no, Lay said. This is going to be even worse than the bridge, isn't it? The Broken Valley. Wyndon said, full of cliffs, falls, ravines, 
You can spend days hacking your way across its floor, or you can spend an hour soaring over its roof. Is there an option to nap in its bed? Sure, when you land after the rope breaks. She reeled in the length of wood, which looked distressingly like handlebars, and tied a sturdy strap around her left elbow and wrist. Gripping the handles in each hand, she moved to the edge of the cliff and stepped off. She whisked along the rope, hair streaming behind her. Dante laughed out loud. Blaze looked pale. After her swift initial descent, the rope line leveled out and she slowed, coasting. She made landfall on a wooden platform, brushed herself off, then hauled on the rope, returning the handlebar to the upper cliff. From the trees at the edge of the drop, a family of the small golden creatures emerged, oversized eyes blinking, dangling from the branches by their tails and hands. Great, Blaze muttered, and now we have an audience. What's the big deal? Dante said. Normally you collect death-defying experiences like a child collects bugs. Then heights are the equivalent of those bugs who eat shit. The handlebars arrived, rocking side to side. Blaze grabbed for them and tied the strap around his left arm, using the most secure knot he'd ever learned at sea. He shuffled up to the cliff's edge, scowling so hard it looked like his face might break free of its moorings with a rubbery clap. If I die, I want you to bag up whatever's left of me and bring it to Min. I know she hasn't had enough of me yet. Would you like me to reanimate you, too? Blaze closed his eyes and hopped into the void. The rope tensed under his weight. He swooshed along it, slowing as it grew horizontal. At the platform, Wyndon steadied his landing. He unstrapped and heaved on the rope, returning the handlebars to Dante. Dante tied the strap around his arm, took a deep breath, and let himself fall from the cliff. His stomach surged into his throat. His eyes watered. The wind rushed past him so fast he couldn't breathe. But it streaked through his hair, too, and his heart beat like the hooves of a galloping deer. Too soon he found his feet skidding across the platform. Fortunately, for his inner thrill-seeker, this was only one leg in a trip of dozens. It wasn't until his fourth ride that he found the poise to take proper stock of his surroundings. The trees supporting the ropes grew from high islands of rock separated from each other by channels of empty space. These channels ran at least fifty feet deep. Within their heavy shade, Dante glimpsed green vines trickling streams, and jagged rocks. The trees bearing the ropes added another twenty to fifty feet of distance to the bottom. They advanced, platform by platform. Between having to make three individual crossings per plateau, including the time spent returning the handlebars and strapping in, their overall progress was somewhere around walking speed. Even so, this was infinitely faster than trying to navigate the channels. Wyndon crossed to the next platform. Blaze followed, then hauled on the rope, returning the handlebars to Dante. Dante tied himself to them and swung off the little island of rock. 
With a bow-like twang, the rope snapped. Dante's guts lurched as he plunged downward. Beneath him, branches rose to meet him, like a field of spears. Chapter 6 He sliced downward through the warm air. Years ago, chasing arcane secrets around the tree city of Kohl, he'd fallen from a much higher elevation than this. He'd saved himself by softening the earth and plunging into it like water. Here, though, he plummeted toward dozens of branches. He was about to be gored and thrashed. His only hope rested in staying lucid enough during the aftermath to heal himself before he bled to death. Something hissed through the air. A vine appeared from nowhere, stringing across his upper chest. He jolted, slowing. The vine snapped, and he resumed his fall. He hadn't traveled five more feet before he was arrested again, this time by three vines, which tangled around his shoulders and waist. Dante dangled there a moment, reassuring himself this wasn't some perverse trick, then grabbed hold of the vines, tied one around the rope he'd used to replace his stolen belt, and climbed up the others to the thick branch they were hanging from. Over on the platform, Blaze gaped. Wyndon leaned against the trunk of the tree, bracing herself as if overcome by Dante's near death. Dante scooted along the branch toward the trunk, then climbed down to the ground. Blaze rushed over to him, grabbing his shoulders. Those vines came to you like you owed them money. How did you do that? I didn't do anything. Dante nodded at Wyndon. She did. Blaze cocked his head. Wyndon, and I thought you were only here for your sunny disposition. She moved toward the edge of the rock and stared at the next platform two hundred feet away. The rope, it's broken. We have to figure out how to cross. That won't be a problem, Dante said. You know what is, though? You being able to do something I've never even heard of before, then trying to act like nothing happened. I'm not responsible for your ignorance. How do we get down? My plan was to use my awe-inspiring powers. But that would be pretty dumb of me if you're capable of growing a vine between this tree and the next one. She thrust her jaw forward. Everything that you can do, have you told me of it? High Priest Galand? I'm starting to think I should. We're out here in the wild. Our survival might depend on knowing what we're all capable of doing. So I'll start. I'm a skilled nethermancer. I can harm and heal, create light and darkness. I can reshape dirt and rock. I can see through the eyes of the dead. And if we ever find ourselves really, really bored, I can make a troop of dead rats stand up and dance. Blaze lifted his hand. I can disappear. Walk through stone walls, too. Impressive, I know. But I must warn you, I'm already married. I am a harvester, Wyndon said. And you have just seen what I can do. Grow things? Then why not start with that mulberry flower after? I can only grow what is already there. She gestured toward the next island.
I can't simply string a vine between here and there. I wouldn't trust it to hold us. But we can use one to climb down, and another to come up. She tipped back her head. A few feet above their heads, a vine detached from the high branches, nosing forward like a snake. It lowered itself to the ground and slithered over the side of the cliff. Dante kneeled on the rocky edge and watched the vine disappear into the shrubs clinging to the almost vertical slopes. Are there many of you? Very few. So my people will appreciate it if you would not get me killed. Blaze nodded. Got a look on his face and burst into laughter. Hang on a second. I think she just said something funny. Once she'd extended the vine to the bottom of the defile, Wyndon led the way down. The face of the rock wasn't completely vertical, and though it would have been highly dangerous to descend without their makeshift rope, there were enough holes for her to pick her way down. Have you ever heard of anything like that? Blay said. These harvesters? Dante shook his head. Never. But it makes a certain amount of sense. The nether resides in all living things. What she's doing isn't so different from when I make a body regrow from its wounds. Oh, boy. You're going to spend the rest of the trip trying to figure this out, aren't you? The thought had crossed my mind. Wyndon called from below. Dante made his way down. The bottom of the ravine was so densely filled with shrubs, thorns, and dead branches that he gave up any thoughts of trying to cross the entire valley from below. At the next island, Wyndon crawled another vine up to its top. They ascended to its surface, spent a very long time inspecting the rope there, and continued on their way. By early afternoon, they stood on the far side of the valley, having suffered no further mishaps. More heights rose ahead. That meant climbing, but after his experience with the rope, Dante was happy with any method of travel that kept his feet in contact with the ground. What if you had died in the fall? Wyndon said as they hiked up what appeared to be a game trail. What would have happened to you? I imagine, Dante said, I would have gotten very bloated, and very discolored, and then been devoured by insects until I was nothing but bones and hair. Not your body, your spirit, your god, Aron. He is a god of death. He must be hungry for your soul. He shook his head vehemently. That's nothing but malish propaganda, an attempt to discredit him. We all die in time. Why would Aron be in some special hurry? Do not get him started on this, Blay said. Not unless you want a nine-hour sermon and all the ways Malin has distorted the holy message of the guy who gave us pestilence, famine, and beheadings. I don't give sermons, and it's not about clearing Aron's reputation. It's about letting people worship as they please, without fear of getting strung up for it. This hike, Wyndon said. It's long, and it's boring, so I don't care if it takes nine hours to explain. I want to know where Aron sends you when you die. Dante glanced up at the sky. It was hard to see through the leaves, but it was dimming as gray clouds mounted against the peaks ahead.
A hill under the stars, he said, where you join him in the hereafter. This is a reward? What about those who did wrong? Bad people? They go there too. That can't be. This must be a trick, a lie. Dante ran his forearm across his brow, which had grown grimy during the tree crossings. To accomplish what? To deal justice to those who deserve it. Not having visited the place, I couldn't say. But if he's looking to trick us, you'd think he could come up with something more enticing than a hill beneath the stars. I died once, Blaze said. It was nice. Scenic. No fancy hills or stars, though. Dante swatted at a fly. Is that what happens when you die, Wyndon? You're brought forth to be judged? She nodded, glancing down as a small pink lizard scampered off a rock and into the brush. Brought to Cavill to tell the story of your life. But there is a problem. Living can only be done by hurting others. So all are guilty. Blaze made a face. Some kind of universal exemption seems in order, then. There is a loophole. Cavill lives in his world, not ours. How is he to know what's true about our lives and what isn't? When you face him, you tell him, Tonin, the sweet lie, that you are not so bad, that you deserve mercy. If the lie is convincing enough, he will spare you, send you to sail through the world sea. And what happens if you're judged to be a jerk? Then you are chained to the rock, where your ancestors are gathered to watch your shame as you are torn apart by the birds and the crabs for one hundred and eighty years. Then you are made whole again to witness the tearing apart of your descendants. That sounds extreme. This is why we practice tonin all our lives. To match the mood in the air, rain began to sprinkle the canopy. Dante lowered his head and tried to ignore the percussive droplets on his crown. Your language. Will you teach it to me? Why? Wyndon said. You leave here in twelve days. Which means that for the next twelve days you're our only way to communicate with people who appear to be professional liars. If we're separated or you get hurt, we could find ourselves in deep trouble. Our language is for ourselves. Outsiders have no claim to it. She was quiet for a moment. Why are you here? You know that, to save my father. You barely saw him. You ask no questions about him. It's obvious you care nothing for him. You're right. I came here because I would have regretted it if I didn't. If he had been all I'd found here, I doubt I'd be hunting flowers with you now. What else did you find? People who, despite their fondness for scamming strangers, seem peaceful, who deserve to live free of the threat of constant violence. If I can help give that to them, then I'll leave here happy I came. She pressed her lips together. 
I'll teach you. But if someone asks it wasn't me, you will lie. She started at once. The language was called Taurish, named for the raiders who were said to be the island's first inhabitants. Over the years, Dante had tackled several foreign languages, but soon found Taurish to be the easiest he'd encountered. Structurally, its only major difference from Malish was that it tended to place the subject of the sentence at the very beginning, or even to isolate that subject as a chopped-up sentence of its own which explained Wyndon's occasionally curious Malish grammar. Besides that, though, Torish was very intuitive. Learning a conversational vocabulary was going to take far more time than he had, but by the time they made camp that night, he was already able to form simple sentences. In the morning, they resumed the march. A single mountain loomed ahead, abutted by a lower shoulder that Wyndon confirmed was the Dreaming Peaks. Within an hour, the jungle thinned to a tree-studded veldt. A few hundred yards to their east, the land fell away in a series of sheer cliffs. A mile below, the sea shimmered and tossed. When the wind was right, Dante could hear the surf booming. Streams trickled through the grass. Soon there were no trees at all. Small pools of water blistered the rocks, steaming and churning the vapors smelling of bad eggs. The banks of the pools were encrusted with blue, red, and yellow crystals. Ahead, the eastern edge of the land bulged up into spires of naked rock. A trail was worn through the grass, leading straight to the paths between the spires and the mountain to their right. Cresting it, they looked down on the ruins of a city. Can't imagine why they abandoned this place, Blay said. The location is so convenient. It is not abandoned. Wyndon withdrew a small bone flute from her pouch. She blew three quick notes. They seemed to linger on the air longer than they should. After a minute, a man appeared at the fringe of the ruins. He carried a tall staff and wore a purple robe, the exact shade as the ever-present clay. It must have been dyed with it. He stopped ten feet from them and spoke a few words that Dante couldn't catch. Wyndon replied. After a brief conversation, she took off her pack, kneeled, and withdrew a shiny black box. The man lifted the lid and withdrew a shadow, water dripping from its black shell. He put it back in the box and tucked the box under his arm, then gestured down the path. We proceed, Wyndon said. Don't speak to anyone, no matter what they say or do. The man in the purple robe led the way. Wyndon continued to speak to him. Dante hardly understood any of it, but heard one word repeated. Torin. Crumbled walls rose to the sides of the street. Five minutes later, Dante hadn't seen a single soul. He didn't smell wood smoke or any of the general miasma associated with permanent human habitation. A white crow perched on a crumbling wall, raucously criticizing them as they passed. To the right, a solitary woman tended rows of orange flowers. From their left, 
The spires of rock veered closer, channeling the ruins into a narrow canyon. The way ahead was blocked by a high wall in better repair than anything they'd seen so far. The path led straight to an entry in its side. There, the man in purple swept aside a shaggy-haired pelt hanging over the doorway, leading them into a cavernous chamber with twenty-foot ceilings. Bodies stretched from wall to wall. They lay on thin pallets, eyes closed. The nearest of them, a middle-aged woman, was breathing evenly, yet, even with the rise and fall of her chest, she looked more like she was dead than asleep. There were perhaps forty of the sleeping people in all, dressed as simply as the fishermen in Kandak. Candle fruit glowed on the black stone pedestals. Despite the height of the ceiling, the room felt close, smelling faintly of sweat and something floral, along with the pungent odor of the burning fruit. Down the way, another man in a purple robe trimmed a sleeping man's unruly beard with a pair of silver scissors. Something jabbed Dante in the side. He whirled on Blaze, then grabbed his rope belt to restrain his fist from flying into Blaze's face. Wyndon walked down the middle of the room, and Dante hurried after her. The man in purple carried the box of live Chardon off to a side room. Wyndon continued forward. Ahead, daylight peeped around a hide draped over the exit. As Dante neared it, a woman sat bolt upright on her pallet. Her eyes blazed from the pallid sheen of her face, locking on his. De Tregen, she yelled. Tears streamed down her cheeks. She lunged at Dante, hands outstretched like claws, but her legs gave out and she spilled to the floor, jaw hitting with a crack. Dante moved to help her. Wyndon grabbed his upper arm. Across the room, the man with the scissors stood, gathered the folds of his robe, and swished toward them. He took the woman by the shoulder and poured a viscous fluid down her throat. Wyndon hauled Dante outside. What are the monks doing in there? he said. She walked down the grass-dotted clay. What they have to? Really, because it looks like they're keeping them unconscious. Those people? They're the luckiest ones on the island. Here's my question, Blaze said. Why do we have to use shells to bribe our way through? The way those guys are snoozing, we could have cartwheeled through here and they'd never have known. She glanced around them, but they were alone again. I don't know why I'm telling you this. Where we go when we die, do you remember what I said? Despite trying very hard not to. The dreamers. When they eat the flower, they sink deeper than sleep. To the brink of death. Once they are there, they fight to rescue those who cavil damned to be torn by the birds and the crabs. They're saving souls, Blaise said. How does Cavill feel about their efforts to defy his will? Wyndon shrugged. The dreamers. Most spend their lives here. Some die without saving a single one of the damned. Even Cavill respects their dedication. For us, 
There is no higher calling than to free those who have been burdened. That is why we bring the shells. Chardon treats the poison they take in order to enter the dream. They do our holiest work. It is our duty to support them. A cold wind ran down from the peak. Dante tugged up his collar. What was the old woman saying? He forgives. Cavill must have freed one of the damned. A rare event. Do they ever visit the dead? Speak to them? So they say. She stepped around a length of masonry that had fallen across the unpaved road. For what the dreamers do, the torrent leave them alone. But the monk I spoke to said the raiders have been more active than ever. We'll have to be far more careful from now on. The land before them widened out. To their right, a stream cut down from the cloud-swept mountain, gashing a frothy white channel eastward, then spilling over the cliffs. A wooden bridge spanned the roiling waters. Within minutes of crossing it, they were back in the wilderness, with no sign the island had ever contained anything else. As they descended the southern face of the Dreaming Peaks, Dante got a clear look at the way ahead. The island, as far as he could make out, and Wyndon confirmed this, was essentially two landmasses, bridged by the peaks. The southern lobe was roughly circular, with jungle on its higher east side, savannah on the lower central regions where the Torin held sway, and a scrubby desert on its west. The mulberry flowers grew in the lower elevations of the southeast jungle, particularly around a formation called the Blood Falls, which Dante dearly hoped was just a historical name. Wyndon set a relentless pace, breaking from the jungle wherever possible to strike out across the grassy middle of the Southlands. When questioned, she seemed less worried about them missing their return trip on the Sword of the South, and more concerned that Larson Galland wouldn't survive to see their return. To try to save two days, she intended to stop in to see the Shigger, who lived on the way to the Blood Falls, and might have the mulberry flowers on hand. On the way, she continued to teach Dante the Taurish language. Once, they saw white smoke pluming from the coast where the Tauran held a village under siege. After that, Dante used the nether to kill a handful of jungle rodents, rats with long, powerful back legs like jackrabbits, then used the shadows to revive them, bonding his eyes to theirs. He sent them loping ahead to scout for Tauran warriors, a part of him wanted to recruit some of the four-handed, golden-furred tree creatures. Wyndon claimed they were a species of monkey, but he couldn't bring himself to hurt them. On the second day, his undead scouts spied three men in the jungle carrying bows and spears. Long bone daggers hung from their hips, curved like scythes, serrated on one edge. When he described these to Wyndon, she identified them as coming from saw-teeth, a species of shark that swam around with their mouths always open. Along with these, the warriors wore dark hoods. Wyndon said they were wandering, people attached to no particular clan or settlement, 
who roamed the island as traders. In desperate times, they often turned criminal or sold their services to raiders. Wary of being betrayed to the Torin, Wyndon cut a wide berth around them. The morning of the third day, as their jungle trek continued, they came before a matted wall of branches and thorns, eight feet high. Red-striped hornets, as big as Dante's thumb, lumbered between the flowers growing from the kudzu. They diverted around it. Dante sent his rat scouts bounding ahead. Five minutes later, he still hadn't found a gap in the growth, but for some reason, Wyndon was smiling. What are you so happy about? Dante said. The fortress of thorns in our way, or the kitten-sized wasps guarding it? She gestured at the brambles. This wall, does it look natural to you? Not especially, but neither does the island's perpetual summer, or those golden monkeys that keep following us around. This is new. It must have been put here by the shigar. Blaze examined the wall. Well, their tactical error was making these plants out of wood. That blade of yours should be through it in a minute. You think they'll be eager to trade with us after we've torn down their defenses? If they get mad, remind them their wall will regrow on its own. Grow a vine over it, Dante said. We don't have time to spend all day hunting for a gate. After a moment's thought, she did just that. Ten minutes later, the three of them stood on the other side of the wall, picking burrs and thorns from each other's clothing and hair. The forest inside the wall was significantly thinner than the jungle outside it. Almost every one of the trees bore fruit of some kind, few of which Dante recognized. If you see someone, Wyndon said, stop, let yourself be known. She'd no sooner said this than a young man appeared a hundred yards ahead. He froze, gaped at them, then turned and ran. Wyndon halted. We wait here. A great number of birds flitted around the trees, snapping up any bug that attempted to land on the fruit. Blaze left his blades sheathed, hands folded over his stomach. Dante pulled the nether closer. Where the young man had run off, five warriors emerged, approaching them. They were armed with spears, at least two of which bore metal tips. Two of the soldiers were men, and three were women, but they all wore the same purple-trimmed yellow tunics. After a conversation Dante could almost, but not quite, follow, the warriors escorted them to a trail through the trees. After a few hundred yards, the fruit trees fell away. Lone trees stood isolated from each other among patches of manicured grass. These trees were graceful, trunks rising like the necks of swans. They were bent downwards at the tips, each one burdened by an enormous seed pod, long, narrow ovals. The smallest were three feet in length, with some upwards of twenty. The largest were supported by scaffolds erected around them. Blaze nudged his shoulder. Do those look like bananas to you? Oh, yeah, 
Dante said, especially the part where they're as long as a house. Those aren't bananas, Wyndon said. Look. She pointed to the left. Beneath an open-walled, thatched roof, four people swarmed around the shell of a nut that was thirty feet long if it was an inch. It had been split in half along the seam. Two workers scrubbed dark brown fiber from the outside of the shell, while two others scraped the interior. Dante craned his neck. Is that a boat? Like you have in Kandak? Wyndham smiled faintly. Shigar, boat growers. The ships they make are seamless, hard as rock but light as bamboo, finest on the island. They grow boats on trees. Wait until you see their houses. Just as Dante began to glimpse them, they were round and onion-roofed, and though they were asymmetrical, that only made them look more solid. A woman moved to intercept them, accompanied by four more armed locals. She wore a leaf-like green cape that tapered to a point. As she neared, Dante saw it was a leaf, clasped around the neck by a thin, curling vine like a pea plant. Wyndon offered a greeting, which Dante understood, then said a lot of words he didn't. There was much gesturing, particularly to the southwest, the direction of the Torin. We have bad news, Wyndon said. This woman is a harvester. They have no mulberry flowers and know of none between here and the falls. Dante folded his arms. I suppose it would be too much to hope to catch a break at some point. Also, they were attacked by the Torin. Some died, others maimed. All right, Blay said. That's slightly more tragic than not being able to find a flower. Wyndon glanced at Dante sidelong. Would you help them? Why, Dante said. Not to say I won't, but is there some reason you want me to do this? The Torin. If they keep pressing, we won't be able to fight them by ourselves. We'll need every ally we can get. The woman wearing the leaf cape gazed at him steadily. Dante inclined his head to Wyndon. Tell her I'll do anything I can. The two women spoke briefly. The woman in the cape gestured Dante on, leading them into town past the roundhouses, which appeared to have been grown from the ground. In different circumstances, he might have marveled at this, but he was too busy being led into one of the black stone buildings that speckled the entire island. Inside, three people lay on pallets. Each was in the fetal position, right arms clenched to their chest, their wrists terminated in wads of bloody bandages. Dante unwrapped the rags from the wrist of an unconscious man. The blood was rusty, at least a day old, and the rags clung to the dried fluid. Why did they do this? Wyndon conversed with the other woman. They couldn't pay what the Torin wanted. The Torin said, If you won't use your hands to work, then we'll take those instead. Lovely people, Blay said. You ought to invite them for a swim in the current. Dante cut his arm 
and fed the nether. He couldn't regrow their hands, but he could smooth over the wounds, fight off the infections. He did so, then washed his hands and stepped out into the courtyard behind the building, joined by Blaze, Wyndon, the caped woman, and her warriors. She thanks you, Wyndon said. She says you must be very powerful. That sounds like flattery, Blaze said. She wants your help. Definitely flattery. Dante glanced at the other woman. Help with what? Do they have more wounded? Wyndon shook her head. Two months ago, the Torin came. When the Shiger couldn't pay their demands, the Torin took four children as ransom. Dante drew back his head. I see where this is going. No way. Blaze squinted at him. As in, no way are we going to help these people recover their kidnapped children? Where are they being held? At the tower. Correct, Wyndon said. Which is how far from here? Forty miles. But not much is forested. Two days of walking. Dante held up a palm. Which means four days round trip, plus whatever time it takes to free them. That's too long. We'll miss our boat. So we won't walk, Blaze said. We'll run. Using the horses that don't exist here. Using our legs, which you will refresh with the nether, allowing us to be there in no more than a day. And on arrival, my supply of shadows will be as exhausted as our legs. Blaze sighed raggedly. Remember that year I spent learning to shadow walk so I could hide from you? Well, my plan here, and let me know if I need to slow down, is to use those same abilities to infiltrate the tower and get those kids back. And you'll get them outside... how, exactly? Give them a quick shadow walking lesson? And then we carry them back here for forty miles? and then go look for the Mulberries and hope we can find them right away, and also that nothing else delays us on our return to Kandak, or that my dad doesn't die in the extra days we're gone. The harvester and her people were staring at him. Dante lowered his voice before continuing. We came here to help my father. He may be useless to me, but to the people in Kandak, he's a savior. You want to help the Shigar? Fine but you can only do so by sacrificing the Candaeans. Blaze rubbed his jaw, which was beginning to sport a blonde beard. I hate it when you use logic. Do you even want to help these people? Or do you just want to argue with me so you can tell yourself you tried? Some of both. And quit knowing me so well. Dante smiled. Don't worry. I'll be the monster for you. Wyndon, please tell them we're sorry, but we can't help. My father's too sick. If we don't get back to him, he'll die. Wyndon stared at him, an unreadable emotion flickering in her eyes. She turned to the other harvester and spoke in Torish, a voice heavy with regret. The woman replied sharply. Wyndon raised a brow. She says you must help them, that the Torrens' demands are too high for them to meet. 
We've already faced them, Dante said, and fared no better than the Shigar have. She translated more. They will pay you, whatever it takes. It's not a matter of payment. We don't have the time or the strength to help them. Wyndon passed this along. While she was mid-sentence, the harvesters snapped back at her. Their voices rose. Within seconds, they were yelling over the top of one another. The harvester jabbed a finger into Wyndon's chest and pointed to the south, then spat at Dante's feet. Wyndon's jaw bulged. We are to leave. Now. She continued to glare into the other harvester's eyes. Dante touched her on the shoulder and walked southward, away from the stone building. The harvester and her soldiers followed a few paces behind them. Wyndon was breathing hard, but she kept her tongue. The path led to a gate through the wall of brambles. The gate's edges blossomed with tiny flowers of all sizes. If their mood had been better, it might have been beautiful. The harvester and her people watched them walk away. Sorry if we offended them, Dante said once they were out of earshot. It was certainly not our intent to make you any enemies on this trip. Wyndon rolled her eyes. You have nothing to worry about. Their harvester, she's ridiculous, full of herself. Did you see her cape? Blaze glanced behind them. The big leafy thing? Is that fancy? Do you see me wearing one? Flaunting it for all to see? Acting like I am some blessed spirit that fell out of a tree to make your lives better? Not exactly, Dante said. But if anything, you should be dressed in whatever the mischievous spirits wear. She gave him a look, then chuckled, expression softening. The boat growers, they're famed for their harvests. They must look the part. Much as you arrived in your finery. Beyond the boat growers' living wall, the forest was untamed. Rough footsteps marred the mud. Wary of raiders, Dante removed the dead rats from his pouch. He'd hidden them away while climbing the wall, and sent them out to range ahead. They would alert him of their own accord if they saw any people. But when his path ahead was clear enough to not require his attention, he delved into the rat's sight, eyes sharp for the rabbit-eared red flowers that continued to elude them. Twilight neared. Since crossing to the south lobe of the island, ants had been a problem at night, and Wyndon spent the last of the daylight locating and growing a patch of peppery-smelling leaves, which she shredded around the camp. No ants infiltrated their blankets, but Dante's undead rats repeatedly alerted him awake. No matter how hard he strained his eyes into the darkness, he saw nothing but the shifting of leaves and the wind. In the morning, they veered deeper into the jungle. On the first ridge they crested, Wyndon pointed ahead. A mile away, the land rose, more gently than a cliff, but far steeper than a hill. A scarlet line ran down the center, as though a god had cleaved it like a peach. They had reached the Blood Falls.
Chapter 7 Blaze stared at the red line cascading down the bluff. Tell me that's not actually blood. It looks like it to me, Wyndon said. But you can taste it and find out. That sounds more like Dante's thing. What is it? Dante said. And is its presence why the mulberries only grow here? Probably, yes. Wyndon moved on, swerving around something that looked like a plant but smelled like a rotting carcass. As to your first question, our people tell a story. Long ago, a woman named Dre lived above the Blood Falls. She was a gardener of mushrooms. Each type she grew did something different. Some made you strong. Others helped old men remember their vigor. Others helped those with failing vision to see. She was born with a disease that made her limbs weak, so she also grew one to prevent further withering of her muscles. Her mushrooms took a long time to grow, but she made enough to trade for everything she needed. There was also a harvester named Martin. He heard of Dre and traveled here to see her mushrooms for himself and discovered they were even more wonderful than he imagined. In awe of her skill, he fell in love with Dre. He offered to help her harvest more, to sell across the island, to become rich. Dre resisted, but Martin wouldn't leave the falls. He asked her over and over, telling her how many more people she could help heal. At last, she agreed. She set to work, harvesting her crops to grow ten times as many, then a hundred. And one day, Dre woke to find her legs wouldn't move. By growing so many, Martin had caused the mushrooms to lose their spirit. Dre's medicine no longer worked. She tried to regrow it, but before she could do so, the wasting illness reached her heart. It crumbled to shards, and she died in her fields. Ever since, the blood of her cracked heart has stained the falls. Are any of her mushrooms still here? Dante said. Many mushrooms grow around the falls, but Dre was the one who made them special. Without her, their powers have been lost. Dante nodded. Much in the way that a dream was only interesting to one who'd had it, a region's fairy tales were rarely of interest to outsiders. A few minutes later, water burbled ahead. Red water glimmered through the trees. As they neared, the vegetation thinned. Instead, the shores of the blood falls were crowded with mushrooms. Some rose knee-high, the caps big enough to function as end tables. Up close, the water looked no less like blood, swirling scarlet and opaque. It smelled earthy and metallic. Wyndon pointed to the ill-defined border between the mushrooms and the plants. The mulberries usually grow there. We'll follow the stream. Don't drink it. Thanks for the warning, Blay said. What about those jagged rocks? Should I avoid consuming those too? By all means, feast. 
Then I won't have to listen to you any longer. Dante smirked. They walked up the shore, scanning for mulberries. After a quarter mile, they reached the first of many waterfalls cascading down from the heights. Red water tumbled forty feet and crashed into a pool of unknowable depth. The banks of the pool were smooth red stone, though Dante couldn't say whether this was the cause or the effect of the water's tint. Vines and ivy hung over the brow of the cliff like an urchin in need of a haircut. After a sweep of the area revealed no mulberry flowers, Wyndon extended the overhanging plants downward and ascended to the plateau above. They worked their way upstream, coming to another waterfall and corresponding pool. Mist swirled in the air. It smelled of fresh water and the damp, freshly cut rock of the stoneworkers district in Narashtovic. This level didn't have any of the flowers either, neither did the third or the fourth. Hours later, there were six plateaus up. It was nearly noon, and with no trees around the creek, the sun's rays beat down on Dante's face and neck like fists of heat. The only reprieve came from the mist whipped up near each waterfall. Hey, Blaze called. Without Dante noticing, he'd crossed the stream to the far bank and was now waving his hands above his head. I have flowers, flowers that think they're rabbits. At a wide spot in the stream, red rock broke the surface in natural stepping stones. Dante made the first few steps, then slipped, plunging knee-deep. He slogged the rest of the way across, dripping over the toadstools and the slimy yellow fungus that sat on the shore like scoops of cold jelly. At the fringe of the leafy plants, Blaze stood triumphant over a waist-high bush. Small, red flowers hung from its branches, two long petals drooping from their top edge. Mulberries. Wyndon confirmed. Dante reached out to pluck one, and she slapped his hand. Stop that. You'll kill them. He frowned. They need to be living to work. Then I'm afraid we've made a huge mistake, as we've left our patient on the opposite side of the island. They need to be kept fresh. This is why we have no dried supplies in Kandak. But I have methods to preserve them. She unrolled a leather sleeve filled with numerous knives and snippers. That looks like a set of thieves' tools, Blaze observed. But, you know, for gardening. She gave him a look, then trimmed off several branches. She got out a narrow black box, similar to the one she'd carried the Shaden in. The bottom was layered with dried-out sea sponges, she soaked these with the water from the stream, sticking the stems of the mulberry cuttings into the now pliable sponges. She sealed the box lid with a wooden click and repeated the process with a second box. When this one was filled and sealed, she handed it to Dante. Carry this. If something happens to me, give them sun and water daily. If they die, you'll still have a few days to get them back to your father. He repacked his bag so the tall box would stay upright when he walked. They rinsed off in the red water, 
Wyndon assured them it was safe to touch the skin, then began their descent from the heights. After this, he is going to literally owe you his life, Blaze said. Think of the ways you'll be able to hold that over his head. The possibilities are staggering. I might even come away with an apology. Blaze laughed. I won't pretend like this will make up for years of abandonment, but I do think that, once we're back home, you'll be happy you came here. Dante grunted, unwilling to agree out loud even though he suspected Blaze was right. He did feel a certain thrill at having traipsed across such a strange and wonderful land. After weeks in the tunnels at Galador, the sun and the sights were a joy. Finding the Mulberries was quite an achievement, too. Seeing what the Torren had done to the boat growers had cemented his conviction that it was important to help his father stand against them. On top of that, he was starting to have ideas about opening trade between Narostovic and Kandak. Successfully completing this mission would earn him a great store of goodwill. The plagued islands had much to offer. Food, medicine, dyes, the creations of the boat growers. As much as he had strengthened Narashtovic's military and political position, its navy remained anemic. Hence, why he had to hire diseased sea captains from disapproved-of corners of the world. If he could open up a line of revenue from the islands, he could use that to build the fleet Narashtovic sorely needed. As they walked toward the ledge of the third plateau before the bottom, Blaze slowed, then stopped. He turned to them, a funny look on his face. Was this here when we came through the first time? Dante moved beside him. At a shaded spot within the prolific fungus, not three feet from the edge of the falls, a baby rested on its back, hands balled into fists, red mist dewed its skin. Wyndon gazed down at it. Torin. Torin, Blaze said. How can you tell? The chainmail diaper? They're young. They leave them here for three days. The strong live to make their people stronger, and the weak don't return to burden them. Do any return? Doesn't the crying draw predators? She laughed dryly. That is why the Torin's children haven't cried in hundreds of years. Why here? Dante said. To them, the blood falls are a place of courage, the will to fight. They hope their babies will absorb this. She kneeled beside it and slid her left hand under its neck, tipping back its head. With her right hand, she drew a steel knife and put it to the child's throat. What are you doing? Blay said. What does it look like? I'm killing this child. Do you need me to ask why? If it lives, it will join the Torin, become our enemy. She looked down on the baby's smooth, pudgy face. One day it will kill Candean children instead. Not for fifteen years or more. Blaze grabbed her wrist, pulling the blade away. By then, you and the Torin might be friends. For all you know, this kid will grow up to be the one who ends the war between you. With her unrestrained hand, 
she pulled a knife from Blazer's belt and set it against the infant's throat. I'll take that chance. You're right, Dante said. To murder a baby? Blaze honked with laughter. No wonder you believe all of your people wind up condemned to be eaten by birds and crabs. Her people weren't the ones that started this war. It was the Torin. They maim and kill adults, kidnap children. When the people they've wronged do the same to them, you're going to blame them. Is this a trick question? But you shouldn't do this, Wyndon, Dante said softly. Even though you're right, because it will crack you inside. It will weigh you down every day of your life. Even sleep won't be an escape from it. She clenched her teeth. If this saves a single one of my people, I'll be able to shoulder the guilt. And what happens when you die, and you're brought before Cavill? There's no way to lie nicely about killing a newborn. When you tell him why you did it, do you think he'll spare you? Her face twisted with anger, then frustration. She withdrew the knife flipped it in her hand, and held it out to Blaze hilt first. All right, then, Blaze said. So where shall we take it? The boat growers. Wyndon lowered her eyes. They'll know where it came from, and they will kill it, as will the Candians, and even the monks of the Dreaming Peaks. Do you want this child to have any chance to survive? Then we have to leave it here. Blaze stared down at it for a long moment. I can't believe we're doing this. At least if it survives, it'll be too young to remember to come hunt us down. Dante moved to the cliff's edge and climbed down the plants Wyndon had extended across its face. In time, they reached the bottom of the falls. There, they paused to clean themselves up and eat a meal of mashed bananas and jods, a pale green fruit that tasted like sweet eggs. Not exactly Dante's ideal flavor, but Wyndon insisted they were almost as nutritious as sunroot. With the mulberries boxed away, they headed back toward the Dreaming Peaks by the most direct route available, with Dante using dead rats to locate game trails through the woods. They made good time through the afternoon, pushing on until last light. Wyndon thought they might be able to make it back to Kandak in as little as four days. In the middle of the night, Dante woke with a gasp. One of his rats had just winked out. The severing of the ethereal connection between them had stung Dante like a wasp. He directed his lone remaining rat to the site where the first had disappeared. The turf was torn up as if by hooves. The next day, they hiked past the boat grower's territory, giving it a berth of a few miles. Whenever they stopped to rest, Dante checked on his mulberry cuttings, giving them air and light and water. The flowers looked the same as they had on the bush. Now that they had them, he was much less confident they'd work. Wyndon had said they often didn't cure the sickness, and that they would cause a toxic reaction instead. He didn't like the thought of failure. Blaze would tell him that he should be proud to have done all that he could, but Dante didn't find that much consolation. 
common wisdom held that it was better to have tried and lost than to never have tried at all. Maybe that worked for most people. For him, though, he'd always wonder what he could have done to win. The land sloped up gently. They stuck to the jungle as much as for the shade as for the concealment. As they walked up a dry creek bed, Dante felt a twitch in his head. He shifted his vision to that of the rats. Grass flew past its face, hooves thundered behind it. He made it look back just in time to see a tusked mouth gawping like an eel. Darkness enfolded the rat, bones crunched, the connection went dead. Dante staggered down the gully, rubbing his eyes. That's a new one. Guess what just ate my rat? I'd rather not, Clay said. A pig. A carnivorous pig. I don't know whether to be hungry or scared. Wyndon stopped in her tracks. It's a pig. You're sure of this? Flat snout, little tusks, beady eyes. Bit of a beard, right here on the chin. We're being hunted. Blaze tilted his head to the side. By a pig. Do you think we can talk two slices of bread into hunting us as well? This is a Joan, Wyndon said. Its sense of smell is better than any dog. The Tauren used them to track prey. Can you send another scout? Dante nodded vaguely. Another rat might get eaten, or look suspicious. That ruled out birds, too. To get them light enough to fly in undeath, he had to trim off everything unrelated to flying and seeing, like legs and guts. Not exactly sneaky. Light sparkled on an iridescent blue butterfly flapping along the bank of the creek. Dante knocked it down with a toothpick-sized spear of nether, then reanimated it, sending it flapping clumsily into the canopy. Through it, he saw nothing but an uninterrupted sea of treetops. As the butterfly neared where he'd lost contact with his rat, he ordered it to descend. It bashed into several branches on its way down, cutting through the canopy and into the shadows below, where he let it hover. Dante hated using flying bugs to do recon. Their vision was shifting and kaleidoscopic, and between that and their erratic flight paths, he often got sick on his shoes. Yet the butterfly's sight was sharp enough to spot a Joan loping from the undergrowth, heading in the opposite direction of the dreaming peaks. He directed the bug to flap along behind it. Voices rang out from ahead of the hog. The butterfly cleared a moss-draped tree and gazed down on some fifteen people. The man in the visored steel helmet jerked up his head and stared straight at the butterfly. Chapter 8 You're right, Dante murmured. We're being hunted, by the Tauren, including the sorcerer I found on the beach in Kandak. Son of a bitch, Blaze said. How do they know we're here? Because the harvester from the boat growers is there too. Wyndon spat a Taurish curse. We didn't help them get their children, so they turned on us. 
They can't possibly blame us for that, Dante said. We have nothing to do with any of this. Not to punish you, but because this was the only thing they could give the Tauren to get their children back. What interest would the Tauren have in us? Do you want to go ask them? She swept a loose plait back into place behind her head. You're a Rixen, foreign liar. Unless they cast you out or kill you, they disgrace our ancestors who died fighting off invaders and swindlers. Does the entire island see foreigners as some kind of pestilence, or just the Torren? Most of us are wary. They're hostile. But it's commonly thought that this is a pose, a way to exert control over people and trade. She sniffed. Or maybe Vorden simply wants to destroy you for having stood against him. That's the Nethermancer, Dante said. The one I fought in Kandak. Who cares what his name is, Blaze said. Right now, all I care about is how far away from him we are. Less than two miles. They're in no hurry, but they could be on us in fifteen minutes. Gonna be hard to ambush them, not when they've got a magic pig that can smell us out when we're close. Dante laced his fingers together. I don't think we should try to fight them. Vorden's dangerous, and we have no idea what his companions are capable of. Judging by the village burning, it doesn't sound like he's the negotiating type. What does that leave us with? Fleeing? Prompted by that, Dante resumed walking up the dry creek bed. Wyndon, if we can beat them to the pass through the Dreaming Peaks, will they follow? It's holy ground, she said. They won't fight us there, and the dreamers stopped letting them through the pass two years ago. To get past, they have to take a route through the heights, much slower. Surprised the Tauren haven't taken the peaks for themselves, then. That would risk turning the entire island against them. They'll know exactly where we're heading, Dante said. But we can beat them there. So we've agreed we're fleeing, then? Blaze frowned at Wyndon. When you're singing our ballads, would you leave this part out? Dante increased his pace. Concerned that Vorden had recognized the butterfly was a puppet, Dante had it sent out of the man's sight, then severed his link to it. As they advanced up the creek bed, he spotted one of the little green frogs that Wyndon called Dorts. They lived in the trees, soaring between branches with the aid of the webbing between their front and hind legs. With a small twinge of guilt, Dante slew the frog and returned it as his new set of eyes. He left it in place until the hunting party neared its position nearly a half hour later. After a look at the tauren, he sent the frog bounding ahead through the trees, keeping it at least a hundred feet ahead of them, too distant to attract attention. The tauren didn't appear to be in any hurry, but as the day stretched on, the gap closed to twenty-five minutes, then twenty. Vorden hadn't called a single break. Something's wrong here, Dante said. We're pushing as hard as we can sustain, yet they're catching up to us. He narrowed his eyes at Blaze, and it's not because I'm fat. You're obviously not fat, just weak. He wasn't, but the hours of hiking were starting to wear his legs out. Telling himself that the will usually gave out before the body, he pressed on.
After another hour, the Torin still hadn't stopped for a break. They were now less than a mile behind. Dante got out his knife and drew a small cut on his arm. He drew the shadows to him, then sent them into his muscles, repeating with Wyndon and Blaze. I think we should run, he said. Blaze glanced behind them. I can't believe we're running from pigs. It's more about the violent sorcerer wrangling the pigs. Dante broke into an easy jog. He felt more refreshed than he had since the start of the journey, and despite the gentle rise of the land, with the Nether's help, he was able to keep up his pace for nearly two hours before his breath flagged. As they walked on, catching their breath, he left the frog behind them in the trees. It was more than thirty minutes before the pigs at the vanguard of the Torren force trotted into view. The frog resumed pacing the Torren from ahead, gliding webbily from branch to branch. Over the next few miles, their lead shrank until they had to start jogging again. They slowed to a walk, resting, then resumed running. Sunlight rarely penetrated the canopy, but the air was deceptively humid. Dante had sweated through his clothes long ago. The next time their group began to flag, he wiped the exhaustion from their limbs again before they could slow down. By the late afternoon, they were roughly five miles ahead of their pursuit, but Vorden still hadn't called for his people to hold. They must be using the Nether too, Dante said. We can't stop until they do. They ran on. The sun dimmed, then disappeared. To preserve Nether, Dante lit the way with his torch stone. When this faded, Wyndon lit candle fruit, which gave just enough light to see the ground ahead. When they grew tired, Dante flushed the weariness from their muscles again. With the sun gone and the air cooler, the torrent ran too. Midnight came, then the small hours. Clouds blotted out the stars. Rain hissed against the leaves. Fearing a flash flood, they clambered out of the stream bed and moved along the banks, slowed by the thicker brush. With the stars gone and no way to tell the passage of time, Dante's mind entered a plodding fugue. There was nothing but the next step and then the one after. Dawn broke, spying pinkly from behind a tattered sheet of clouds. They were still running and so were the Torren. This doesn't make sense, Dante blurted. It was now light enough that they no longer needed the candle fruit to see. They have five times as many people as we do. This Vorden shouldn't be able to sustain that many for so long. Blaze's voice was scratchy from disuse. Unless he's five times the adept that you are. How far are we from the pass? Fifteen miles? Wyndon said. At this pace, little more than two hours. Dante nodded. He could get them that far, he knew, but his grip on the shadows was loosening. By the time they reached the Dreaming Peaks, he wouldn't have much left. And while his body felt good enough, considering the circumstances, he hadn't slept in a day. His mind was foggy, prone to mistakes. Still, they ran on. The land ramped up. 
the jungle thinned, spitting them into the grasslands high on the sides of the mountain. Dante had to leave the tree frog behind, but he no longer needed it to keep tabs on their pursuers. The tauren had been gaining for some time, emerging from the trees a few minutes later, visible within the thigh grass less than a mile away. Two minutes later, a second band of troops appeared from the jungle, twenty strong. They quickly caught up to Vorden's men. The skies were overcast, and the slopes were sodden and muddy from the prior night's rains. In places, the clay was so soft and thick they had to divert laterally across the hillside to find solid ground. Though the torrent continued to close distance on them, by the time they reached the Dreaming Peaks, it was clear the enemy wouldn't catch them. They are still coming, Wyndon said. They don't intend to stop at the pass. Dante grimaced. His boots were so thick with purple clay they felt twice as heavy. Will the dreamers help us? You saw them. They aren't warriors, not in our world. We can't keep this up much longer. I need to rest. Doesn't look like rest is on their agenda, Glay said. Think we can lose them? Ahead, clouds bruised themselves on the mountains. The grass was patchy, avoiding the steaming pools filled with their multicolored crystals. The air stank of flatulence. Sure, Dante said. All we have to do is take a stroll off the cliffs. We tried running. We can't hide. The only question left is where you want to make our stand. It won't be much of one, Dante said. Right now I could barely call enough shadows to stop us from getting sunburned. We should have ambushed them yesterday. Running was the right plan. We couldn't have known this would happen. You sound defeated, Wyndon said. Yes, that would be the defeat talking. Dante trudged on. I don't hear you coming up with any ideas. At least we have the excuse of being new here. These men, if you had Nether, do you think you could stand against them? Judging by our confrontation in Kandak, I'm not sure. Thankfully for us, I would have no intention of fighting fairly. His enthusiasm faded like a gust of wind. But there's no point. We should head to the way through the upper mountains. At least we can keep the enemy away from your dreamers. I can give you the nether. She slung her pack forward and withdrew a black wooden box, similar to the ones they were carrying the flowers in. Inside it bore six shaden. She handed one to Dante. Can you feel it? He weighed the shell in his hand. Its opening was stopped by the mucousy foot of a snail. And he felt something of far greater gravity within the shell. He gawked down at it. It's full of shadows. These things have nether in them, Blaise said, like Kelleverts. Dante crinkled his brow. Grim slugs? They have them at Pocket Cove. Eat dead stuff. The people of the Pocket told me they consume the nether, too. Dante sent his mind inside the shell. Darkness bloomed within him, cool and wonderful. This could be enough. No wonder the Torren want these so badly. This must be how they've kept up with us. 
he glanced uphill. We should do this at the bridge. From there, we can fall back to the ruins. Here's another idea, Blay said. I lure them onto the bridge, and you knock it out. Dante grinned. For the first time in hours, he felt like he could see a way to the future. Winden ran ahead to pass word to the dreamers. Foul-smelling steam bubbled from the springs and wafted down the decline. They reached the bridge. The river ran a few feet below, coursing toward the cliffs. Dante delved into the rock at either side of the bridge. It was solid, tough, but that wouldn't make any difference to him. They stopped at the bridge's north side. Wyndon ran back from the ruins. Her normally stoic face was fissured with anxiety. The monks can't move the dreamers to safety in time. Please, we can't let the torrent through. That aligns with our goal of not dying, Dante said. Got any tricks to help us out? She stared across the rapids. Not much to work with, but I'll do what I can. Below them, the torrent climbed on. The arrival of the second band had swelled their numbers past thirty, and as they neared the bridge, they fanned out in a semicircle. The man in the steel helm stepped onto the edge of the span and tipped up his visor. You run. Warden spoke Malish. His accent was so faint there were times it sounded like he didn't have one at all. Does that mean you are guilty? Why are you following us? Dante called over the gurgle of the waters. You came without permission. You attacked me. You will answer. Is this the tonin you tell yourself? Victims of your raids are the real murderers? Casually, the man drew a longsword, resting its tip on the bridge. We deal with you now, or we come to Kandak, and they will answer for your actions instead. There's no need for this. Dante moved his consciousness into the rock around the southern end of the bridge, preparing to yank it away. Within the earth, he felt something warm. He blinked, tracing the warmth west, away from the cliffs. Surely we can reach a peaceful agreement? My terms, they are clear. Hand yourselves over, or be stained by what befalls Kandak. I need a moment to decide. He lowered his voice and turned to Blaze. New plan. That thing you do, can you do it through water? Sure, Blaze said. Way easier than walls. Don't let them get through, and I'll make sure any survivors can't follow. Can do. He swung his pack from his shoulder. Hang on to this for me. Why? There may be a non-crying baby inside, Blaze said. Dante's jaw dropped. Blaze looped the pack's straps over Dante's outstretched arm. On the other bank, Warden lowered his visor. Too long. I choose for you. Nether scythed across the bridge. Dante grunted in surprise, lashing back in kind. The streaking shadows crashed together, exploding in black sparks. Dante fell back a step, 
hoping to coax the other man forward, but Vorden held position, attacking again. Drawing on the nether condensed in the Chardon, Dante deflected it handily. They matched each other, strike for strike. Vorden was technically skilled, as quick and fluid as a snake. After the fourth such exchange, Vorden grinned and flapped his hand at Dante. He stepped off the bridge and gestured to his people. Archers moved onto the foot of the bridge. It's like fighting my mirror, Dante said. He'll knock down anything I throw at them. Wyndon stared across the span at the gathering archers. Fall back. As they ran off the bridge, she grabbed a mulberry cutting from her pack. Once she was off the boards, she jammed the cutting into the dirt. As soon as it touched soil, it expanded like a fire. Bows twanged behind them. The branches of the plant shrouded their heads, casting them into shade. Arrows wrapped into the living roof. Dante blinked. That's a neat trick. And if I have to do it again, I'll be drawing on the Chardon too. The archers plinked away trying to find gaps in the cover. Dante flinched at each arrow that knocked into the tightly woven branches. Across the rushing water, Vorden barked commands in Taurish. Ten soldiers, carrying swords and chainmail, trotted onto the bridge. Blaze drew his swords. About time I had some fun. He stepped onto the bridge and strolled forward. The archers moved to the sides and unleashed a volley past the swordsmen. Blaze vanished. Arrows whisked through the space he'd occupied and thunked into the boards. The swordsmen slowed in confusion, putting up their guards. Dante plunged his focus into the rock, finding the heat and following it upstream. Blaze reappeared in the middle of the bridge, mid-spin. His lead blade bit through the neck of the closest man to him. His other sword lashed across the hamstring of a second man, felling him. The troops shouted in surprise and closed on him. He winked out again. Shadows flowed from the Chardon to Dante. He sent them flooding deep into the rock, opening a massive channel between the pocket of heat and the rushing waters. A rumble drowned out all else. As Blaze reappeared, stabbing a third soldier in the throat, a tsunami of boiling water burst upstream into the small river, swelling it several times over. Steam clouded the air. Men shrieked. As the water thundered toward the bridge, Dante backed away from the cover of the mulberry. The bridge stones hazed with mist. Men sprinted toward the far end. Blaze vanished. The wall of water crashed into the bridge. Wood groaned. The bridge tore loose from the south bank, pivoting, planks snapping. Clouds of steam washed to all sides, choking and hot. Dante staggered away, wiping his eyes. With a great pop, the northern foot of the bridge yanked free, tumbling away in the flood, headed for the cliffs. Dante's heart squeezed tight. Blaze! Though the initial flood was subsiding, the underground reservoir continued to feed into the stream, obscuring everything in mist. Dante wandered forward, mind numb with horror. 
Blaze appeared in front of him and patted his cheek. No time to cry for me. Let's get the hell out of here. Dante barked a laugh and jogged away from the swollen river. Didn't get Vorden. He's missing half his people, though. Wyndon fell in beside them. The flood. How did you do that? There are underground pools everywhere. They're what feed the hot springs, like in Kandak. Blaze sheathed his sword. If they try to cross, they'll be boiled like human dumplings. Think it'll last? No idea, but it should give us enough time to give them the slip. They jogged onward into the ruins. By the time they reached the hall where the dreamers slumbered, Dante had observed no sign of pursuit. They didn't slow until they reached the broken valley. Knowing the Torrens' Joan would be unable to follow their scent from plateau to plateau, they got halfway across the valley and descended onto the floor. After hacking a hollow from the brambles, they lay down and slept. Two days later, they entered the clearing surrounding the Blackstone Temple. A boy peered from the stoop, then ran to meet Wyndon. Dante picked out enough of the Taurish words to infer that Larson still lived. Inside the temple, a steady cross breeze blew from one side to the other, but it wasn't enough to carry away the smell of burned cinnamon that marked the advance of the disease. Larson lay on the pallet. He was unconscious, his face pinched with pain. Wyndon called in the boy, then sent him off. He came back with a small bowl of root paste. Wyndon kneeled, shredded three mulberry flowers into the paste, and used a thin stone rod to mash it together. She shook Larson's shoulder until his eyes blinked open, then methodically fed him the paste. When she was done, she walked out to the stoop and sat. That's it, Dante said. She didn't look up. You expected what? A naked dance around the fire? At least a blood ritual of some kind. What now? He improves, she said, or it makes him worse. We'll know by morning. She had brought her box of mulberry cuttings outside. Dante touched a red flower, the ears of which were starting to droop and wrinkle. What will you do with the rest of them? throw them out. Seems like a waste. We went through so much for them. Plant them if you want. They'll die. They can't survive away from the blood falls. After a minute of uncomfortable silence, Dante went inside and got his box of cuttings. Thinking the mist blowing in from the sea might remind the cuttings of their home in the falls, he brought them near the edge of the cliffs and planted them into the soil. He was still tamping the dirt around their edges when Blaze walked up to him. So have they decided on your punishment? Dante said. Punishment? Blaze nudged a cutting with the toe of his boot, testing its hold. It listed to the side and toppled. For what? For bringing back a baby enemy. They should be hailing me. I captured a prisoner of war. One you don't even have to lock up. 
Are they going to care for it? I'm not sure. Blaze wandered toward the edges of the cliffs. If they won't, do you suppose Captain Twill will charge us more for a third passenger? Dante shaded his eyes against the sun. You can't possibly be thinking of taking it back to Pocket Cove. Of course not. They'd never go for that. I'd have to bring it to Narashtovic. Bad news. Henceforth, all babies are banished from the city. Wyndon is not happy with me. You'd think the kid was prophesied to plunge the island into eternal darkness. Oh, well. Another three days and we'll never have to see these people again. He lowered himself to the grass. Think he'll make it? Your dad? There's no telling. Dante righted the cutting blaze had knocked over, planting it more securely. What if he does? That's a bad thing. If so, I'd like to have the last ten days of my life back. But what happens then? Am I supposed to write letters? Come visit him? This presumes you saved his life. So if he turns out to be a huge pain, you'd be within your rights to rescind his life. Blaze picked up a pebble dislodged by Dante's excavations, cocked his arm and slung it off the cliff. You didn't have to come here in the first place. You've already exceeded your filial responsibilities tenfold. If he survives, wherever you go next is your decision. Blaze hung around a minute more, decided he had more important things to do than watch Dante tend a doomed garden, and wandered off. Dante remained there for some time. That night it took him a long time to sleep. When he woke, he was still tired, but the sun was already up. Early morning was his favorite time of the island's day, neither hot nor cold, with a calm offshore breeze importing the smell of the sea. He forced himself to get up and walk outside. A person stood in the grass with his back to the temple, obscured by the long shadows cast from the trees on the east side of the clearing. At first he thought it was Blaze, but then his father turned and smiled. Chapter 9 Larson walked toward him, stirring the tall grass. You're awake. A reluctant daily habit. Dante stayed where he was. Are you... well? Aye. The older man grinned. He looked tired, but relaxed, like a man waking from a nap after a long day of travel. I feel like I could run all the way to Kandak. Don't worry, I won't try. Too lazy. But I feel like I could. I'm glad. That's what we came here for. I can't believe you did. After all this time, I think I would have wiped my ass with that letter. I might have, if not for Blaze. Larson reached out and put a hand on his shoulder. While I was sick, I had a lot of time to think. And I'm sorry. I should never have left. 
Dante's jaw tightened. You had time to think during the few weeks you were in bed, but not during the eighteen years prior to that. I've thought about it every day since then. I'll nominate you for sainthood as soon as I'm home. Larson got a good laugh out of that. You're a tough one, aren't you? Maybe it means nothing to you, but if that's true, why did you come here in the first place? I don't know. Dante stuck out his hand. I'm glad you're better. The older man considered Dante's outstretched hand. Your trip to the Blood Falls? Any roughness? I almost died crossing the Broken Valley. Once we started to tangle with the Torin, I found myself wishing I had. You knocked antlers with them. What happened? Dante still felt irritated by his father's blitheness, but he found himself relating the story of their trip with something like enthusiasm. Halfway through, they relocated to the shade of the temple porch. Dante explained how the Torin had chased them for a day without stopping, only to be defeated by his flooding of the bridge. I'd heard stories of what you can do, Larson said softly. I thought they had to be exaggerated. After hearing this, though, I have to think they were downplaying it. How did you learn to do this? Years of almost getting killed can be very educational. When did you learn you had this talent? How did it begin? With a wounded dog, Dante said. I saw a man heal it. Or maybe it was dead, and he only reanimated it. Whatever he did, it was as easy for him as the rest of us breathe. Seeing that power, I knew I had to have it. How can this be so strange to you? You used to perform tricks with the ether yourself. Aye, that's all they were, Larson said. Parlor tricks. I gave that up a long time ago. How did you wind up all the way in Narashtovic? Prompted by a steady flow of inquiries, Dante found himself relating his entire adult life. How he'd found himself in possession of the original copy of The Cycle of Oran, and through it had learned to harness the Nether. How he and Blaze had been recruited to travel to Narashtovic to assassinate the former head of the Council of Oran. How Dante had subsequently found himself named to that council. This was followed, of course, by a detailed recap of the Chainbreakers' War that had freed the Norin tribes, Galador Rift, and Narashtovic from the Gascon Empire. And following that, Dante related how he'd learned of the impending arrival of Selen, a concentration of Nether capable of changing the face of the world. His pursuit of it had taken him into forbidden lands, far stranger than he could have imagined. When he finished, Larson gazed at him in bemusement. Are you screwing with me? Screwing with you? After hearing all that, I'm starting to wonder if I'd forgotten I was a god. If I had your power, the Torren would all be in a mass grave. Don't be so sure, Dante said. Vordon is very skilled, though perhaps that's just the Shorden. Larson raised his brows. You know about them. I exhausted myself trying to escape the Torren. Wyndon had to give me a shell to deal with them at the bridge. Are Shorden common? 
The right people would pay a fortune for them. They're very rare. Our harvesters used to use them on sicknesses, injuries, and larger projects. Since the Torren started their raids, we've had to search for them full time just to find enough to make quota. Years ago, you defeated them once. What do you intend to do now? Talk you into staying a few more months? Can't. I have people who depend on me back home. Larson chuckled wryly. Couldn't hurt to ask. During the last war, we won the day by wrecking their boats. When they sailed into the bay, our harvesters snarled them with seaweed and dragged them down. I thought the currents were too strong to sail north from their city. They portaged their boats across the peaks, then took them north, down the rivers to the Jaladi coast, sailed south to Kandak from there. This time they've changed tactics. They're landing further upshore. We can't patrol all of it. The Torren have better weapons now, too. That armor, running around like crabs with swords. You could try relocating, Dante said. It would hardly take twenty people to defend the Dreaming Peaks. Our people would sooner see themselves wiped out than to bring war to the Dreamers. Do you have more harvesters, or is Wyndon the only one? Two others, but she's our best. Dante gazed out at the fine blue sea. When we took on the Gaskin Empire, we didn't do it alone. We formed an alliance, brought in everyone we could. You need to do the same, or move to another island. He smiled thinly. If only it was that easy. Dante realized he'd been lost in stories and strategy for over an hour. Feeling duped, he stood from the porch, brushing dust from his pants. Glad to see the Mulberry worked. I'm going for a walk. Larson looked like he might ask to join him, but Dante jogged down the stairs before he could speak, heading straight into the jungle. He needed to clear his head. He had so few memories of the man. What remained was more impressionistic than specific. That he'd been carefree, hard to rile, a fan of roughhousing and exploring. A great dad for a young boy. But he'd also been prone to drinking. And disappearing on sudden jaunts and voyages. To the point when, even as a child, Dante hadn't been that surprised to hear he wasn't coming back. Hurt? That went without saying. But Dante had transitioned to his new life with the monk with little difficulty, as if he'd known the day was coming, that it had only been a matter of when. So while Dante surged with anger at Larson's verbal missteps, he also found it easy to forget the man was his father. From there, he felt no compunction against blathering on as if the man were a harmless but not particularly close friend. That, in turn, made Dante feel as if he were discussing matters the man had no right to hear. He was still dwelling on these thoughts when steps rustled to his left. Wyndon made her way toward him. She owned a full wardrobe of somber, thoughtful, judgy looks, but he wasn't sure he'd seen the model she was donning now. You've seen him, she said. 
I have. Remarkable recovery. Your help? I want to thank you again. You didn't have to do this. Trust me, on the list of most ridiculous ventures I've been party to, this venture is several pages down. I just hope Blaze didn't offend you. With his tongue, he means nothing by it. Not that, Dante said. I mean, by bringing back the Tauran infant. He doesn't understand, she said. But when I dwell on it, I wonder if I would have respected him if he hadn't done something. Have you discussed what's to be done about it? He offered to take it home with him. But that can't be done. In Kandak, Starve has pledged to take care of it. He's a good man. I think he misses when his grandchildren were young. Glad to hear it's worked out. For the record, I'm not one to leave an infant on a slope either. It's your fault for making such a convincing case. Wyndon cracked a smile. Feel no shame. You both did what you thought was right. The stories about you, they're wrong. He cocked an eyebrow. What stories are these? When Larson first heard of you, they said you were a butcher that you cut a swathe through Malin. You were chased from the country only to flee to the north, where you killed a woman of great power so you could take her place. Let me guess. These stories came from Malin. Are they true? Do you have a word for sour lies? Lannan, she said. And what about a story that contains true facts, but which presents them in the most warped way possible. Rolannon, this is getting disturbing. You have to give words to things. How else can you know they exist? Wyndon regarded him, serious once more. The story said you'd do anything to gain more power. That honor meant nothing to you. But the stories were wrong. You came here to do good, you haven't asked for anything in return. I can think of one way for you to repay me. The corner of her mouth twitched. That being? Teach me to harvest. Impossible. This is a thing that takes years. And I have two days, Dante said. I know it's not enough, but if you show me the foundation, I can build on it when I get home. I used time as a polite way to tell you, no. The truth? The harvest is for us. She gestured to take in the island. Not for you. You said I came here to do good. If you give me this knowledge, do you fear I'll use it to do wrong? That is not the point. Larson is one of you, isn't he? And I am his son. So then I must be one of you too. Wyndon sputtered with laughter. This argument is good enough for me. We will go to Kandak. What, right now? As you said, you only have two days. He gestured toward Tan. She led the way down the path, which was muddy, as always. It rained once or twice a day here, and nothing ever truly dried out. To harvest! Wyndon's voice was distant, as if talking to herself. In one way, very easy. Convince the plants to do what they do by themselves. In another way, very difficult. 
Plants don't eat the shadows. They eat air, water, light. But nether can be turned into any of those things. It strengthens or weakens, brings you further or closer to death. You can't, say, conjure a house out of it. When a ship comes to our shores, it doesn't conjure up the steel it brings us. It's a vessel, nothing more. And so is the nether. This sounds like something I'm going to need to see in practice, Dante said. She smiled. You're going to be very bad at this. What on earth makes you say that? There may not be a more talented nethermancer on the continent. That is why you'll be so bad. You know too much. It will be like trying to write a message on parchment without scraping the old words off. Well, now you've undone your own prediction. The only force stronger than my opinion of my own abilities is my desire to prove others wrong about me. She turned away, possibly trying to hide the rolling of her eyes. On the descent to town, she recounted the tale of Yi, the first harvester. According to their history, which sounded more like myth, Yi had lived alone on the Jaladi coast on the north shore, where the current was most violent. One day, a storm stripped the trees from the land. At the same time, it drove a boat into the shore. Yi rescued the crew from the sea one by one. The men were starving, but the plants had been blown away, and the fish had been killed and swept away. All that remained was a single sand root, and Yi herself. As the sailors made plans to capture her and carve her up, Cavill, incensed that these men were going to eat her after she'd saved their lives, showed her how to grow the one root she had left into many. When she did so, and fed the crew, they fell to their knees, recognizing she was a miracle worker. Yi and the few harvesters she taught had been venerated ever since. On their way toward Kandak, Wyndon stopped a man walking toward them and spoke hurriedly. He nodded and returned to town. Soon after, Wyndon left the main path, diverting north down a much fainter trail. Just before the trail led to the beach, the trees stopped. Twenty-foot black columns ringed a bowl-shaped depression a hundred yards across. This space was divided radially. Each slice grew a different color of fruits and flowers, one yellow, one red, one purple, and so on. Wait here, Wyndon said. We can't be seen practicing. I need to make sure we're alone. She made a circuit of the overgrown bowl. As she neared the red section, something ruffled within it. She delved into the foliage, reappearing a minute later and continuing along the circle, making her way back to Dante. He nodded at the profusion of shrubs, flowers, vines, trees, and sprouts. What is this place? The basket. It's where we keep everything that will grow here. That way, if something is needed... A harvester always knows where to find it and make more. That is an amazing idea. She brought him to the light green wedge, where clusters of the bamboo-like shoots grew. 
This is what I learned on, what we all train with. Watch the shadows. She kneeled beside the smallest cluster. He sent his focus into the nether within the chutes. Wyndon drew a small knife. She owned steel ones, but this one was a sawtooth attached to a handle of polished red wood. She nicked her palm and squeezed three drops of blood onto the dirt. Nether flocked to the roots and wicked up the stems. The plants lurched six inches taller. Dante blinked. Slower. Again, the shadows came and disappeared, stretching the stems. Way slower. Pretend I'm a dog and not a bright one, and that it isn't strange for you to be teaching a witless dog how to do magic. Patiently, she tried again. It took several more slowed-down attempts before he glimpsed it. It wasn't the nether itself feeding the plants. Rather, as she had said, the shadows were serving as a conduit through which other substances—air, water—were being born to the plants. It was like a sped-up cycle of all things. Through the death held in the nether, inert matter was brought to a living object, allowing it to thrive. After observing her a few more times, the plants were now twice as tall as when they'd arrived, Dante cut his arm, dribbled blood onto the soil, and willed the shadows forward. They came, but no matter how forcefully he tried to drive them, or how subtly to coax them, he couldn't get them to bridge the gap. Doing his best to keep his frustration in check, he pressed on, alternating his attempts with Wyndon's to hone his technique— she didn't offer much in the way of advice. He wasn't sure if that was because she wasn't used to teaching, or if her method simply mirrored her stoic, laconic personality. Part of him had hoped to pick it up on the spot, but he wasn't surprised that he was stymied. Different people seemed to excel at different specialties. Though it had taken some time, he'd taught himself to make the earth move, a skill unknown in Narashtavik. Blaze, meanwhile, was virtually useless at using the nether to do anything besides shadow walk, yet despite a serious effort, the technique eluded Dante. In Malon, many of the court ethermancers dabbled in the nether as well, but Dante couldn't so much as get the ether to stir, and struggled whenever it was used against him. It didn't make intuitive sense. If you gave a skilled enough silversmith a hunk of metal— he could do just about anything with it. With the nether and ether, however, it was as if the gods would only grant you so much talent. Perhaps they were afraid of being rivaled by a human, or of what a human might do with such power. Yet he thought there might be more to it. Most lands only possessed a fraction of the many talents he'd discovered across the world. As far as Dante knew, he and the people of the pocket were the only ones who could move the earth. He'd never heard of harvesting before arriving on the plagued islands. Malish ethomancers crafted a number of trinkets such as torch stones that could be found nowhere else, and Dante himself had invented loons. There were times when he wondered if the only limits were what you'd been brought up with and what you could imagine. Whatever the case, he knew one thing for certain. He was off to an inauspicious start 
as a harvester. Wyndon's hold on the shadows slipped, but he pressed on. As he fiddled and futzed, she wandered off, returning several minutes later. Are you hungry? she said. Dante rubbed his eyes. The light through the canopy had the piercing glow of late afternoon sun on sea. Hours had slipped away from him. Now that his brain had returned, his stomach seized the opportunity to alert him that it was starving. Sure. He stood, knocking dirt from his pants. Got any of that paste kicking around? Why don't we go into town? Isn't there plenty of fruit right here? You work too much. Besides, it's not permitted to take from the basket. She grabbed his arm. Come on. She led them toward the calm surf of the bay. The path meandered through the trees, opening to grass and the beach. A second basket had been built into the tide pools, housing oceanic plants of every shape and color. Wyndon walked past it and around a spar of rock reaching down to the water. Down the shore, white smoke whirled from small fires burning on the sand. Dozens of people milled around, tending to the fires, slicing the rinds of fruits, scaling fish. The smell of grilled meat wafted on the air. It wasn't fish, but it wasn't beef, venison, chicken, or anything else Dante's nose could place— he wondered if it was one of the curiosities they'd seen in the jungle. Rather than their typically drab clothes, today the Candaeans wore wraps and skirts of purple, orange, and green. Is it some kind of holiday? Dante said. It certainly looks like it, Wyndon said evenly. If I didn't know better, I'd say it was for Larson. And for you. He laughed. Is that why you kept me at the basket all day? To keep me from finding out about this? I didn't have to work very hard to distract you, did I? As he neared the locals, several broke his way, speaking excitedly in Taurish. Grinning, one of the men extended a cocked elbow. Link with him, Wyndon said. It is our handshake for someone you want to honor. Dante clasped elbows with the man, somehow managing to acquit himself with minimal awkwardness. The man blurted something. Dante leaned closer, as if that would help him understand. He's thanking me, Dante said, for saving Larson. That's right, Wyndon said, and for saving Kandak. Thank you, Dante replied in Taurish. But still much to do. The man looked surprised to hear Dante speaking the island's language. If he had any misgivings about hearing such words from a foreigner, however, he hid them, bowing and lowering his hand to the earth. He turned away. Dante walked on down the beach. He'd hardly made it ten yards before another group of townsfolk stopped him, offering the same elbow clasp and refusing to disperse until, relying heavily on Wyndon for translation, he relayed the events of their return through the dreaming peaks. When Wyndon finished explaining, the Candaeans questioned her some time longer. From what Dante picked up, they were trying to figure out if any of the details had been embellished. 
when they finally left, they did so shaking their heads, grinning in disbelief. The next person to intercept him was Blaze. He was gnawing on a rib that may or may not have been pork. Have you tried the food? Dante glanced down the beach. The attentions of the locals have been occupying my attention. It would appear that we're heroes. Well, the fare is incredible. Back home, you're a king, right? Why don't you throw yourself a feast every day? I've been a little busy staving off invasion and treachery, but if I ever go insane, feel free to remind me of the benefits of fiscal irresponsibility. There were at least two hundred people on the beach, with more trickling in by the minute. People played their carved bone flutes, while others accompanied them on handheld drums little thicker than plates. Dancers paired up in two lines, facing each other from just out of arm's length. When one reached out to touch or grab their partner, the partner backpedaled, hands thrust out, face filled with longing and regret. A middle-aged woman approached bearing skins of the pale, tough leather the people often used for purses and such. These turned out to be filled with a very fruity, very strong wine. This was the best thing Dante could have asked for, as over the next hour he had to repeat the story of their journey to three more groups of listeners. As he addressed the receiving line, people dragged furniture and torches down to the tide line. Dante kept an eye on the activity. The seating arrangements used in feasts could provide deep insight into a land's political structure. How many layers of aristocracy did they host? Were the gentry or the peasants allowed to participate? Was the festival more about celebration and entertainment, or the spectacle of the event? There in Kandak, they were laying blankets on the sand, with people drifting to them in no obvious order or hierarchy. After Dante concluded his latest retelling of the story, Wyndon led him and Blaze to a blanket, seating herself. Men moved from blanket to blanket, handing out seamless wooden cups of wine. Rather than servants, the wine-bearers included some of the warriors Dante had seen battling the Tauren on their arrival to the island. Larson was among them, too, grinning and clasping elbows. He made his way to their blanket, but remained standing. Annoyed, Dante rose to meet him. No need to get up, Larson said. I'm just making a toast. Suppressing a sigh, Dante sat back down. Larson held up his cup. Speaking in Taurish, he called his people to attention, words booming over the sof of the surf. I'm looking at my friends, Wyndon quietly translated his words. I'm tasting my wine. Normally, this isn't cause for celebration, it's common, but tonight it is a miracle. A miracle that I'm cured after being certain I was dead, and that this cure came from my son. He gestured to Dante, then Blaze. Still translating, Wyndon said, They ask for nothing, but have given me everything. Tonight, then, let us give them, 
the most valuable gift we can. Our thanks, our gratitude, and our loyalty. Larson lifted his cup, sloshing wine on the sand, and drained it. The people whooped and clapped. Being fated always made Dante feel awkward, but it was hard not to be charmed by the genuineness of the Candeans. Larson waited for the applause to die down. Soon, all that could be heard was the whisper of the surf. He lowered his gaze. Few days pass without clouds. Today is no different. An hour ago, I was informed that the Torren have taken the Dreaming Peaks. Outraged calls rang out across the beach, followed by babble. Larson let this take its course, then lifted his hands for silence. Aye, you hated. You know what that means. It means the Torren have made one hell of a mistake. They've profaned the only sacred place left on this island, and they'll die for it. My life has been given back to me, just in time for me to spend it driving the Torren back to their tower. He stalked down the sand, a smile fighting its way past the sternness of his expression. Kicking the Torren's asses in half can wait until later. Tonight, we celebrate, as two of the bravest warriors I've ever seen join our family in Kandak. No more, Rickson. Dante Galland and Blaze Buckler are now Rizaka. There was a moment of silence. Hard to tell, but Dante thought it was shocked. And then a new wave of cheers. Wyndon's throat worked, but she said nothing. Mind translating your translation? Blaze said. Rixen are foreign liars, she replied. Rizaka are foreign family. The highest honor. No Rixen has been named Rizaka since Larson himself. She gestured up the beach. On the grass near the edge of the jungle, a hastily erected hut stood propped up on short stilts. That house, it's yours now. Whenever you come back, you can stay there. And when you are away, anyone who looks at it will remember that you are part of us. She met their eyes in turn. This gift, it's not given lightly. Dante looked up to Larson. In Taurish, he said, Thank you. Larson shook his head. Thank you. The older man turned back to address the crowds. This time his words were met with a wave of laughter. Every eye on the beach turned toward Dante and Blaze. There is a second declaration, Wyndon said. As Rizaka, you are also eligible to be married. I'm not, Blaze said. I already have a wife. In our lands, yes, Dante said. But not here. Blaze snorted. You should be the one seizing the opportunity, Mr. Eternal Bachelor. He glanced toward the hut. Though if you do wind up married, I'm going to have to demand a separate house. Larson wrapped up his speech. This was followed immediately by servings of barbecued red meat that Wyndon claimed was from the brisket of something called a fodder, 
and grilled fish whose flesh was even redder. Every blanket was given a heaping bowl of sand paste and a tray of tiny bowls containing various chutneys and pastes. The onions, chilies, and spices within them could have been overpowering, but they were so well-balanced Dante suspected they'd been developed by harvesters, which Wyndon confirmed. After the meal concluded, people wandered up to their blanket in a steady stream, welcoming them to Kandak. The well-wishers didn't slow down until the sun was long set and the night's breeze had gone quiet. Larson went off to speak with some of his warriors. With Blazor fetching more wine and Wyndon making a way to the privy, an old man approached the blanket and sat across from Dante. Larson says you are Rizaka, he said in accented malish. He had a curly white beard, a bald scalp, and eyes so pale blue they nearly looked blind. Before I agree with him, I say you play Wotan. Truth, lie, Dante said. The man nodded slowly. On the blanket, he laid out a set of bone dice, inscribed with Taurish numerals, setting two wooden cups beside them. Wotan, it is vital. Its gamble is not for money, it is for truths. If you win a round, you ask me anything, and I must answer. What happens if you lie? Those who lie are damned. They are, he gestured, searching for the word, marked, stained. Gavel sees this, knows you're guilty. This sounds like a strange game. Dante said. Who would want to play it? Enemies who wish peace talks. Two families whose young wish to wed. When you think a man has stolen from you, all disputes solved through Wotan. Next question. Why do you wish to play this with me? The old man smirked. To get answer, you must play. Tell me the rules. The old man's name was Starve. He was the one who'd promised to look after the infant Blaze had rescued. The basics of Wotan were similar to many games involving dice and cups. Both players rolled their dice, keeping the results hidden from each other beneath the cup. This meant bluffing was an integral part of the game. Whoever won each round was allowed to ask one question of the loser. But there were three wrinkles. First, you didn't announce your results out loud. You wrote them on a scrap of paper, only comparing them after both players had written down a number. Without knowing in advance what number you needed to beat, bluffing was complicated by how likely you thought your opponent was to have bluffed, which depended partly on how desperate they were to receive or avoid giving answers. The second wrinkle was this. If you suspected your opponent was bluffing, you could call them on it. But if you were wrong, then you had to answer a second question as well. The game had to last at least seven rounds. After that, if you won a round, you could choose to end the match rather than asking a question. This made it sound like a game of Wotan might finish in just two or three minutes, but Starve said that many games were played with advisors who depending on the arrangement, 
could help you decide when to bluff, whether your opponent was bluffing, what questions to ask, and so on. These discussions could make a single game endure for hours. The third and final wrinkle, though the dice had six sides, they weren't numbered one through six. Some showed special numbers as high as thirty, meaning that with five dice, your results could sound preposterously high. Overall, the game was simple, but Dante could see the psychology behind it was fiendish. They gathered their dice in their cups, shook them, and slammed them to the ground. Dante's added up to twenty-three. A good score, overall, but it would be beaten easily if Starf had any special numbers. Even so, he thought it was strong enough. Using a bit of charcoal, he wrote twenty-three on a scrap of a pale leaf that felt exactly like paper. When they revealed their scores, Starf had thirteen. Stav examined Dante's face. You have twenty-three. Correct. I think, Stav said after a short hesitation, you bluff. Dante lifted his cup, revealing he'd been telling the truth. I win. Twice over. First question. Why do you want to play this game with me? To learn why you have come here. What, nobody told you? The old man smiled thinly. They did. Next round? Dante swore at his foolishness. He'd had several cups of fruit wine and had blurted his second question without thinking. This round, Dante got lucky with one of the special dice, picking up a forty-nine. He wrote as much on his leave. Starv had fourteen. As per the rules, they read their scores out loud, watching each other's faces. Starve folded his arms. I accept. Good for you. Dante swept the cup away from his dice. I win again. So you have heard I came here to cure my father, but you don't believe it. Why not? Two reasons. For Cavill, I answer both. First, I doubt because I doubt all outsiders. Second, I doubt because I heard you are bad. What exactly did you hear about me? Starve made a cutting gesture. You earned one question. You have asked it. I thought you might want to answer that one out of the kindness of your heart. The old man straightened his spine, mustering his considerable gravitas. Roar. Dante came out with a twelve. Maintaining his best gambling face on his paper, he wrote a twenty-one. When they made their reveals, Stav showed a six. Yo, bluff, the old man said. Hang on, Dante said. Surely you're bluffing. That is so. And you? Yes. No questions this round, then? None. As they rolled there next, a man and a woman drifted up, observing in silence. Dante tallied his score, an even twenty, and wrote it on his leaf. Eighty-seven, Stav said. Eighty-seven, as in eighty, plus seven. 
Dante stared him down. It was an outrageous number that relied on maxing out nearly all his dice except the smallest ones. You're bluffing. He showed his dice. Wrong. Two questions. Why did you come to the island? It's just as they say, Dante said. To cure Larson. What does he matter to you? He doesn't. I came here because that would mean I'm a better man than he is. He gazed over the milling crowd seated around their blankets and laughing in the torchlight. But the trip was worth it in its own right. Starve won the next three rounds in a row, asking Dante whether he'd had any contact with the Torin prior to his arrival in Kandak. No. If he had any enemies in Kandak? Also no. And whether the Malish had any role in his presence here? Again, no. Dante won the next round with a lucky roll that Starve mistakenly called as a bluff. Does my father actually care about me, or did he only summon me here because he knew I was his only chance? The old man quirked a brow. Larson, he searched for you for years, long before he came sick. Never stopped. Why did he come here to begin with? To trade metal. Iron. Earn you a fortune. First war with Torrin, this delayed him. By the time he finished, you disappeared. Dante took the next round via bluff. Now that my father's well, do you think you can defeat the Torrin again? Starve bared his teeth and turned to stare out at the dark waters of the bay. I doubt. They have more weapons. Armor. Shodden. Second question. If Blaze and I stayed, would it make a difference? Hard to say. If anyone can kill Vorden, it is you. After that, Stav took round after round. After the fourth one, he asked if Dante thought Wyndon was pretty, which Dante was obliged to confirm. Dante finally won and declared the match over. Stav gathered his things. Find what you came here for, Dante said. Yes. The old man bowed his head. Welcome to the family. He ambled away. None of the others had come back to the blanket, so Dante wandered north, away from the torches, seizing the chance to think. In time, a young man found him pressed a cup of wine into his hand, and asked if he and Blaze would show them how to fight with swords. This drew a significant crowd, and resulted in multiple additional cups of wine. There was much laughing and the scraping of knuckles, though at least they'd had the sense to switch to bamboo practice swords. Dante glanced up and noticed the moon had advanced a remarkable distance across the sky. Most of the torches had been snuffed, leaving the beach dim. Blaze was having trouble walking. Dante helped him to their hut, then returned to the beach to try to clear his head. The sands were all but deserted. Recognizing Larson's silhouette, Dante made way toward the taller man, only stumbling once. Larson turned. Still awake. My mother, Dante blurted. What was she like? His father eyed him. 
You're drunk. So what? Larson chuckled softly. Fair question. I suppose you deserve to be. And to know this. Your mother was... very beautiful. I mean, what was she like? Witty. Her tongue was as sharp as broken glass. That was what I liked best. The way she made me laugh. She made everything brighter. She could have charged money to listen to her describe a twelve-hour sleep. As he spoke, his voice lightened with recalled memory. She loved to learn, to read. Sometimes I think this was mostly so she'd have more ways to prove others wrong. But she loved it for its own sake, too. She was always hungry. I couldn't always keep up with her— I thought when we had you, that might finally slow her down enough for me to keep pace. He found a small smile. After her death, I nearly joined her, so she could make me laugh again. But I knew I couldn't leave you alone in the world. What an idiot I was. I wound up doing that anyway. Dante took a shuddering breath and gazed toward the entrance of the bay. In two more days, the Sword of the South would arrive. The next time he turned around, Larson was gone. Dante made his way to the hut and climbed the fresh-cut stairs. Blaze snored inside. Between the wash of the surf and the perfect air, it was the most restful sleep Dante had ever had. The sun woke him too early, yet somehow Blaze was already up and gone. With a headache and a dry mouth, Dante headed uphill to the town well. When he got back to the hut, Blaze was there, puffy-eyed and sweaty. I think we should stay, Dante said. Blaze wiped his brow. Don't tell me you're actually going to take them up on the wife thing. We'll ask Captain Twill to come back again in a few weeks. Then we'll conduct a few raids of our own. Arm these people. I can make them loons, so they can coordinate with the boat growers, or anyone else Larson can rally. And we'll do our best to knock out Vorden. What triggered this about face? We have the power to help these people. If we don't, the next time we come back here, they may be nothing more than a memory. And you're sure that would be a bad thing? You'd leave them to be overrun by the Tauren, Dante said. I'm shocked. Actually shocked. I would have expected you'd be trying to convince me to stay. Yesterday I was thinking about it. Blaze slapped his palm against the wall of the hut. But our circumstances are muddier than they seem. There's something you need to see. He led Dante to a grassy path into the jungle, refusing to answer any questions. After a short hike, running water splashed from ahead. A small, two-part waterfall coursed into a misty pool. Around its banks... Rabbit-eared mulberry flowers peeped from the shadows. They were growing here all along, 
Lay said. Still want to help these people? Chapter 10 Dante moved toward the flowers in a daze. How did you find these? Last night, a woman came to speak to me, terrified. Once she'd calmed down, she said that since we'd been named Rizarka, she had something to show me. And she brought me here. Dante's hands curled into fists. Find Larson. And Wyndon. Back in town, they located Wyndon within minutes. It took significantly longer to round up Larson, blinking and bleary. Dante marched them through the jungle. Wyndon fell silent at once, but Larson kept up a breezy, amiable, confused stream of questions right up to the moment they gazed on the red flowers surrounding the waterfall. The cure for your sickness was right here all along, Dante said. Why, then, did you send us across the entire island to find it? Larson gawked. Mulberries? Here? But they only grow at the blood falls. Horseshit! They grow wherever they please, don't they? He turned on Wyndon. That's what you were doing at the basket yesterday, wasn't it? You weren't looking for people who might see us. You were destroying the mulberries you grow there. So I wouldn't see them. She couldn't seem to meet his eyes. The basket. There were no mulberries there. This is a misunderstanding, Larson said. We didn't know these were here. If we had, there would have been no reason to send you so far. Dante rubbed his hand down his mouth. Unless the trip had some other purpose, such as exposing us to the crimes of the Torin. You chose the blood falls because that's where they leave out their newborns. You knew that if we saw that, it might be enough to convince us to help you fight them. That's absurd. If I wanted your help, I wouldn't send you on some two-tailed fox hunt. I would simply ask for it. There must be something in this waterfall similar to the Blood Falls. We'll ask whoever owns this land, and then ask why they didn't tell me about it when I was at death's door. Why would they withhold the cure from you? I can't say. Maybe they'd have us surrender to the Torren. Maybe this is an old grudge. Gods know I've made my share of enemies. Wyndon strode between them. No more! Larson's eyes shifted. Wyndon, what do— I said no more! She pointed at Dante and Blaze, then stuck her finger in Larson's face. These two, they have done everything we asked, risked their lives for you, faced the Torren in battle, healed our people. All of this they have done with honor. We can't lie to them any longer. Larson's hand clenched near his belt. What are you saying? Dante, you're right. After you couldn't heal Larson with Nether, the only cure was the Mulberries. Those could have been found right here, but they also might have killed Larson, taking away our only chance to stand against the Torin. So, 
In case that happened, Larson said, we needed you to see what they're really like, in the hopes you'd take up the torch. Dante exhaled through his nose. Is this why you made us Rizaka? To try to make us feel attached to this place. And this is why Starve came to you to play Walton, Wyndon said, to learn if you wanted me. And if so, for your wife or your toy? That's why you're telling me this now? To avoid having to be my consort? No! I tell you because you have to leave on your boat. If you stay, you will get sick. Sick? Blay said. You mean with the plague? It afflicts everyone who stays here longer than a few weeks. This is why you must go now. But if it affects everyone, there must be a cure. It doesn't always work. I won't let you take that risk. Dante turned on Larson. You cared nothing about exposing me to all of these dangers. Why shouldn't I kill you? Jaw bulging, Larson stepped forward. Because it's exactly what you would have done. You don't know anything about me. I have been searching for you for years. I've heard the stories they tell about you. When the knives are out, there's nothing you won't do to win. You lie, cheat, let friends die, because the alternative is far worse. My people are on the brink of destruction. Just as you've always done for yours, I will do anything to save them. Then gods help them. Dante stepped back down the path. Wait, Larson called. The woman who brought you my note. Riddy. She believed in this as much as I did, and she was your half-sister. Dante met his eyes. Your daughter died for nothing. He walked away from the falls. Behind him, Larson said something, and Wyndon raised her voice against him. I'm sorry, Blaze said. I can't help feeling like this is my fault. That would be because it is. I would place some of the blame on that dad of yours. None of this matters anymore. The Sword of the South will be here tomorrow. We'll get on it, and we'll go home. Blaze trumped through the grass beside him. You know he's wrong, don't you? We've made a lot of tough choices along the way. We've had to find answers to impossible questions, but we've never done anything like what he's done to you. Dante nodded, but he wasn't at all sure that was so. Maybe they only believed it because the only ones who knew better were long dead, voiceless, powerless to speak the truth. The next morning they sat in the shade of their hut, waiting for the ship to arrive in the mouth of the harbor. Dante yawned steadily. Wary of betrayal, if Larson had sacrificed his daughter to his cause, he might be angry enough to try to capture or punish them. Dante had convinced Blaze to hide overnight in the jungle. There, the birds, bugs, and constant rustling of the leaves had woken them a thousand times apiece. It had been the smart move, though. They could sleep on the boat. By the hut, he kept one eye on the town. 
no one got too near. Around ten o'clock, white sails shined from the bay. Dante stood, slinging his pack over his shoulder. About time. He padded to the shore. A small canoe waited in the dry sand above the waves. They'd take it to the little island in the bay, where the Sword of the South would pick them up via longboat. Dante wasn't sure if Captain Twill intended to quarantine them after that, but after the events of the last two weeks, spending some time sequestered in a cabin would feel like a vacation. Hey! Wyndon jogged toward them, carrying a satchel. Before you go! Dante grabbed the canoe and dragged it toward the surf. Don't want to hear it. I know my apologies are worthless. I brought you something that isn't. Right now, the only bribe I'm interested in is a Larson-sized coffin. If you get sick, and it's not something you can heal yourself, these will help you. She passed him a narrow black box. It sloshed and smelled like the sea. Chardon, eat them, and then come back here as fast as you can. He held the box back out for her. Please, I've had enough of your games. She stepped closer, face barely a foot from his. No game, no lie. Stab me in the mouth if you don't think it speaks truth. I won't do that. He took the box and tucked it under his arm. But I don't know if I can trust you either. I hope you never have to see me again. He turned halfway toward her, nodded, and put his things into the canoe. Blaze hopped in. Dante gave the boat a running shove, then rolled in over the side. They took up paddles and made way to the tiny, rocky island, landing on a smooth apron scraped clean of mussels and barnacles. Mr. Narron awaited them. Survived the stay, did you? How was paradise? Hell, Blaze said. Tell me you've got rum. You insult me by asking. He held the longboat steady while they climbed aboard, then deftly jumped in behind them. As for your stay being hellacious, please tell me you didn't offend our most reliable trade partner too badly. Dante scratched his neck. He hadn't shaved since reaching the plagued islands and was looking forward to a visit with the ship's barber. Don't worry. The way things are going here, it won't be long before they're all dead anyway. Naren tucked down the corners of his mouth. I am trying not to imagine the kind of person who could make enemies of the Candaeans. The longboat splashed toward the Sword of the South, which rode higher in the water than the last time Dante had seen it. They climbed aboard, and the crew bustled to haul in the longboat and weigh anchor. On deck, Twill clung to a rope, her blonde hair fluttering around her face. You're alive, and the village isn't burning. Good news, yes? Yet you look like you just stepped in a fresh pile. That would be an adequate description of our stay, Dante said. I trust your travels went better. Much silver, minor trouble. My definition of a good trip. How's your health? Better than my mood. Her eyes moved down his form. Three days confined to quarters. 
for the safety of my men. You're a hell of a physician, but the islands carry illness beyond any magic. The ship lurched. Dante staggered, grabbing for a nearby rope. If that's what it takes to get us out of here, I'll spend the entire voyage stowed in a cask. While I encourage you to accept his generous offer, Blay said, I'll accept a cabin. They were installed in the same cabin they'd shared on the trip south. The ship entered the rough waters beyond the bay, listing as it hove east to fight free of the tremendous current driven by the swirling mill. Between the detour and the lack of friendly seas, Dante understood why the return trip would take twice as long as their initial passage. He requested and was supplied with a blank book and a quill. While Blaze sipped rum, lounged in his bunk, and did considerable napping, Dante wrote down his experiences on the island, describing the people as well as the numerous plants and animals they'd seen. Despite Larson's shameless attempt to drag them into a war, Dante thought there might yet be room for trade with the people there. And now that things had settled down, the Chardin struck him as the most interesting discovery of all. They carried nether in them, a handheld reservoir of it. It was difficult to overestimate the value of such a thing, particularly in wartime, where a skilled sorcerer could single-handedly fight off a platoon or tear down a wall. A leader who could bring Shadon to the field would have an advantage over anyone he faced. When he wasn't writing, Dante spent all three days of the quarantine studying the shells. All living things carried the shadows inside them, but the snail's tissue was packed to the figurative gills. Blaze had said they were reminiscent of the Kelleverts used in training by the people of the pocket. In his excitement, Dante tried to loon Knack to research the Kelleverts in advance of Dante's return, only to be reminded that the loons had broken. This is just great, Dante said. Shadon may be my biggest discovery since the Black Star, but mine may well be dead before we're in sight of a library. No library? Blaze said. Are you blind or just being dense? Oh, do we have one? Is it in the bilge or the poop deck? This boat makes its trade in this region. You're basically sailing on a floating library full of fleshy, walking books. Oh, right. And here's the best part. Unlike your monks and scribes who like to leave their cloisters about as much as I like being in them, the people on this boat may actually have experience with Shadon. Dante clapped his notebook shut and stood. How did I ever forget about your ongoing commitment to education? He went to Captain Twill first. When questioned, she shrugged. Don't know anything about Shadon. They seem to be the Torrens motivation for the raid, like the one you delivered us into. That's never piqued your interest. Those things are a big deal on the island. To everyone else, they're just snails. Have you ever seen them outside the plagued islands? Nope. She glanced across the deck. I'm really not your man for this. Ask Naren. He seems to enjoy being bored by nature. Dante thanked her and found Mr. Naren doing paperwork in his cabin. He didn't look pleased to be interrupted.
The captain said you might be able to help me, Dante said. I have some questions about Shadden. Naren set down his quill. And I have complaints about my workload, so make it fast. Do they exist outside the islands? Not that I've seen, though the west coast of Gask has something not entirely dissimilar. Kellivert. Naren nodded. But this is like the difference between a seagull and an albatross. Similar at a distance, but the Chardon are far, far grander. Dante made quick notes in his book. Any idea why they're confined to the island? If I would hazard a guess, because it's an island. He didn't write that down. The locals value them highly. Do you know why they don't farm them? They don't grow in the shallows, nor in the quiet places. Only where the current is hard and strong. This makes them hard to locate and dangerous to collect. After a few more questions, Dante exited onto the deck, gazing in the direction of Aron's mill. The funnel of clouds was far too distant to see, yet after speaking to Naran, he was certain the mill's nether-saturated current was feeding the shells. If true, this meant that even if he could induce Shardin to grow in Narashtavik, they would be useless. No different from the diverse snails already populating the northern city's bay. Even so, he continued to question the crew, jotting down their responses and making comparisons. He started work on a map, too, augmenting it with whatever information he could pry from the sailors. Eight days into the voyage, with six remaining, a storm hit. Even if the crew hadn't been too busy tending to the ship, Dante was unable to pursue his studies due to a violent bout of seasickness. His heavings were so wretched that Blaze stuffed cotton in his ears, then left the cabin to assist on deck. Within hours, the waves were battering the ship so hard, Blaze was compelled to return to the cabin, despite the odor. The next day, the storm had calmed, but Dante's stomach hadn't. That evening, undressing for bed, he froze. A chill ran down his spine. His stomach and ribs were streaked red. He doused the cabin's lantern. After Blaze was snoring, Dante nicked his arm and sent the nether within himself. Small black spots were suspended in his viscera. When he attempted to touch them, the shadows slid right off. He sat back on his bunk, limbs quivering. It felt like the same affliction that had nearly killed Larson. They'd treated his father's illness with mulberry flowers, yet Wyndon had only provided Dante with Chardon. And instructions to come back and see her in the event he fell ill. Why? Because the mulberries wouldn't have survived the trip? Or had they not been a cure at all? Had they been nothing more than a way to get Dante and Blaze to trek across the island? He took deep breaths until he calmed down, then tried again to heal himself. Again, the Nether found no purchase. He didn't know how suspicious to be of Wyndon. The Chardon she'd given him might be some kind of final trick or poison. Besides, he didn't know if his affliction was lethal, 
Except for plagues, many diseases had an alternate cure, one that often functioned better than anything a physician could give you. Time. It took him a long time to get to sleep. In the morning he felt hollow, weak. The streaks on his gut had darkened to a wine-like maroon. He knew they'd soon be black. Blaze was already out of the cabin. Dante reached under his bunk and got out his pack containing the box of shells. It was sodden and briny, damp from the storm, no doubt. But when he opened the bag, the lid of the box fell out. A rotting marine stench came with it. The box had been knocked open during the jostling of the storm. Given the smell, he didn't have to inspect the Chardon to know they were dead. He found his thinnest knife and sawed the snails loose from their shells, hoping to find a piece that had avoided the rot. Typically, the Chardon's flesh was an even gray. What he dug from his shells was pale, mottled with green and black. He got a bowl, filled it with water, and washed off the least diseased-looking sections. Even after rinsing, they looked awful. He trimmed off the grossest parts, and then, after considering his options, tipped back his head and swallowed the snail whole. Even without chewing, the taste was intensely bitter and familiar. He'd had it before, in Wyndon's paste made from sandroot. In the midst of trying to figure out what this meant, his stomach churned on itself like a vat of melted cheese. He barely made it to the tin pot he used for seasickness in time to catch the violent ejector. He did his best with the other two Shadden, but couldn't keep them down either. He was flinging the last sour bits out the window when the door opened. It smells like a fish's bunghole in here, Blaze said, fanning the door. Hey, are you all right? Dante lowered himself to his bunk. I'm sick. Same as Larson. Did you take the Shadden? Like Wyndon said. The box broke in the storm. They were no good. Hence why the smell is even worse than yesterday. Blaze closed the door. You're sure you've got it? Dante lifted his shirt to show the darkening streaks. I've tried to fix it. I can't. I tell you that it's no big deal, that Larson was sick for weeks and weeks, but I have the feeling they made sure he wasn't getting too bad. That's very comforting. Makes me feel even better than when I was heaving up rotten snails a minute ago. I thought you would appreciate my unflinching realism. Blaze made a fist, tapping it repeatedly against the doorframe in thought. Come on, we're going to see Captain Twill. Feeling queasy and lightheaded, Dante tucked the empty shells in the box for later study, then roused himself. Captain Twill was in her quarters and allowed them in. She took one look at Dante, and her face went as hard as the dreaming peaks. Get back to your room, right now. We have a decent idea what this is, Dante said. I was summoned to the islands to help someone who had it. It didn't seem to be contagious. So you went to the plagued islands to treat someone with this disease, which you then contracted, and you're telling me it's not contagious? It's 
more of a condition, and they know how to cure it. Which means we have to head back, Blay said. Right now. The captain sat behind her desk, propped her boots on it, and crossed her arms. Can't. Blaze moved directly across from her. I'm sorry, did I make it sound as though that was a request? What's your plan, tough guy? Take me hostage, force the entire crew to heave about? Oh, I don't have a plan. Do you think that makes me less dangerous? A knife appeared in her hand as if summoned from the ether. Blaze twitched, but didn't draw a sword. Twill bounced the knife across her knuckles, then disappeared it. I'd turn back if I could, Twill said. I owe you my life. Besides, I have the feeling you'd be good men to have owing me a favor in return. She winked at them, then went somber. But we don't have the supplies. We've had to ration what we've got just to make it to Bressel. If we turned around now, could we make it back to the island? Maybe. But we wouldn't have enough to get back. And if we took on supplies there, my entire ship could get sick. And if something happens to Dante, Blay said, an entire kingdom could crack apart. How's that? Who's he on a mission for? Himself. Her gaze shot to Dante. You're... a king? What kind of monarch has to hire a smuggler to ferry him about rather than the royal fleet? Where do you rule, South Armpit? Narashtovic, Dante said. Northern Gask. Twill laughed out loud. You're that, Dante. And I need your help. Well, I don't care if you're the king of the Celeset. I'm not putting my crew to that kind of risk. Yeah, I was afraid you'd say that. Blaze sat on the edge of her desk. So here's my next offer. Take us back to the island. We'll figure out how to cure this thing. And when we do, we'll share the secret with you, allowing you to trade with the islands with impunity. Making me very, very rich. Now you're speaking my language. She wore a large silver ring on her right hand, and as she thought this through, she twisted it back and forth. Can't do it. Out here, the only thing keeping us alive is each other. I have to bring my men into port. Give the ones that want to leave the chance to do so. We'll resupply, then we can go back. You're unbelievable. He saves your life, and when you have the chance to return the favor, you're worried about facing a few grumbles from your crew. Do you really think he's the first sick man to come back from the islands? We'll take him to the Ethermancers. Dante laughed. The same ones that were so eager to help you when you were ill. They turned me away because I'm from the Colin Basin. You look as malish as King Charles. They'll be happy to take your money. And you really think they can help me? They won't be able to cure you, but they'll be able to push it back, give you enough time for the trip back to the islands. Sounds iffy, Blaze said. What do you think? Dante shrugged. It's either that or we keelhaul her and take her boat. I've always wanted a boat. Twill rolled her eyes. I'm right here, you know. You're right, Dante said. 
I can't ask your men to sacrifice themselves for me. But please, when we get to Bressel, restock as quickly as you can. She stood. I'll start making preparations. Dante returned to his cabin. Below decks, men scurried around, rearranging cargo with muffled thumps. Dante drew on the nether, sending it back into his body. If the ethermancers could treat the illness, surely he could too. At least slow it down. Yet after an hour of the closest focus he could muster, he still hadn't found a way to touch the dark spots inside him. Would the ethermancers prove useless? Or was there something specific to the ether that allowed it to treat the sicknesses of the plagued islands? He sat up in bed. The cycle of Aron spoke of Aron's mill. Initially, the mill had ground ether, the substance of the firmament and of purity. But after it had fallen and cracked, it ground nether instead, the substance of life and death, of renewal and decay. He didn't think the whirlpool was the same Aron's mill spoken of in the stories. The cycle said Aron had placed his mill in the sky, not the sea. But what if there was some connection? What if the nether drawn to the islands by the currents had been corrupted somehow, and could only be negated by its predecessor, the ether? He spent the rest of the day reading the cycle, but found nothing that seemed relevant. He woke to the smell of burned cinnamon. Heart-pounding, he pulled up his shirt. The streaks had advanced to his ribs. Some had gone purple. The day after that, they were black. The captain sent him tea of all kinds, gathered in her manifold travels. Most were bitter or brackish. Dutifully, he drank them down. They made no difference. His body beat with a dull pain that grew more strident by the hour. Skittish shadows swam on the edge of his vision. Sometimes they seemed to take the shape of faces, but when he tried to look at them squarely, they dissolved into amorphous limbs. One morning, he found himself too weak to walk on his own. Blaze helped him totter around the deck to take in the air. Dante shivered uncontrollably. The shadows ringing his sight were no longer skittish. They seemed to be attending him, waiting, eager. The ship pitched down the back of a wave, jostling Dante from his feet. Blaze grabbed his arm and pulled him upright. If something happens, Dante said, ask the council to continue to look after the Norrin. At a distance, or the Norrin will rebuff them. You know how they are. I won't be telling them anything. Blaze relaxed his grip on Dante's upper arm. Except that their leader starts making funeral plans whenever he gets the sniffles. It's their decision as to who will succeed me. I wish to be buried next to Callie. And tell them one last thing. That you are always welcome in Narashtovic. Blaze blinked at the sea, then scowled. We'll be in Bressel in two days. A week after that, we'll be back in the plagued islands, and everything will be fine. The pain running down his spine told him otherwise, but he didn't try to contradict Blaze. 
You couldn't soften the blow any more than you could reach up and reverse the course of the sun. With Blazer's help, he made his way back to their cabin and rolled himself into his bunk. Blaze muttered something about tea and left. The ship rocked on the waves, its timbers creaking. The shadows at the edge of his vision pulsed closer and closer. The pain pulsed with them. The window was open to the sea air, but the only thing he could smell was charred cinnamon. Bit by bit, the cabin grew dark. Was it dusk already? Then how was a shaft of sunlight shining through the window? The shadows filled him, and he saw nothing. He felt no pain, no pleasure either. But the absence of his former agony felt so good, he never wanted to leave it. It smelled like dust and damp straw. No cinnamon. It was dark, but the shapes in his eyes weren't moving like the shadows had. A beam of starlight glimmered through the window, painting a silvery rectangle on the opposite wall. His heart crumpled on itself, then expanded with joy. Aron's hill beneath the stars. He had passed to the other side. No more sickness. No more pain. No more struggle. Dizzy with wonder, he rolled onto his side and managed to stand. Shuffling his feet, he moved to the window, eyes watering as he prepared to look on Aron. Below him, a city slumbered in darkness. He wasn't on the hill beneath the stars. He wasn't on the sword of the south, either. He was inside a jail cell. Chapter 11 He stared out in disbelief. Iron bars blocked off the window. Fifty feet below, three-story row houses crammed the streets. Torches flapped in the larger intersections. Shouts and drunken laughter echoed off tenement walls. Dante pressed his face to the bars. They smelled like drying blood. The moon wasn't up, and he couldn't make out much more than the silhouettes of buildings. Then the bells began to ring. Glass, piercing, the Odellian. He was back in Brussels. As the last bell chimed, the door squealed open. Dante turned, reaching for his sword. This was gone. The nether, however, was always at hand. He bit the inside of his lip until he tasted blood to feed the shadows. I wouldn't do that. The man in the door was dressed in the grey robes of a priest of Tame. In his middle thirties, he was tall, with deep-set eyes and the cheekbones of a cadaver. A ball of gleaming white ether shined in his palm. Dante let the nether retreat to the corners of the room. Who are you? Your questions will be answered depending on how cooperative you are in answering mine. What have I done to deserve arrest? Arrest? The tall man moved into the room. Two monks filed in behind him, one male and one female, along with a fourth man armed with a sword and a long knife. This is quarantine. 
for the safety of the kingdom. Refusing to aid my inquiry will be considered a threat to the crown. I am happy to assist you, however I can. And I am happy to hear that. He snapped his fingers. One of the monks produced a square wooden board, unfolding two hinged runners from its underside. He set the board on the ground. The head monk nodded at Dante, who sat across from it. His questioner kneeled before the board, sitting on his feet. From his robes he withdrew a quill, an inkwell, a sheet of vellum, and a bottle of blotting sand. What is the nature of your relationship to the Sword of the South? Dante rubbed grit from the corners of his eyes. The man's accent was neutral, neither aristocratic nor plebeian. He was clearly a monk, but wore none of the necklaces or bracelets the malish priests used to denote their primary god and their station within that sect. Highly unusual. In Malin, where the followers of eleven different gods jockeyed for the favor and respect of the court, going about your business without the signifiers of who you stood for and how important you were was akin to showing up to a battle without your sword and armor. Either this man had no interest in playing their games, or he was so highly positioned he'd already won. Commercial, Dante answered. And what was your destination? Dante glanced between the monk's silent entourage. Wouldn't these questions be more appropriate for the ship's captain? The man made a note. The captain is not your concern. I am. We were going to the plagued islands. For what purpose? I was visiting family. The monk looked up from his writing. You are malish. It wasn't a question. I was born thirty miles from Bressel. My father, however, preferred to leave a place before his footprints could overlap themselves. In time, his travels took him to the plagued islands, which he wound up favoring more than me. Then why return now? He was sick. He wanted to see me again, in case it was his last chance. The monk stared. The irises of his eyes were such a dark gray that it appeared his pupils had swallowed them whole. Were you able to see him? When I arrived, it looked like he might not make it. He made a full recovery before I left. We found these in your belongings. He produced a small bag and methodically clinked the three empty shadow shells on the stone floor. Why? Because you searched my things. You have one more chance to answer. Dante suppressed a sigh. I was given them in case of sickness. Are you aware of any other properties they might possess? I was told to eat them. I don't think they're a cure, though, because they told me to come back right away. He raised his eyebrows. Were you the one who helped me? If so, I owe you my life. You are unable to treat yourself? How would I have done that? When I entered, you drew on the nether. I've taught myself a few small things, Dante said, but I wouldn't know where to begin to cure a disease. The man picked up one of the shells, tracing his fingernails along its walls. 
Are you aware that the use of nether is forbidden here? That's why I left. I live in the Middle Kingdoms now. I had no intention of stepping foot in your city. We were supposed to resupply, then head straight back to the islands. Your very presence is profane. An insult to tame. That's why you left Malin. Why you intended to confine yourself to your ship. Yet you came to Bressel despite your knowledge that you're not welcome here. Do you think you should be excused because you tried to keep yourself only mildly blasphemous before our father? It was a matter of survival, Dante said. I believed that if I showed the proper humility, Father Tame would show mercy. The man scratched out another note, keeping his eyes locked on Dante's. Why would he show mercy to someone who disobeyed his commands? You chose to learn the nether. It should come as no surprise that this sin has cost you your life. He rose with a whisper of cloth. The male monk folded away the small table, the female monk opened the door, and they filed outside. The door closed with a bang. On the other side, a bolt rammed into place. Dante put his ear to the door. Footsteps rustled down the hall. The cadaverous man had come to him mere minutes after he'd awakened. Were they watching him? The cell appeared empty. It contained no more than a pail and a pile of straw for sleeping. But the monk was an ethermancer. Dante bit his lip again and relaxed his eyes, scanning the cell for any trace of ether. Finding no sign of surveillance, he sent the shadows within himself. The darkness that had been spreading across his body had been reduced to specks. As Captain Twill had predicted, they hadn't cured him, they'd merely reset the sickness's course. He moved to the window. Where was he being held? Not the palace. He saw no walls beneath him. Couldn't see the Chancet River, either. Yet the ringing of the Odellian had come from the east. The cathedral was on the west bank of the river, which placed him even further west, in a high tower. That left only one option. They were holding him in the Cheney Hall. This was no debtor's prison or common jail. You only saw the inside of the Cheney if you had personally offended the court or the gods. He knew where he was, and that he was in trouble. If he was careful, and waited till the middle of the night, he'd probably be able to open a hole through the wall and sneak downstairs. But if they'd taken him, he had no doubt they'd taken Blaze, and probably Captain Twill as well. He had no idea how long he'd been out. If Blaze knew where he was being held, and Dante fled the Cheney, they'd have little hope of finding each other. There was one thing he knew for sure. Blaze wouldn't leave him behind. Softly, he began to sing out the window, an old drinking tune they'd learned years earlier while hiding from fanatics in the pubs of Wetton. He'd barely made it through the second chorus when he felt a ripple in the darkness. A shadow deepened on the eastern wall. Blaze resolved from it. He was unarmed, and his face sported a number of fresh bruises. 
If you're done napping, I'd suggest we flee. What's going on? Dante said. What happened to your face? Blaze touched his cheek. Oh, that? I was a bit tortured. A bit? Like a hanged man is a bit short of breath? Why? It sounded like they were convinced I was up to no good. Thus, if I gave them the truth straight away, they'd think I was lying. Meaning, whatever I'd have to tell them next would be lies. And if they went on to compare those lies to whatever they were getting out of you and Twill, well, next thing you know, we're all liars waving to each other from the rack. So your plan was to lie, get tortured, and then spill the truth. Blaze brushed dust from his shoulder. I'm here, aren't I? I suppose there's no arguing with results. Where's Twill? What happened? You passed out. Didn't look good. As soon as we made port, Twill shoved you into a carriage and we took you to the Odellian. The monks had barely started work on you when another monk came in and started asking questions about the plagued islands. Twill tried to bluff him, but he wasn't having any of it. Dragged the both of us off. On what charge? Going to the islands, which is, apparently, illegal without a charter from King Charles himself. This monk, what did he look like? Tall, dead, and dressed like he'd crawled out of a pauper's grave. His name was Gladick. He was just in here, Dante said. He knew about the Chardon. He was trying to find out if I knew about them. Blaze walked to the window and eyed what lay below them. He was trying to unravel the same blanket with me. Think that's what this is really about, seizing the snail trade. Should we ride out to warn everyone whose lettuce is at risk of infestation? That could well be what they're after. In battle, a single live shell could be worth ten soldiers. But this could be a religious thing. Gladick thinks the Nether's an abomination. He saw me draw it. He might be afraid I was going to the island to secure an arsenal of Shorden. No way. They want them for themselves. Bet you anything that Malin's been arming the Torren, using them to gather the Shadden without risking their own soldiers on the island. Goosebumps ran down Dante's arms. Lyles, balls, you're right. We have to get out of here. Do you know where they're keeping Twill? Glazer's eyebrows raised. We're going back to get you cured, right? Don't tell me your scorn of the malice means you want to get wrapped up in their skullduggery. Hardly. When I see Winton, we'll let her know what's happening here, but I have about as much interest in getting involved in malish colonialism as I do in naked fence-hurdling. One problem. When they took us away from the Odellian, they put us in separate carriages. Twills took a different direction. I have no idea where she is. Gladick will know. Right. And, assuming you can take him, do you really think we can pound the answer out of him before his tower full of guards and monks descends on us? What else do you want to do? Go door to door asking if anyone's seen an imprisoned captain wandering around? Blaze rolled his eyes. Are you even listening to yourself? She's captain of a ship, one that goes where it pleases. We'll go to the Sword of the South and see if any of her dozens of crew know where they're holding her.
Failing that, we'll check in with the black market. Much easier to buy the information than to track it down ourselves. That's not bad at all. Dante gestured to the blank stone wall. After you. I'll give you a knock if it's clear. Blaze stepped directly toward the wall. The instant before his nose could smash against it, he dissipated into a vague black cloud. The mist streamed into the stone and vanished. Three seconds later, a low knock sounded from the wall. Dante lifted his hand to the wall. Stone drew away like rainwater into the dust. He stepped out into the hallway and sealed the gap behind him, leaving no trace of their escape. He chuckled. This is almost too easy. Quit inviting divine retribution until we're outside. Blaze strode down the hallway, which was lit by a single lantern hanging beside what turned out to be the stairwell. This was a tight spiral that smelled of damp stone. Dante took the lead. The lantern's light faded behind them, and he slowed, feeling his way forward step by step. After a quarter turn, the way ahead lightened at a landing. Dante paused. Hearing nothing, he moved on, keeping the shadows close at hand. They'd taken his boots, which might be a problem out in the street, but proved to be a temporary advantage, his bare soles eliciting no sound. They passed a second landing, then a third. At the sixth landing, the light was much brighter. Someone murmured from beyond the doorway. Dante edged one eye around the corner, spying a large open room with double doors at the far end. Blaze shook his head. One more. Frowning, Dante moved on. The light waned behind them. The air grew mustier. After several steps of total darkness, Dante conjured the smallest light he could conjure up. The stairwells stopped, feeding them into a windowless hallway. Is this the basement? he whispered. Brilliant observation. I knew there was a reason they put you in charge of a city. Is there a reason we're in the basement and not dashing away through the streets? Because, Blaze said, the basement has my swords in it. Without so much as a look around, he headed to the third door on the left. It opened to a room full of shelves of boots, cloaks, knapsacks, bundles of letters, and other personal goods of no great value. Blaze headed to the right, pulled down a pack, and passed it to Dante. It was his. At a glance, it was missing nothing besides the shorden. Blaze slung on his own pack, belted on his swords, and handed over Dante's. Been down here already, Dante said. You were out for two days. I had to find some way to entertain myself. As they laced up their boots, a shoe scraped from the hall. Dante spun on his heel. A young man bearing a lantern appeared in the doorway. He was dressed in the dark blue uniform of Malin's common soldiers. He stared at them, head cocked. What are you doing down here? Gladick sent us to pick up the new prisoner's belongings. Blaze hiked his pack up his shoulders. Is he still up on the sixth floor? 
Think he tells me these things? Then out of my way so I can find him before he locks me up. The young man stepped to the side, then stuck out his lower lip, examining their dingy clothing. Which split are you with? Which do you think? Blaze said. The one that gets sent to rummage around in a rat-filled basement in the middle of the night. You stay here. The soldier moved backward into the hall, glancing down it. Stay right- A spear of shadows struck him in the right eye. He fell to the ground like a toppled fur. The lantern clanked to the ground, spilling oil. Dante swore and stooped to pick it up before it caught fire. Blaze stood over the body. You should have let me do that. I thought you were trying to avoid killing. That's exactly why I needed to do this. I'm the one who brought us down here for my blades. Because of that, he's dead. He works for the people who took us prisoner. Dante stepped over the corpse. And the way things were going, they would have kept us here for a long time, or hanged us from a tall tree. He headed back up the stairwell. Blaze fell in behind. At the ground floor, he took another peek at the room beyond. It was fifty feet across. To the right, four soldiers sat around a table, dicing for coppers. To the left, two monks were engaged in a vigorous debate. Dante withdrew around the corner. Six men, and they're not going anywhere. Waiting in the building's only stairway isn't a great way to avoid getting caught. We need to move. Don't suppose you can turn me invisible, too. Just myself, and I'm starting to wear out. Walk outside, Dante said. Turn left, find somewhere to hide, and wait. While you do what? Coat the walls with people jelly? No one has to die. If I'm not out in fifteen minutes, get out of here. Run back to Min, and forget all about this. I found you once, but I can find you again. Without giving Dante the chance to argue, Blaze moved toward the stairwell entrance and vanished into thin air. Dante gave him a few seconds, then returned to the basement. He jogged to the body they'd left in the hall, sealed the wound on the soldier's head, and used the blanket from his pack to sop up the blood. There was nothing else he could do to restore the man's eye, so he cleaned it up as best he could, then loosened a length of the man's long hair from its tie and draped it over the side of the man's face. With a surge of shadows, he brought the man to his feet. The body stood dumbly, awaiting orders, just like the tree frog Dante had used to scout the jungle. Dante instructed the soldier to walk forward. He did so, feet shuffling, his arms hung like wet ropes, but he was moving and in uniform. Dante urged the body to walk up the stairs. They came to the ground floor landing. Dante walked out first, the corpse a step behind him, as if escorting him out. A soldier glanced up from the dice game, tracking them. On the other side of the room, the two monks continued to argue. The soldier stared at Dante until his gaming partner elbowed him in the ribs. He swore, rubbing aside, snatching at the dice. Dante reached the door first. He opened it and stepped out into the night.
It was much cooler than the islands, yet much warmer than the frigid gales blowing in from the North Sea of Narashtavik would be. He stood on the front steps. He hadn't been awake for an hour. His most recent memories before that were of descending into fever, pain, and death. In comparison, the cool wind, bearing the smell of the river, felt like life itself. A man clacked down the street on a crutch, knocking him out of his reverie. He descended the steps slowly, allowing the dead man to keep pace in case anyone was watching from above. They entered the street and turned left. Sculpted hedges lined the Chenny's grounds. Dante sent the soldier stumbling into the topiary and picked up his pace. As he neared the corner, a man exited the shadow of the shrubs and fell in next to him. How did you get out? Blay said. Dante didn't look back. You don't want to know. It was something awful, wasn't it? I'm not even going to guess. He glanced at Dante's side and gave him a dirty look. Don't let your sword flap around like a flag. This is Bressel. He'd forgotten. The armsman's gills held heavy influence here, meaning you couldn't wear a sword in public without papers. Blaze appeared to have tossed the straps of his blades over his left shoulder and covered the hilts with a thin blanket. This wouldn't have passed in daylight, but it was a few hours after nightfall, and the city watch was more willing to look the other way. So long as you made an effort. Particularly if, as Dante and Blaze were, you were dressed richly. Once they crossed the street, Dante moved alongside a building, transferred his scabbard to his shoulder, and draped the grip with the only spare shirt in his pack. They struck east, toward the river. Away from the corner, the only light was from the stars and the lanterns spilling from the windows of public houses. It hadn't rained in a few days, at least, meaning the street was dry, hazarded only by the occasional pile of grassy manure. Dante swerved around the legs of a drunk flopped outside an ironmonger's door. I don't suppose you know where the ship is? Just a guess, but I'm thinking it's on the docks. One of the biggest port towns west of the Wodens. Blaze gave him a look. Maybe you've spent so much time in your little castle that you've forgotten how this works. We're looking for information. Information is often picked up for free. Hence, people are happy to exchange it for hard coin. Particularly the type of people who make their living hanging around wharfs after dark. Forget the wharfs. We should head to the university and get you a chair. With their packs marking them as travelers, they drew more than their share of predatory eyes. As they neared a public house and inn, three men detached from a covered porch. Their leader twirled a cane. Don't kill them, Blaze murmured. Escaped fugitives and all. Hoy, the man with the cane called jauntily. New to the city, may I render my services as guide? Shoo, Blaze said, before you get the both of us carted off to Darter Lane. The man paused his cane mid-twirl. What would you know about the daughters? Last time they locked me up, the only thing that smelled worse than the privy was the food. 
The man chuckled and tipped his shapeless hat. By mistake. You have a good evening, sir. His trio retreated to their porch. Blaze moved on without a glance back. Daughter Lane, Dante said. Petty lockup. Practically spent half my childhood there. Crime school for orphans. Maybe you've forgotten, but I know this city like the back of my hand. The street began a modest ascend. At the hill's peak, they crossed an intersection into a neighborhood of whitewashed shops and row houses sporting glass-paned windows. Neat cobblestones paved the street. A pair of carriages idled in front of a hotel. They hadn't made it halfway down the block before footsteps picked up behind them. Their pursuer wore a blue hat and sash and a sword at his hip. You said you knew this city, Dante said. So you knowingly led us into a wealthy neighborhood? It's hardly my fault if someone decided to grow a crop of rich people on this street during my absence. Well, how about you lead us back to a place that's too poor for the town watch to care about? Blaze muttered something obscene. At the next intersection, he hooked to the south. After another block, the houses grew older. The cobbles ceased in favor of rutted dirt. The watchman quit tailing them and entered a tavern. Before Dante could suggest they up their pace, the man re-entered the street, accompanied by a second man in hat and sash. Blaze dodged to avoid a pile of corn husks and cobs. Why did they have to choose tonight to be good at their jobs? Need to lose them before the docks. Nobody's going to talk to us when we're being shadowed by the watch. Or rearrested. We're almost at the river. Any ideas? Kill them, Dante said. Then run. Any ideas that don't involve committing capital offenses? But those are much harder. The dirt beneath his next step gave more than he was expecting, stumbling him. Next intersection, break left. As soon as they cry out, start running and don't stop till we're at the docks. And when they follow, they won't. As they neared the intersection, Dante bit his lip. Shadows rolled toward him. He sent them into the hard-packed dirt of the street. Leaving the surface intact, he loosened what lay beneath, flooding it with water. Blaze turned left, back toward the river to the east. Boots crunched behind them. As the steps neared the intersection, both men cried out, followed by a pair of splashes. Blaze laughed and broke into a sprint. They headed north, up the first alley they saw putting a row of buildings between themselves and the guards, then continued east. By the time masts and warehouses showed ahead, there was still no sign of pursuit. It was roughly ten at night, yet the docks were abuzz, with crews spilling out of newly arrived vessels while longshoremen flowed toward them. Vendors called from their stalls and blankets, selling meat pies, tea, and beer to the workers. Blaze struck up a conversation with the longshoreman at one stall. After handing over a small stack of coins, Blaze was informed that the Sword of the South was berthed not a half mile to the south. On their way to it, they got the precise address from another longshoreman 
who'd been working there the day before. They arrived to find three armed men in blue uniforms standing at the entrance to the pier. Beyond, other soldiers stalked across the deck of the ship, bellowing orders. The Sword of the South had been commandeered. Chapter 12 They stood in the muck and gawked at the ship. Dante didn't recognize a single soul on its deck. Blaze gestured to the sentries at the base of the pier. Shall we ask them what the hell is going on? Did you forget the fugitives thing? We'll hire some street rat. Now let's get out of here before they come over for a closer look. Dante continued past the pier, ignoring the lingering gazes of the soldiers. The night smelled like fish chowder from the vendors doing a brisk business a hundred yards down the shore. Dante headed toward them, eyeballing the numerous urchins hanging about the crewmen, drinking and gambling over cards and dice. Someone who would parrot the questions he was told to ask without betraying them to the guards or angling for more money. As they neared the boisterous plaza, a shadowy figure emerged from the corner of a warehouse. Stop right there! By instinct, Dante grasped at the nether, but he recognized the voice. Mr. Naron? The man shushed them and beckoned them to him. This way. Naron turned stiffly and walked away from the piers. The thuds of cargo being unloaded faded behind them. Dante held his tongue as the quartermaster led them up a flight of stairs, through a rowdy common room, and out to a quiet veranda, which happened to have a perfect view of the Sword of the South. Mr. Naron closed the door to the veranda. Three men rose with a scrape of chairs. Dante recognized them as crew from the ship. Naron didn't seat himself. Where is Captain Twill? That's what we came here to find out, Dante said. But she was with you when you were taken. It turns out that, as our jailers, they didn't feel compelled to inform us that they were taking her elsewhere. What's going on here? Have the city authorities taken the ship? Naron exhaled and slumped back in a chair. He reached for the cup in front of him, inspecting its rim. After they imprisoned the three of you, they sent soldiers to the dock. They declared that the Sword of the South failed to obtain a charter from King Charles, and was therefore involved in illegal smuggling, hence it was forfeit to the Crown. Smuggling? Blaise said. How long has visiting the plagued islands been illegal? The quartermaster shook his head. It wasn't until recently— but they appear to have retroactively decided to ban all authorized contact with the islands. They didn't just seize the ship. They took the crew, too, as indentured servants. They will sail in the Crown's Navy until their debt has been repaid. What a band of thieves! How'd you get away? I was already off the boat. We're attempting to gather all those who avoided capture— Thus, why we're watching the pier. 
Dante found an empty cup and filled it with beer from a pitcher on the table. This is about controlling the Shadon. That's why they're clamping down so hard. Yet they let you loose, Naron said. Perhaps they'll free Captain Twill as well. They didn't exactly let us loose, Blay said. More like they didn't prevent our departure, because they didn't know about it. That bodes ill for Captain Twill. If they've enslaved her crew, as their leader, her punishment will only be more severe. Dante took a long quaff of the malish beer, which was too sweet by half and tasted like old bananas. No, it won't, because we're going to get her back before they can inflict it. Naren arched his well-maintained eyebrow. Why would you do a thing like that? I'm still sick. I need her to take me back to the plagued islands. She may be an excellent captain, but even she will find that task rather difficult without a ship. We'll figure that out later. If we can't recover the sword, I'll buy her a new one. In the meantime, we have to find her. The quartermaster had been too morose to even sip his beer. Now, though, he leaned forward, cup gripped so firmly it looked about to crack. And if we do, you will liberate her safely? I don't have a choice, Dante said. Without her, I'm dead. Naren set down the cup, drew a knife, and pointed it at Dante's eyes. Swear it. You don't have to threaten. Naren sliced open his palm, flipped the knife around, and held it hilt first to Dante. Dante eyed him levelly. You are aware that I'm sick. It could have corrupted my blood as well. And you mean to find a cure? In the meantime, let this be proof of how seriously I take your vow. Dante took the blade and cut his own palm. He'd done so far too often to wince. They shook, wet, warm blood tracing the creases of their palms. Blaze frowned at them. Now that we've completed the ritualistic shedding of blood, do you suppose we should fashion a plan? We are plying every watchman and tower guard we can find with silver, Naren said. It's only a matter of time before we find someone who knows where she's been kept. Dante rubbed his jaw. Then Blaze and I should stick with you. We're escapees. Besides, I don't know how much good we'll do searching a gigantic city we hardly know our way around. Don't be daft, Blaze said. We should stake out the Chenny. You said she wasn't there. She isn't. But after Gladick discovers we're missing, what do you think he'll do first? Go check on our compatriot. Dante grinned. He'll lead us right to her. He finished his beer and headed down to the street. There he followed his nose to the alley where the pub pitched its trash. A tribe of rats was feasting on the offal. Dante slew three of them with thin bolts of nether, collected the bodies, an intrusion that hardly caused the others to stir from their meal, and retrieved them as his walking servants. After a quick check of the nethereal bond linking his senses to theirs, he sent them scampering west toward the Chenny.
back upstairs, the others continued to watch the pier. Longshoremen were now dragging crates and casks onto the Sword of the South. Worrisome. They were planning to sail soon. Dante settled into a chair. The rats were a good three miles from Chenny Hall, but he moved into the sight of their leader on the off chance they'd see something along the way. Twenty minutes later, having encountered nothing more treacherous than boulder-sized horse droppings, the rats gazed up at the Chenny. While it was a high-profile jail, from the outside it looked like a barbarian king's first effort building with stone, a blank limestone cube, a hundred feet to a side, interrupted by narrow barred windows. It had no wings or turrets, just a small building grafted onto its roof that might serve as the offices of its steward. Dante wasn't well-versed in malish architecture, but if it ran similar to what he knew of Gask, the simple building was at least five hundred years old. He set one rat directly across the street from the broad front doors. He set a second around the building, stopping it outside a smaller door, which, judging from the unkempt grass directly outside it, was no longer used. The third rat scampered up the steps and waited. Twenty minutes later, when a guard wandered outside to light a pipe, the waiting rat trotted inside, hiding beneath a stuffed chair to the right of the doors. Inside, the tower guards continued to gamble around their table. The two monks who'd been arguing during Dante and Blaze's escape were nowhere to be seen. Over the course of the next few hours, only three people entered or exited the stairwell. None were Gladig. Dante nodded off in his chair. Jerking awake, he stood, occasionally pacing around the veranda. With his sight embedded in the rats and only a dim awareness of his own surroundings, he was careful not to get too close to the railings. Sometime later, a round of cheers stirred him from his reverie. The crew had located another member of their men. The next thing he knew, bells were ringing. Glassy, piercing. The Odellian declared it was four in the morning. We should relocate, he said. It won't be safe here after daybreak. After a brief discussion, Naren departed with him, Blaze, and three of the men, leaving two others to watch the dock. They made their way to an inn a few blocks west of the river. There, aided by strong tea that tasted as if it might have been imported from Galador, he remained awake until dawn. When an unornamented carriage rolled up before the steps of the Chenny and disgorged Gladic. He's here, Dante murmured. As before, the man was dressed in nondescript robes. Gladic ascended the steps, entered the foyer, paused as if sniffing, and moved to the stairwell. Wary of dogging the priest too closely, Dante left his rat on the ground floor. Gladick descended five minutes later. His face was taut. A second monk accompanied him. An hourglass-shaped brooch declared him a follower of Tame. Two blue stripes on his collar announced he was a Spalder, a rank that would terrify a parish priest. Before Gladick, however, 
He was fluttering like a light-mad moth. The room has been watched all night, he explained. One of the guards wandered off an hour early, but he's a known drunk. Otherwise, there have been no disturbances whatsoever. There is no possible way for the prisoners to have escaped. Quiet. Gladick stopped in the middle of the room, glaring at the wall across from him. Ether glowed from his fingertips, then dwindled away. Absently, he plucked at a loose thread in his robes, pulling it tight, letting it drop, and repeating. The captain of the Sword of the South. Does she remain in custody? The Spalder rolled his lips together. I couldn't say. We will go check on her at once. In the meantime, order the monks to lock the doors. Let no one in or out. Do you think they may still be here? If they emerged from their cells without a trace, do you really think they had difficulty walking outside? Gladick pulled the thread tight. I mean to investigate and find out if anyone helped them, and if so, to hang the offenders from the roof. He moved toward the door. Spalder ran to get there first, holding it open while he shrieked orders at the group of monks who'd silently assembled during the discussion. Gladick walked outside. With no intention of drawing more attention, besides it could still be useful there, Dante left the undead rat where it was, beneath the chair. He recalled the one that was stationed at the side door, bringing it around the front to join the one that had watched Gladick arrive. Gladick climbed into the left side of the carriage, with the Spalder circling around to the right and getting inside. The driver bawled at his horses, and the carriage rattled forward. Dante sent both rats trotting behind it, concealing themselves by running under debris and alongside the bases of buildings. In the hotel room, Dante lowered himself to a cot. Gladick's on the move. He's heading right to Twill. Blaze paced across the room. Awfully inconsiderate of him to do this when it's light out. On the other hand, rescuing her in broad daylight will only add to our legend. Do you know his intent? Naren said. He's determining whether she's escaped as well, Dante said. It sounds like he intends to return to the Cheney after that. We'll go for her as soon as he leaves her location. He shifted his sight back to the rats. The dawn had brought hundreds of people into the streets, and the vermin were busy dodging untold feet and hooves. He directed them over to the face of the buildings, where all they had to contend with was the occasional person entering or leaving a shop. Half a mile later, the carriage turned left. After a few blocks, it stopped in front of a temple of tame set off from the street by a wrought iron fence. The Spalder got out of the carriage, tugging up his blue-striped collar as he walked toward the gate. As the carriage rolled away, the rats trotted after it, sticking close to Gladick. The vehicle rambled east toward the river, then turned north on a boulevard snarled with stalls, carriages, and hundreds of pedestrians perusing what appeared to be one of the spring's first vegetable markets. The driver swore, yelling curses at the people clogging his path. 
It took him ten minutes to disentangle himself from the market and continue north. A few minutes after that, the horses came to a stop. The driver dismounted and leaned through the carriage window. Dante edged the rat closer. The men appeared to be arguing about directions. The driver was blustery and insulted, but Gladick stayed infuriatingly calm, his voice nothing more than a murmur against the noise of the street. After a lengthy dispute, the driver sighed, threw his hands above his head and returned to his seat, urging the horses forward. The route took any number of turns. Someone was nudging his shoulder. In the room of the inn, it was notably brighter, with sunlight spilling through the hearth smoke and over the scarred wooden floor. It's been nearly an hour, Blaze said. Where are they headed? East Wesley? Dante shook his head. It's like he's going in circles. Could that be because he is? Dante's blood ran cold. He ordered one of the rats to race up to the side of the carriage and leap onto its running board. It scrabbled up to the window and pressed its snout to the corner of the screen. Less than a foot away, a man in a plain grey robe sat on the left side of a bench. He had his hood raised, but when he glanced out the window, the rat had a clear view of his face. It wasn't Gladick. It was the Spalder. Dante planted his palm on the cot, steadying himself. He knew he was being watched. He pulled a switch on me, sent his underling out in a carriage while he snuck off. Naren lurched out of the window he'd installed himself in. Where is he now? That's what I'm trying to find out. Leading one rat with the carriage, he sent the other dashing back toward the Temple of Tame, where the disguised Gladick had given him the slip. The priest must have felt the rat's presence at the Cheney and suspected it was connected to Dante and Blaze's escape. Dante had little hope the man was still at the temple, but it was his only lead. Five minutes later, with the rat en route and the carriage bearing the spalder still travelling in circles, a fist pounded on the hotel door. Dante came forward from the rats, nether in hand. Blaze drew his swords. The crewmen pulled long knives. Naren opened the door. A man stood outside, sweaty and wild-eyed. He wore the slippers favoured by sailors, and a beard that couldn't decide between black and red. His name was Jonah, and he was one of the two men Naren had left on the veranda. They have the captain, he said. She's down at the dock. The men sheathed their knives and headed into the hall. Naren jogged at their four. Who is they? Jonah shrugged. Some creepy-looking spoiler. Looked like the walking dead, accompanied by about half an army and a whole monastery. We should be extremely careful, Dante said. This is probably a trap. Naren showed his teeth. They have Captain Twill. There is no more time for careful. Dante gave Blaze a look, the kind that said, Be ready to run. Blaze nodded fractionally. The group poured through the common room and onto the street. The morning air was cool and humid, 
carrying the clang of ship's bells and the squawks of gulls. While they were still several blocks from the piers, Gladick's voice pierced the air. Be laid out before you. The first, trading with the plagued islands without writ of permission. The second, transporting the sick from the islands into the city, knowingly putting our citizens at risk of pandemic. The third, and most grievous of all, consorting with blasphemers. Nethermancers, those who would undermine all for which we stand. Do you have anything to say in your defense? The words that followed were strongly voiced, but too faint to make out. Gladick had been using some trick to project his words, but there was no mistaking Twill's voice. As they neared, she grew loud enough to hear over the clap of their boots. A joke! And not a very good one! You lock me in a hole, beat me for answers, and then charge me without proof on some dirty dock! What happened to Malice, Justice, sir? the fairness that was once the envy of every place I travelled. If your goal was to learn the secret of transmuting admiration to mockery, then congratulations, sir. The alchemists will be thrilled. Naren skidded to a stop at the corner of a closed pub, peered around it, then walked from cover at a too casual pace. Dante pressed himself to the corner and beheld the plaza he and Blaze had crossed through the night before. This morning, its center was vacant, but scores of grubby sailors and locals gathered around the base of the dock berthing the Sword of the South. A row of blue-clad soldiers were lined up between the mob and the dock. There, Gladick stood apart from Twill. Her wrists were chained. A coterie of monks flanked him. Take down the priests, Naren said. We will handle the guards. Dante stuttered with laughter. Should I conquer the entire city while I'm at it? Strike the laws and exonerate her? I thought you were two steps below the gods. Those are steep steps. And Gladick may be standing on them, too. I'll do it, Blaze said. I'll shadow walk up to them, grab her before— A hundred yards away, Gladick strode closer to Twill. You mean your words as criticism? I hear only praise. We have brought ourselves closer to Tame's will. By defying that will, you are damned, and all others who travel to the plagued islands will suffer the same punishment. Calmly, he extended his hand palm up, as if releasing a butterfly. Pure white light flashed between them. A fan of red gushed from Twill's neck. She crumpled to the dock. Naren ran forward with a warbling scream. One of his men followed on his heels, but the others jogged, slowed by disbelief. At the foot of the dock, soldiers raised their chins, eyes locking on Naren. I'm on it, Blaze said. Do something to help us flee. He sprinted after Naren. Dante swore, sticking beside the pub and summoning the shadows from their resting spots behind the building's shutters. Before the dock, the row of soldiers formed a wedge. Those in the back planted spears, while those at the front drew short swords. 
Behind and above them, Gladick watched calmly. Naren's long legs were carrying him toward the soldiers faster than Blaze could close. As the quartermaster planted his right foot, Dante shot his focus into the nether inside the cobblestone in front of the man's toe, jerking the stone three inches higher. Naren sprawled on his face. Pardon, my friend. Blaze slid alongside him and waved off two approaching guards. He just loves a good execution. He yanked Naren to his feet. As Naren struggled in his grasp, Blaze wrestled his arm back and boxed his ear, grinning cheerfully at the soldiers. Jonah flanked Naren on the other side, speaking into the quartermaster's ear. Tears spilled down Naren's cheeks. The soldiers paused, glancing at Gladick, who raised his index finger. Dante tensed. Blaze, Naren, and Jonah slowed, as if slogging through thigh-high water, then stopped fast, goggling at their feet. Gladick had adhered their souls to the ground. Unhurried, he moved down the dock, ordering his soldiers ahead of him. Dante had already healed the blood oath wound on his palm. As he drew a knife to cut a fresh one, his hand was shaking so badly he nearly dropped the blade. The trick Gladick had used was one of the first Dante had learned, but the problem was the man wasn't using the nether, but rather the ether. While some were able to command both, though rarely with any notable skill, Dante couldn't lift the ether any more than he could hoist a fallen tree. In Malin, they positioned the two substances as opposites, much as they positioned Aron as the soul-starved god of death who'd do anything to murder the life-giving tame and claim the world. In treating the powers as opposites, the system encouraged the brute force application of ether against nether, or vice versa much in the way you'd fight a fire by flinging a bucket of water at it. Long ago, however, his late mentor, Callie, had taught him that the substances weren't opposites, rather they were complements, with as much in common as differences. To this day, Dante was still struggling to absorb this lesson, to learn to combat the ether in ways other than mindlessly bashing at it as hard as he could. But with the guards closing on Blaze and the others, he didn't have time for subtlety. He gathered the darkness into a black scythe and slashed at the glowing white bonds adhering his friends to the ground. They staggered forward, arms windmilling, then caught their balance and dashed toward the street they'd used to come into the square. Gladick splayed his palm. Pale lightning flashed toward Blaze. Cataracts of nether poured through Dante's veins, as torrential as the boiling springs he'd unleashed on the dreaming peaks. A dark spout consumed the forking ether, leaving nothing but a few sparks twinkling in the air. Gladick's face, formerly placid, went as stormy as the nether. Bring them to me! Dead, if you must! His monks eight in number, followed behind the charging soldiers, and Gladick joined them. Dante and the crew of the South rushed around the corner and up the street. Please tell me, Blaze said, that Gladick isn't as frightening as he seems. Okay, Dante said. 
You're just lying to me, aren't you? That's even less comforting. Well, the fact we're running in panic should have been your first clue. They swerved down an alley, navigating single file through debris and brown puddles. Footsteps racketed behind them, along with a gruff voice ordering the pursuing force to split up. Dante swore. We need somewhere to hide. Yin, Jonah said. No good. If Gladick comes around, the innkeeper will give us up in a second. Naren ran in a daze, useless for the moment. Blaze shrugged broadly. They turned another corner and found themselves running down a tight alley. The nearest intersection yawned far ahead, seemingly a hundred miles away. With the echo of boots nearing the way they'd come in, Dante touched the nether within the nearest wall and yanked the stone aside like a curtain. He shoved Naran inside. Blaze and the crewmen followed. As soon as everyone was out of the alley, Dante sealed the wall shut. Their heavy breathing filled the room. Dante got out his torchstone and blew on it. Pale light revealed a narrow space, half filled with dusty crates. Outside, feet thudded dully, dwindling to nothing. Naren turned on Dante, mouth twisted in anguish. Why did you make me run from them? Because Gladick had a small army with him, Dante hissed. You would have been deboned before you got within twenty feet. At least I would have died in the service of my captain. How would it have served her to die instantly? The quartermaster balled his hands into fists. It never should have come to this. You promised you would save her. Dante lowered his gaze. Gladick outwitted me. I'm sorry. He killed the one you swore to protect. It's your duty to kill him. Now isn't the time. He isn't some cut purse. He's an extremely dangerous sorcerer who is presently on high alert. Any one of his monks could kill you with a look. Naren sneered. Let me out of here. I can do what you will not. You go after him, and you'll die. You know how you can honor Captain Twill? By rescuing her crew still imprisoned on her ship, and getting them the hell out of this God's forsaken city. To take you back to the islands, I suppose. Very selfless of you to suggest, especially now that they've outlawed passage and no other ship will dare help you. Well. Captain Twill is dead. Our deal is annulled. Then I have a new offer. Dante got out his knife and cut his palm. I'll help free your crew. You'll take me to the plagued islands, and once I'm cured, we'll return to Bressel, and I will plant Gladick in the ground. The quartermaster's dark eyes shifted to the blood dripping from Dante's palm. You failed our last arrangement. How can I believe this one will go any better? Blaze got a wry look on his face. Because if there's one thing this man does well, it's wreak vengeance. Back at the islands, I'm surprised he didn't kill his own father. 
brows bent together. Naren laughed in shock. He glanced between his crew. You're a part of this too. What do you think? Still a lot of our men trapped on the south, Jonah said. I wouldn't sleep well if we got ourselves killed while they're chained to their benches. An older man nodded, flashing his wooden teeth in something like a grin. Besides, they're right. You'd have fought that man and been murdered on your feet. Seems to me these two saved your salty hide. The other members nodded assent. Mustering visible will, Naron straightened his spine. He extended his hand to Dante. I'm not afraid of you, warlock. If you betray me, first I'll kill Gladick, and then I'll find you. The moth clung to the side of the warehouse, motionless. Perhaps it was waiting for the night, or possibly it had recently feasted on a wool sock. It was probably dead, however, reanimated to spy on the dock where, three hours after the execution, Gladick continued to oversee the comings and goings of sailors. Dante, Blaze, and the crewmen had relocated to a warehouse a half-mile from the docks, which likely explained why the building was so little used. There, while Dante kept watch on the priest as surreptitiously as he could, the South's sailors caught naps and sharpened knives. The silver lining to the execution was that it had drawn a great deal of onlookers. Gossip flew like starlings. This had already turned up four more members of the ship's scattered crew, who Jonah relayed back to the warehouse. The plan was to attack the captured Sword of the South just before dawn two days hence. If Twill's sailors kept arriving at the current pace, however, they might be able to do so the very next morning. Around midday, Gladick finally left the pier, taking most of his retinue with him. Dante set the moth revenant, soaring high above the rooftops, trailing Gladick all the way to the Chenny. Before Gladick arrived, Dante dismissed the rat that remained at the prison. To be on the safe side, rather than pursuing the man inside with the moth, he sent it circling around the tower, traveling from window to window, until he heard Gladick's voice wafting from inside. Over the course of the afternoon, Gladick interviewed a steady stream of guards, acolytes, staff, and monks. Other than the fact that Gladick's requests for more tea were delivered in exactly the same tone as his death threats, Dante learned little. As the day departed in favor of evening, he found himself falling asleep. A rattle awakened him. The windows set high on the side of the warehouse were now dark. A few candles lit the wide space, filling it with the stink of tallow. Blaze kneeled on the floor, wrapping his swords in a blanket along with several long sticks. Dante sat up. Where are you going? Blaze jerked a thumb at the crew, most of whom were snoring in blanketed piles. These guys barely have a knife apiece. If we're going to capture the ship, I'd like to be carrying something sharper than our fists. And where do you intend to find these weapons? My old stomping grounds. 
The Armsman's Guild of Winston Dupree. Dante rubbed his eyes. Do you think you'll still know anyone? It's been over a decade. Winston might be alive and kicking. He almost never went out on jobs himself. Blaze finished bundling his weapons. Besides, you saw that place. It was nothing but old men and the infirm. They'll be happy to make a quick chuck selling their spare swords and bows. Speaking of, you got any cash? Dante handed over what little he had left. Blaze got Jonah and exited into the night. Dante checked in with the moth. Gladick remained in his office, in the Chenny, but he was alone now, writing notes. Naren stirred, moving beside him. Five more of our men have come in. This puts us at fifteen. Counting those we know were detained on the Sword of the South, only five of our people are unaccounted for. Suppose they ran off. It seems likely, though it's also possible they are drunk. Do you want to strike this morning, or give your people another day to show? Naron clasped his hands, rubbing his palms together. If your friend can bring back as many arms as he claims, we'll strike tonight. We leave word in the taverns for those we've left behind. Dante stretched his legs, then sat on a crate. Checking within himself, he found the dark spots of his sickness weren't visibly larger. He could feel them, though. He was glad Naron had pushed up the attack. If they left that night, they could be back in Kandak within a week. Dante hoped he'd last. Well after the nine o'clock bells, Gladick's door opened. A wizened man entered, completely bald, nose bent like a claw. He leaned on a tall white staff bearing a ruby the size of a walnut. The Eye of Tame. Mark of the Eldor, the highest station in the Malish priesthood. The staff was so famous, it was a stand-in for ethereal power. When children dressed up for Falmuck's Eve, any number could be found dashing through the streets, bearing a whitewashed branch topped with an apple. Gladick leaped to his feet, then kneeled, bowing his head. Your righteousness, forgive me, I did not know you were coming. That is because I didn't tell you, the old man said. So get off your knees already, unless you find that makes it easier to speak. Gladick stood, keeping his gaze lowered. How may I assist you? Your nethermancer. I hear he remains at large. The fault is my own. I should never have left him unwatched. They are as devious as they are vile. Indeed. My inattention has profaned the city. My life is yours to take. The Eldor chuckled. Your piety, as always, is second to none. Fortunately for your sake, I have been corrupted by the ways of the world, and lack the zeal to destroy valuable assets out of pique especially when those assets may be employed to correct their failure. Gladick bowed. If that is your will. 
The old man clumped toward the window, looming in the moth's cockeyed vision. Given our circumstances, however, I think now is a poor time for failure. You will catch this offender. And if you can't, you will say you have. Am I understood? Perfectly, Eldor. Wonderful. I'm very old, you see. Repeating myself reminds me of how little time I have left. He smiled and tottered out of the room. Gladick closed the door and bolted it. He sat at his desk and closed his eyes, hands shaking. Below, a carriage clattered, drawing away. Gladick's eyes snapped open. He withdrew a steel scalpel from his desk, pulled his robe past his left shoulder, bearing it, and cut a half-inch incision. As blood swelled from the wound, shadows zipped from beneath chairs and rugs, wrapping the priest's shoulder in darkness. In the warehouse, Dante folded his hands and pressed them against his mouth. Killing Gladick was going to be even more dangerous than he thought. Blaze didn't make it back until two in the morning. He smelled of rum and looked quite pleased about it. Sorry for the delay. Winston waxed nostalgic upon my return and insisted we take a tour of the old neighborhood. Were you aware this city is full of pubs? Please tell me you didn't spend all this time drinking, Dante said. Of course I did. How else was I going to convince my former employer to sell me an entire armory? With Jonah's help, he guided a hand-drawn cart into the warehouse. This was laden with swords, unstrung bows, sheaves of arrows, hard leather caps, iron-studded bracers and pieces of assorted armor that looked as though they would be dashed apart by an angry glance. The sailors had left their hardware on the ship, however, so they spent the next hour trying on bits of boiled leather and testing the balance of the available blades. Naren sent a runner to a pub Captain Twill's crew had always been welcomed at, asking the owner to inform those members who remained in the wind that the ship had departed, but would return in three or four weeks, if they wished to rejoin it. As soon as the runner returned, Naren stood, holding a saber alongside his leg. In the last few days, we have lost our ship, many of our friends, and our captain. One of these things is lost to us forever. But tonight, we will retake the others. And when we return to this accursed city, we will pay them back in full. His men responded with a compromise between a cheer and a determined grunt. They moved out into the street. Naren's most recent scouting report claimed the city had a mere four soldiers remaining on the dock, and zero monks. Dante could neutralize four guards in a wink. While the crew launched the ship, he and Blaze, aided by a handful of the more physically inclined sailors, would search the boat, do away with any further resistance, and free the indentured crewmen. They stopped two blocks away, hunkering in the shadows while sending a scout ahead into the square. He paused, 
sniffing dramatically, as if savoring the redolence of the night air, then disappeared, only to jog back to the group less than a minute later. Sir, his voice was choked, you need to see this. Naren loped forward. The square was quiet and deserted. Beside the dock, moonlight glinted on the water. The sword of the south was nowhere to be seen. Chapter 13 You have to be kidding me, Dante said. I'll be damned. Jonah glanced around the plaza. Could they have moved her to a different dock? Naren made a choking noise. He rocked on his heels, then continued toward the only person on the scene. A man sprawled at the base of the dock, cradling a bottle. The ship that was berthed here, Naren said. Where did it go? The man swung up his head, mouth wide open. Sailed out less than an hour ago. In a right hurry, too. Did you see which way it went? Where the current. Clumsily, he swept his arm south, out to sea. I suppose they thought that must have been easier than fighting it. He laughed heartily, drunk enough that obvious statements registered as profound wit. Naren held fast to the hilt of his sheathed saber. Did they say anything about where they were going? Not that I heard. Then again, they weren't taking me, so what should I care? Blaze folded his arms, contemplating the dark water. Should we have a look around? What for? the quartermaster said. It's gone. To sea. Maybe they're just seeing how she handles, or they ran into a snag and they're still in the middle of the river. What can it hurt to look? He jogged south along the esplanade. Listlessly, Naren instructed his crew to canvas the area to see if anyone knew the schedule for the Sword of the South. Dante hung about to provide protection. With dawn approaching and no leads, they returned to the warehouse, where they took off their swords and their piecemeal armor and sat among the cobwebs, eyes downcast. Naren lowered himself to the cask beside Dante. The ship is gone. After Gladick's proclamation, no captain in Bressel will dare take you to the islands. If you wish to survive, I suggest you get a horse and ride to another port at all possible speed. You're going to give up, then. What about the rest of your crew? They're still slaves of the king. How can I free them when I don't know where they are? Someone must know where they're headed. We just have to figure out who that is. Even if we knew their destination, we would have no way to get there. All I can do is wait here for the ship to return, or for you to come back from the islands so that we might kill Gladick together. He got up and circulated among his men, speaking in low tones. Dante ran through his options. Orlingham was the largest city south of the mountains, separating Malon and Gask. He could possibly find passage to the plagued islands there. However, even if he refreshed his horse with nether and pushed it to the brink of death, it would take at least three, if not four, days to get there.
It was further from the islands than Bressel, too. At least eight days, and more, if the captain didn't fancy sailing as close to the mill as Captain Twill had. Two weeks or more, then. It would be the death of him. He'd have to find somewhere closer. And gamble that he could bribe or threaten a captain into taking him on. He'd have to steal two horses first, though. They'd spent the last of their money on weapons for Naren's men. He was still sorting through the details when Blaze arrived from the docks, looking tired but in reasonable spirits. He drew Dante aside. I'm going to present you with a fact, Blaze said. I'm not going to tell you what to do with it, though. That's up to you. Here it is. Four piers down, one of the king's ships is tied up, and all ready to go. You want to steal the king's ship? Why not? I imagine he's lousy with them, considering how casually he snatches them from other people. He already took ours, and we only have the one. So who's the real ship thief here? We might be able to talk Naren into that, Dante said. He gets a new ship, I get passage to the islands. Then we come back and stick a knife in Gladdick. A win all around. I was thinking more like we use the crown ship to take back the Sword of the South. Dante crossed his arms. Aren't we introducing unnecessary links to the chain? If we've got one of the crown's vessels, why bother with the South? Because it's full of slaves, who lost their freedom in the course of helping us. They were being paid to do that. If they didn't like the idea of going to the islands, they could have hopped ship. Which they might well have. If they'd had any idea, they were transporting someone the Malish legal system considers more dangerous than an erupting volcano. We can't leave them in the king's fetters. We don't have time for this. We have no idea where they've gone. They barely have two hours on us. And as for where they've headed, I think you can figure that out easily enough. You once tracked me across the entire continent, didn't you? Dante bit his lower lip. We'll take the crown ship. If one of the sailors here has something I can use to find the south, then we'll go after it. But if not, we'll head straight for the islands. Deal? Blaze stuck out his hand. Deal. And let's never tell them that we had this discussion. Dante moved to the middle of the room. The sword of the south is gone, but we've still got a chance to find it. Does anyone here have anything that was once owned by one of the members who's been indentured? A personal effect of some kind? The men glanced between each other. After a moment of silence, a man rooted through his pockets and produced a folding razor. This one was Fraser's. I won it playing pig. Exactly the sort of thing I'm looking for. Dante accepted the razor with a smile. If he had any piece of a person's body, he could follow the nether within that portion to the nether inside the rest of them. He found no blood along the razor's edge, however, and when he sank into the few shadows clinging to the metal, he felt no resonance within them. He handed back the razor. Anything else? A sailor handed over a comb that appeared to be made from the spine of a fish, with its ribs serving as the teeth. Hairs snarled the ribs, but when Dante touched the nether within the strands, the pressure that formed in his head pointed straight to the man who'd given him the comb. 
Someone gave him a coin stamped with the face of a foreign king, a good-luck charm given to him months earlier. But this turned up nothing. Neither did the half-dozen other trinkets the crew scrounged from their pockets. That ran them out of objects. Dante sighed and let the nether slip away. They're lost, then. Well, Blay said, shall we move on? What's next? A little land piracy? Hold up! A sailor who was little more than a boy shuffled forward, cradling one of the bone flutes they carved at the islands. This was Carrick's. Jonah snorted. So you're the one who stole his flute. He didn't shut up about that for three months. Only used it once. Felt too guilty. But if I'd given it back, he'd have known I was a thief. Thought about pitching it overboard, but I couldn't bear the idea. He treasured the stupid thing like it was his own son. That's because it was given to him after he saved an island child from drowning. The boy blinked back tears. If he hadn't made such a big deal about it, maybe I wouldn't have taken it. Let me see. Dante took the flute. There was nothing out of place on its outside, but a thin sheen of nether clung to its interior, perhaps where Carrick's spit had dried. Faint pressure bloomed in Dante's skull. Slowly, he turned in a circle. As he came to face south, the force increased. He grinned. You may be a thief, but Carrick will have to thank you for it, because you've saved him from years of servitude. The eastern clouds glowed grey in the coming morning. A light mist sifted from the river. This wasn't thick enough to provide any meaningful cover, so rather than advancing in a single suspicious cluster of seventeen men, they moved down the esplanade in groups of two to four. The morning's first shifts were already on the move, but the longshoremen trudging toward the docks were too bleary-eyed to pay the small groups any mind. They stopped two blocks from the Malish royal vessel. It was a trim-looking caravel its two masts sporting tall triangular sails. A nice bit of luck. Dante was no grizzled mariner, but she looked pretty fast. Assuming the crew knew how to rig it, he had no doubt they could overtake the Sword of the South. Around him, the men looked eager to try. When Blaze had voiced his plan to them, and Dante explained that he could track the missing ship, they'd agreed without a single complaint. This despite having been up all night and suffering the shock of losing the South in the first place. Now they were on their way to the first of two hijackings. Dante would have expected some of the men to have quietly slipped away, yet not a single one had abandoned the others. Twill's loyalty and respect were paying off beyond the grave. Dante had already reconnoitred the crown vessel with a dead rat and discovered the sailors sleeping below decks were chained to their bunks. They too were indentured or enslaved. This was strange. Was Malin really that hard up for workers? And not so lucky for the sailors themselves, but it would make Dante's job a little easier. Don't get all heroic in there, Dante told Blaze. If things take a turn toward chaos, jump right back over the side. Abandon you to your fate? Got it. Blaze finished stripping down to his small clothes. 
his sword strapped to his back. See you in a minute. He strolled down the muddy banks and waded into the water. As Dante kept watch on the ship's deck, Blaze swam alongside the dog, approaching the boat in perfect silence. As he neared the hull, he vanished. Dante nodded to Naren, then walked alone down the dock. A gangplank ran up to the ship. Earlier, a pair of soldiers had stood around it, but it was presently vacant. He crossed the gangplank and descended to the deck. Seeing no one, he cleared his throat. A man wearing a blue cap and a sword appeared from the crates stacked around the aft cabin. Stop right there. Who are you? My name is Holton, Dante said, and I was sent here by Gladick. The anger fled the man's face. Gladick? What's this about? Yesterday's execution. I need to speak individually with your troops. But none of us were there, sir. Then my interviews will be blessedly short. If Gladick learns I didn't conduct them, however, then the only thing shorter than our chats will be my life. Two more blue-capped troopers exited the cabin to stand behind the first man, who narrowed his eyes. May I see your writ, then? Dante scoffed. Why else would I be here at this unholy hour? I'll need a writ, sir. Or I'll need you off this ship, sir. There's no need for this. Get your people up here, and I'll be out of your way in five minutes. I said, move. The man reached for his sword. Blaze materialized behind them and drew the man's blade, whisking it to the side of his neck. You, meanwhile, should embrace stillness. That goes for all of you. Dante gathered the shadows in his hands and made the dark swirls visible. One of the soldiers yelped. We're commandeering this boat. You have a choice. Keep your traps shut and we'll drop you off on our way out of the harbor, or make a ruckus and I'll drop you off in a hundred miles of open ocean. They put their hands up. Dante kept eye on them as Blaze tied their hands and gagged their mouths. I count five free men below decks, Blaze said. Only two of them are awake yet. Everyone else must be on shore. Dante turned to the pier and waved both arms above his head. Naren jogged forward, his men a dim mass in the dawn. Once he arrived, they'd take the hostages downstairs and convince the remaining men to give up without a fight. Naturally, this bloodless scheme was Blaze's idea. Killing them all would have been easier and less risky, but Dante had to admit there was a certain thrill to executing their plan so efficiently. As Naren's men arrived and piled onto the boat, a frantic bell clanged from the mainmast. A silhouette stood high in the rigging. Help! We're being boarded! For the love of King Charles, send aid! Dante swore like the sailor he wasn't and hurled a spear of shadows into the rigging. The alarms and shouting stopped cold. The silhouette leaned backwards, then plummeted to the deck landing with a crunch. I thought you'd check this thing out, Blaze said. I always forget boats have three dimensions. He found Naren's eye. Get underway. We'll secure below decks. Naren nodded. Boots thumped about them below. 
The lantern that had been illuminating the lower level went out. A door slammed. Keeping the nether close, Dante started down the ladder. Once he was a few rungs down, he jumped, casting light across the hold as he landed on the wooden floor. Crates and bins lined the walls. Blaze slid down the ladder and drew his swords. Dante moved forward into a bunk room, hammocks slung from the walls. Faces stared from each one, eyes bright in the harsh glare of his nether-fed light. One man raised a hand and pointed behind them to a closed door set into the rear wall. Above, Naren's crew called back and forth, stomping around like parade ponies. A heavy chain, the anchor, most certainly, clunked against the hull as it was drawn in. Dante moved to the door, Blaze by his side. He tried the handle, but the door was lodged firm, bolted. Go ahead and stay in there if you like, Dante said, but in about ten minutes we'll be on the high seas. A wary voice sounded from the other side of the door. How many of you are out there? Just two. We don't mean to hurt you. Wood scraped. The door burst open, and a man charged forth, leading with his sword. Before Dante could put him down, Blaze lunged, parrying the blade and impaling the man's chest. A second thrust put him down for good. Five other men in blue caps waited inside the doorway, swords in hand. One edged nearer. Stop it, Blaze shouted. This is your last chance to not be killed. After that, I turn you over to Mr. Guy you consider a demon here. Taking the cue, Dante spread his palm, enfolding his hand in darkness. The men backed deeper into the room. After a brief discussion, they handed over their swords. Dante marched them to the ladder. While the soldiers were still ascending, the ship swayed, pulling away from the dock. With all of the sailors engaged in the business of shoving off, Dante and Blaze saw to their new prisoners, binding their hands and stuffing them in one of the cabins. The ship cut downstream toward the middle of the river, the pier shrinking behind them. You got us out of there in record time, Mr. Naren, Dante said, once the man was unengaged from his duties. Or should I say, Captain Naren? The man tugged on the hem of his jacket, straightening it. I never wished for this responsibility. I liked what I did, and what Captain Twill did as our commander. Given that I'm hundreds of miles away from the city I govern, maybe I shouldn't be handing out advice about responsible leadership. But I think you're the right man for this. You have a sense of justice, and your men respect you. Is that all it takes? It also helps to smite your enemies, Dante said, but that will have to wait until later. Naren gazed at the grey waters rolling out before them. Yet you have more than that. You have a second set of eyes, a voice that's not afraid to speak up when you've stepped outside the path. Oh, you're free to borrow him if you like, especially if there's barnacles that need scraping. But you see, the role of advisor was once mine, and I'm discovering it's much easier to question orders than it is to give them. Well, now that you have your own command, I can let you into the Secret Leaders Club. The only truth we've managed to confirm is this. None of us has the faintest idea what we're doing. 
Naren gave him a look. I can't tell if you're joking. Think about how much confusion your own life provides. Now, multiply that confusion by the number of lives under your leadership, and consider that your morass of confusion is just one of thousands bumping through the fog of the world. This comparison may be less inspiring than you think. It's frightening to sail into such dark seas, Dante said, but there's comfort in it too. All you have to do is keep both eyes on the way ahead and a firm hand on the tiller. Commotion arose along the shore, with blue-capped men running down the esplanade, but the caravel soon put the soldiers behind it. It threaded through the central arch of the Titan's Bridge and swooped past a number of barges beginning the day's journey upriver. As the sun cleared the trees and buildings, the horizon of the sea spread out before them. They loaded the captive soldiers into one of the ship's two longboats. Blaze untied their hands. The caravel slowed enough to lower the longboat. Once it was clear, they rehoisted the sails and left Bressel behind. The pressure in Dante's head continued to point south. He didn't have a precise gauge of the distance between them and the Sword of the South, but guessing it would be several hours before they closed the gap, he retired to a cabin to grab what sleep he could. Shouts summoned him from slumber. As shouts went, they sounded excited, but not entirely happy. Out on the deck, the sun stood at roughly ten-thirty. Men scrambled about, trimming the sails. Blaze strolled toward him, yawning as if he'd been asleep, too. Guess that head of yours is good for something after all. Naren thinks we've spotted the ship. Dante touched his forehead. The strain within it had increased significantly. He spotted Naren on the aftercastle and climbed up to meet him. White sails shined on the fringe of the horizon. That's the south, Dante said. I have no doubt. Naren smiled grimly. Me neither. I'd know it anywhere. I know its limits, too. With this wind, we'll be on them in two hours. Do you think they'll fight? We'll offer them the chance to surrender. Given the recent fanaticism in Malin, I don't think they'll take it. What then? We're faster. We'll come up beside them, lash ourselves together, and board them. Naren rested his hand on the grip of his saber. I'll be glad to have you with us. A boarding action is like an entire war compressed into the space of a ship's deck. Bit by bit, they gained on the south. Naren asked Dante to follow him below decks. There, several armed crewmen stood watch over the press-ganged slaves they'd found aboard the vessel. As of our taking of this ship, you are free men. Naren announced. You may leave the next time we make port. In the meantime, if you expect to eat, then I will expect you to work. The indentured crewmen exchanged looks. A grey-bearded man said, Pardon me, sir, but I couldn't help overhearing that we're headed into a battle. That wouldn't be the work you have in mind, would it? This is our fight, not yours. However, we're about to find ourselves with two ships rather than one. This will necessitate expanding our crew. If you wish to join us, we'll welcome any man who will aid us in the fight. 
Who exactly are we fighting? Naran smiled grimly. The Malish. This drew a number of hard looks. Of the fifteen indentured sailors, six volunteered on the spot. Naran instructed his men to arm and prepare them, then climbed back to the deck. He glanced at Dante sidelong. Was that all right? Perfect. You're sure? He lifted his chin. I felt a little stiff. Yet six of them signed up to risk their lives in a battle they know nothing about. You must have done something right. The gap between themselves and the fleeing ship narrowed. Yellow-brown hunks of kelp speckled the waves, as if a recent storm had churned up the seabed. White birds rode the undulating swells. Around the deck, men strung bows and donned boiled leather armor. Others dragged up ropes and grappling hooks from the hold. As they came up on the south starboard side, Jonah moved to the prow, signaling with a white flag and a red one. From the south's aftercastle, a white flag answered, indicating surrender. Stay ready, Naren called, and remember Captain Twill. The sword of the south let its sails droop, slowing. The caravel did the same. As they neared bow range, Dante cut his arm, holding the nether close. White light streaked through the briny air and smashed into the caravel's mainmast. Ethermancers, Dante shouted. To arms! Splinters showered to the deck. A deep gash had been gouged into the middle of the mast. A second bolt of whiteness darted from the south. Dante met it with a stroke of shadows, sending the bolt careering off into the sky. Naren's archers dropped to one knee, steadying themselves against the roll of the ship, and fired onto the deck of the opposite vessel. Arrows answered in return, clapping into the caravel's boards. One landed six inches from Dante's foot, prompting him to dash towards the base of the aftercastle. As he ran, he deflected another bolt of ether, then a third. A grey robe fluttered behind a hastily erected wooden barricade. Dante lashed at it, dashing it apart in a storm of shards. The monk stumbled back. As he did so, two glittering spears of light stabbed from the fore of the south. Both hammered into the wounded mast. Men cried out. The mast groaned like a feverish giant. With a deafening pop, it gave way, thundering into the railings on the caravel's starboard side. The ship sighed against the waves, slowing. Blaze rushed toward Dante, ducking as arrows whisked through the air. Blaze slid in beside him. Have I ever mentioned how much I hate you guys? I can't protect the sails and attack the sorcerers, Dante said. It's one or the other. And if we try to board while their monks are out and about, our people will be reduced to a salty puree. Dante paused to knock down an incoming whir of light. The boat tilted jarring him into the wall of the aftercastle. The mainmast was dragging in the water, listing the entire boat. Men hacked at the rigging, tying it to the ship. The sword of the south sails went taut. It began to pull ahead. Can you slow them down? Dante said. If I knock out their mast, we'll never make it to the islands before the sickness takes me. 
Then tear down their sails, fool. We can repair those. I'd better be able to do that much. If I can't, we'll never see them again. Get us close enough to toss a rope across. Blaze stood. I'll take care of their priests. He jogged toward Naren, who was yelling and pointing, stirring his demoralized men back into the fray. Dante waited for the next bolt of ether to lance forward. He parried it and answered with a flock of blade-like shadows. These swooped into the south's rigging. Sails dropped to the deck with a whoosh of canvas. With a lurch, the south slowed. Volleys of light flashed toward the larger of the caravel's remaining masts. Dante drew shadows from all sides, dissipating the attacks in a blizzard of sparks. A vest-clad sailor skipped toward the port railing, twirling a many-fluked hook over his head. He let loose. It arced between the two boats and held fast within the railing of the south. Blaze vaulted onto the railing, arms windmilling. He steadied himself, stepped onto the rope, and vanished. Dante was too preoccupied with another flurry of ether to concern himself with trying to cover Blaze. On the south's deck, a sailor ran toward the grappling hook, sword in hand. Naren yelled at his archers. Arrows pounded into the other ship, knocking the sailor down. Sunlight flashed on steel. Blaze materialized behind a monk, thrusting both swords into the man's back. The monk screeched and tumbled forward. A second monk stood from behind a bench. Dante splayed his palm, reaching into the nether within the man's heart. The man jumped back, gesturing furiously, severing the cord Dante had sunk into his chest. While the monk was still flailing, Blaze turned, wheeling his swords. The man gestured more, scrabbling back. Blaze blinked out of being. The man spun side to side. Blaze spotted in and out. Ether flared past him. The next time he appeared, his right-hand sword was already mid-swing. It cleaved through the monk's neck. The head hit the deck, tumbling toward the railing with the roll of the ship. It caromed into a baluster and splashed into the sea. Naren's crew threw grapples across the gap, snarling the rigging and the rails. As archers exchanged fire from both sides, the sailors heaved, pulling the ropes tight. Another bolt of ether winged toward the larger remaining mast. Dante flung a hasty counter, and the bolt clipped the mast a third of the way up, spraying bits of wood. He pointed to the monk, hidden behind the sword of the south's mainmast. Blaze nodded and sprinted forward, leaping off the aftercastle and rolling across the deck. He sprung to his feet, swords in hand, blinking out of sight. Ether ploughed from the monk's hands. Blaze winked back into being, driven backwards by the raw strength of the attack. He hit the railing and toppled over. With a vexed look on his face, he plunged into the churning sea. Chapter 14 Blaze hit the water with a spume of bubbles. Dante watched helplessly as the two crippled boats continued forward. At last, Blaze broke the surface behind them, pawing at the water. At the railings, Naren's sailors pulled hard on their ropes, drawing the two ships nearer. It would be impossible to untangle them now. Blaze was being swept further away by the moment. 
On the deck of the south, the remaining Ethermancer dropped his hands to his sides, summoning pure light from the air. Lacking the finesse to brush the opponent's attack aside, Dante had been clubbing them down with sheer force. His control of the nether was beginning to waver. If he expended any more, he would be vulnerable to the monk. Yet if he waited another moment, Blaze would be lost amidst the churn of the waves. Shadows gushed toward him, coating his arms. He channeled them into a ball of kelp floating just beyond Blaze. Arms shot forth from the mass, spraying foam into the air. Dante was a piss-poor harvester, so he made up for this in the only way he knew how, by pouring as much nether into his work as he could summon. Within a blink, a rubbery raft grew beneath Blaze, lifting him above the surface. As the two boats cleaved closer, drawn by the sailors' grapnels, Blaze raised his arm and waved. Dante staggered, collapsing onto his rear. His vision went gray, blackening at the edges. Motes of light squiggled across his eyes. On the deck of the south, the enemy monk shaped the ether into a spear and swept up his hands. A barrage of arrows flew from Naren's archers. Distracted by his opportunity to kill Dante, the monk didn't see them coming until the missiles were buried in his body. He dropped to the deck, trying to patch the bleeding with the light, but the ether dispersed into the air, returning whence it had been summoned. The boats clashed together, rocking Dante's head back. With a roar, Naren led the charge onto the Sword of the South. Before the captain landed his first blow, Dante's eyes went dark. Water dashed his face. He sputtered, pawing madly to get his head above the sea. Unconscious, he must have slid over the edge. But his hands waved through empty air. Blaze stood over him, laughing. Dante cocked his fist and punched him in the ribs. Blaze rubbed his side. If that's how you're going to celebrate our victories, remind me to throw the next battle. Dante lay in a familiar bunk. He was in a cabin on the Sword of the South. He wiped water from his face with his blanket. We won. And you're alive. Quick thinking with the kelp raft. Naren's retaken the South. They came around for me once the melee relented. If you're feeling up to it, Naren's people are sporting a few injuries which I'm sure they'd appreciate being magically erased. Dante sat up, taking stock of himself. He felt hollow, with a tingling that verged on pain, like a burned finger in the moments after it's removed from the water that's been cooling it. He brought the nether from the corner of the dim cabin. As it neared him, it began to sizzle. He jerked his hand, dispersing it. I'm a little thin at the moment, he said. They're going to have to rely on traditional treatment until tomorrow. I'll let them know. Oh, more good news. Naren left some of his crew to patch up the caravel, but we're underway. He expects to reach Kandak within the week. Blaze patted him on the shoulder. So try not to die before then. All right. Dante fell back asleep. When he woke, it was still light out or rather, it was light again. He'd slept for an entire day. 
He felt much better, but the dark specks within him, signifying the sickness's progression, had doubled in size. He only had a few days before the symptoms began again in earnest. Outside the cabin, stretches of railing had been smashed, temporarily replaced with ropes. The rigging had been mended with far greater care. Large, wine-dark spots stained the decks. A young man scrubbed at the blood, but judging by his expression, he knew it was futile. Where life was extinguished, you couldn't erase the stain. It was a sunny day, with a strong northerly wind, propelling the ship through the waves at a steady clip. Dante didn't see Naren anywhere, so he headed below decks. Jonah swung out of a hammock. A bandage swathed his left arm. Look at that. The shipwrecker's up and out of his cave. He was grinning, but some of the men recruited from the caravel were watching Dante the way they would if a crated bear had escaped its cage to wander about the hold. The shipwrecker, Dante said. All I did was cut a few sails. Tame's priests were the ones who knocked down our mast. He kept an eye on the strangers as he said this. One of the men softened his expression, but the others remained leery. Dante knew the Malish had always been hostile toward Aron and anything connected to him, including the use of the Nether, but he'd been away from his home nation for so long that he'd forgotten how deep the prejudice ran. He had shrugged it off like a sheer robe, but that didn't speak to his broad-mindedness so much as the fact that pursuing the Nether had allowed him to rise from nothing to a position of great power. In Malon, worship of Aron was banned outright. Now, it seemed as though Nethermancers were being hunted down like rabid dogs. Dispelling the crew's ingrained suspicion would take some work. I wouldn't discard a nickname as fine as that so easily, Jonah replied. Most people wind up with ones that are far worse. He glanced toward an older man. Isn't that right, toothsome Jim? The older man sucked in his wooden dentures, scowling. Dante chuckled. I didn't come down here to argue nicknames. I heard some of our people were hurt. If they'll allow it, I'll tend to them. Jonah gestured him on. The rear of the sleeping quarters had been cleared out to serve as a makeshift medical station. It smelled like sweat and bandages. Men lay in hammocks, eyes shut tight, brows furrowed in pain. There were seven casualties in total, with wounds ranging from deep cuts to a broken leg to two severed fingers. As he approached the sailor with the broken leg, the man's eyes opened. Seeing Dante, his hands tightened on the hem of his blanket. I'm here to fix your leg, Dante said, unless you think that would be unnatural. The man sat up. The movement made him go rigid with pain. Sweat popped up along his greasy hairline, but he forced himself not to make a sound. You think you can patch it up? In less than a minute, I can make it as good as new. But if you have a problem with what I do, please let me know so I can save my abilities for your peers. A fat bead of sweat slipped down the man's sun-cracked face. His nose was crooked from an old break, 
and he had heavy, protruding brow ridges, giving him the thoughtful, wary look of a large bird. His eyes hopped skeptically between Dante's. As the man hesitated, Dante's resentment swelled. He said nothing. The only way to change his mind was to show him that the nether could bring good as well as pain. Besides, they'd had to split the crew between two ships. If Dante was going to make it back to the plagued islands, he was going to need every able-bodied crewman they could get. Well, it hurt, the sailor said. For a moment, then it'll be as if nothing had ever happened. His eyes lowered to Dante's right thumb, which was still stained black by the time he'd summoned so many shadows it had nearly killed him. And when the darkness comes, will it leave a mark? Dante smiled thinly. Don't worry, no one will know that I helped you. The sailor pressed his hand over his mouth, then nodded sharply. Do it. He moved to expose his leg, but Dante stopped him. I have no need for my eyes. Hearing this, the man's expression grew warier than ever. Dante laughed inwardly and sucked the shadows from the wood of the hull. A dark mist hung over the sailor's extended leg. Eyes bulging at the manifestation, he began to hyperventilate. Dante let the mist linger another moment, then sank it into the man's leg. The bone came first. It was shattered, but the nether remembered the shape of how it wished to be. As the shards fit together, the sailor screamed, head lolling, bone knit to bone. The man straightened his neck, blinking hard. The pain! It's... I told you it would leave, Dante said. Now hold still, one wrong move and I might accidentally merge your legs together. I'm not sure you'd enjoy life as the world's ugliest mermaid. The suggestion ran counter to Dante's goal of knocking some sense into the man, but the aghast look on his face was worth it. Dante moved the nether through veins and flesh, tying each strand back together. The man's leg jerked. Seconds later, Dante stepped back from the eagle-browed sailor. You're finished. Gently, the man pulled the blanket free from his leg. I don't feel a thing. That's the point. If you'd prefer, I can re-break it for you even faster than I put it back together. The sailor stared at him long enough to conclude he was joking. He unwrapped blood-caked rags from his splint, revealing smooth, tan skin and a straight shin. He swung his legs off the side of the hammock and slowly extended his leg. He pressed the ball of his foot to the floor, then laughed in disbelief. The other wounded men watched in awed silence as he stood and reeled across the bunkroom. I'm... He clapped a hand to his mouth and burst into sobs. Dante rushed toward him, sprawling forward as the ship pitched down a wave. What's the matter? Does it hurt? The sailor shook his head, tears streaming down his cheeks. A break like that would never have healed, right? Climbing rigging with a warp leg, why, you might as well have asked me to leap over the moon. I've been with the Sword of the South for fifteen years, and I thought this voyage was to be my last. Before Dante could respond, the man hugged him hard. 
After the battle, the injury, and his subsequent time in the hammock, the sailor smelled gamier than a sack of badgers. Then again, Dante was sure he didn't smell much better. Anything I can do for you, the sailor said, withdrawing. You have only to name it. I'll take you up on that, Dante said. But let me see to your friends first. After the display put on by the healed man, whose name was Benny, all but one of the other wounded enthusiastically accepted Dante's aid. The single holdout was a young, blond man with a deep cut on his forearm. Dante was afraid he'd suffered ligament damage, but the boy shook his head, muttering something about witchcraft. Dante didn't press him. With his work concluded, he ascended above decks with Benny. Compared to the hold, the air was chilly, but much cleaner. Somewhat sheepishly, Benny grinned, gripping the railing and gazing out to the blue-gray sea. Now that the moment's passed, I'm not sure what a man like me can do for a fellow like you, but my offer remains. You said you'd been with this ship for fifteen years. The sailor nodded proudly. Since Captain Dacker's, he's the one who showed Twill, smooth seas for her soul, the passage to the plagued islands. Has Malin had a presence there all this time? Not hardly. Now and then you'd see a ship flying the king's colours, but back in those days they feared the sickness too much. It was mostly outfits like us. What changed? Benny chuckled darkly. What else? The Shadow Rebellion. The Shadow Rebellion? What was that? The Chainbreakers' War. Blaze appeared behind them, speaking around a mouthful of spring apple. That's what they call it down here. He frowned at the sea, then waved to the stern. Northward toward Malin. I mean, up there. Pretty cool, eh? Dante grabbed the apple and took a bite. What, you knew about this? The giant war that almost killed us on twenty different occasions? If I think very hard, I can recall a detail or two. Now unhand my apple. I'm starving, and I mean the timeline. Malin only started plundering the islands after the war. I don't know anything about that. I spent some time in Wetton afterwards, but I didn't hear of the plagued islands until you did. Then maybe you can quit interrupting the person who does know what he's talking about. He turned back to Benny. Do you know why the Crown suddenly took an interest in the islands after the war? Benny shrugged one shoulder. They haven't exactly been champing out the bit to explain. Sorting through the tangled nets of rumour, though, I'd say they were looking to strengthen their fleet and leverage it to dump a new stream of silver into the coffers. I see. Well, if you remember anything more concrete, I'd very much like to hear it. What is it that brought you to the islands anyway? A man named Larson Galland. Do you know him? Name rings a bell, but I'd bet a week's rum rations that my pal Julson knows him. Benny gestured up at the rigging. He's on duty at the moment. Want me to bring him around once he's done? Please. The sailor smiled, flexed his leg, and did a little jig. Thanks again for what you've done for me. I won't forget. He bobbed his head and jogged down the deck, presumably in search of Captain Narren. Blaze smirked.
Odd, Dante said. I'd accuse you of growing an interest in philanthropy, but I think you just enjoy showing off what you can do. How dare you? I would never abuse my powers for anything as petty as vanity. This was for the morally righteous goal of extracting information from people who wouldn't otherwise give it. Blazer's amusement dwindled. The Chainbreaker's War is the reason Malin is interfering with the islands, isn't it? It must have scared them. Show them what a resurgent Narashtavik looks like. They must have feared they were next. And moved to secure a supply of Shorden to fight us with. The timeline fits. They're more fanatical than ever, too. I doubt it took much to convince King Charles of the necessity of a southern expedition. In a way, then, we're to blame for what's happening on the islands. The Malish wouldn't be backing the Torin if not for what we did in Gask. Spray wafted over the railing, leaving the hairs of Dante's arms bright with tiny droplets. We freed the Norin. We did what we had to do. Sometimes I have to vomit. I have no choice in the matter, but that doesn't change the fact it makes an awful mess. We can't control what the idiots in Malin do. Blaze leaned over the rails, eyeing a grayish, indistinct lump breaking the surface a hundred feet to starboard. We're from Malin. We know what they're like. We could have guessed there'd be a response to their ancestral enemy kicking up dust again. So what should we have done? Left the Norrin in chains because malish fearmongers might use their freedom as an excuse to go crush an island we didn't know existed? I'm not saying we shouldn't have done what we did, but we could have been more mindful of the consequences. Sent people south to keep an eye on the place, or you might have traveled to assure the court you had no designs on their land. I was rather busy ensuring our land wasn't retaken by the Gascon Empire. So was I, believe it or not. Blaze brushed crystallized salt from the backs of his hands. It's too easy to forget about everything except what's right in front of you. To think you're isolated from anything that's too far away to see with your own eyes. But we're all a part of everything. We can't escape it. And if we ignore it, then we share responsibility for any wrong that comes after. It's not that easy. Leading a city or a nation, the weight of history is always dragging you down. There's no way out of the morass. You can't let the fear of how others might respond stop you from doing what's right. Otherwise, the world will stay wrong forever. I'm not sure it's as simple as I'd like it to be. But if there's one thing I know for sure, it's that when leaders talk in abstractions, it's usually to rationalize away some horrible misdeed. So let's get specific. We helped drive the Malish to the plagued islands. Are we obligated to help drive them out? Right now, my only obligation is to get myself cured, Dante said. After that, we'll see where we stand. Fair enough. Right now, the only thing I want to see about is lunch. Blaze wandered off, ending their talk. After a minute of watching the ocean, Dante began to suspect Blaze's departure was actually a fiendishly calculated maneuver to get Dante to continue the discussion in his own head.
After how he'd been lied to by his father, Wyndon, and basically every islander he'd encountered, he was inclined to leave them to their fate. But that was the spite talking, wasn't it? No matter how wretched the Candaeans might be, the Torin were far worse. So what to do about the Torin and their malish co-conspirators? Goaded onward by the whips of history and fear, malish aggression toward the islands had been precipitated, at least in part, by Dante's rebellion against Garsk. If he could boot the interlopers out with a word and a wave of his hand, he'd surely do so, which meant it wasn't a matter of whether he thought the malice should be tossed out, but rather of how much risk he was willing to absorb to make that so. He was still thinking of ways to do so without implicating Narashtovic when Benny returned in the company of another sailor. While Benny was middle-aged, thick-browed and gangly, the crewman beside him looked boyish, despite a thick beard, and had a paunch which, on a man as young as himself, suggested he no longer cared. He wore a distant-eyed, taciturn expression that looked more suitable for the solitude of a mountain cave than the cramped quarters of a ship at sea. This is Julson, Benny said, but you can call him Julie Boy. Don't call me Julie Boy. Julson shifted his feet. Benny tells me you're off to see Larson Galland. That's right, Dante said. I'd like to hear what he's like, if you would. The bearded man squinted. You're not a close friend of his, then. He snorted. You might say that. Good thing, because Larson Galland's been dead for nearly a year. Chapter 15 Dante cocked his head, examining Julson's face for signs of a joke. You must be mistaken. That's impossible. Julson didn't waver. Not two hours ago, Benny Here's leg was as floppy as his yard. You went and made it good as new. For all I know, you cured his willy, too. There's magic in the world, sir. You practice it. Yet you want to tell me it's impossible that a man could fall victim to something as common as death? Correct. Because I saw Larson in the flesh not three weeks ago. He laughed. No, you didn't. Are you calling me a liar? Not necessarily. You could be stu- Benny socked Julson in the shoulder. Shut your gob, fool. Without this man, my sailing days would be over. Tell him what you know, or I'll use you to bait the crab traps. Julson stared at him, unswayed, then sighed through his nose and shifted his gaze back to Dante. One trip here, we made a deal out on one of the swappers, had everything all squared away with the Candaeans. When it came time to pick up our share, though, Naran discovered the islanders had set out the wrong kind of spice, so he wrote up a note and sent me ashore. I was the newest of the crew, you see. Expendable, in case I caught plague. When I came back, though, I thanked him, because while I was ashore, I met Nasia, my dark-haired beauty. He smiled to himself. For all his world-weary airs, Julson seemed eager to unlimber his story. After that, whenever we came through, I came ashore. To be with Nasia. At the start, it wasn't easy. We had strict schedules, and I don't know how much you know about the islands, but they don't look fondly on foreigners. Rickson, 
Dante said. That's right. Well, I didn't give a damn for what they thought of me. All I cared about was my girl. If they'd asked me to, I would have swam the current all the way from Kandak to Aron's mill. Not the one in the sea, either. I'm talking the one in the sky. I have no doubt as to your devotion to dark-haired Nasia. My apologies for rambling. I didn't realize you were in such a hurry to swim on ahead. Julson aimed a pointed look at the featureless ocean that surrounded them. No, Larson Galland was once Rickson himself, and so they'd assigned him as Master of Rickson Affairs. That meant I had to spend a good long time with him. At first, to explain my intentions. Second, to prove I was worth the hassle. Third, after I had proven myself, to check in and make sure I wasn't causing no trouble. We went on like this for almost three years. Every time we came through, I got to see my Nasia, if only for a few hours. When the Sword of the South wasn't scheduled to go to the islands, Captain Twill let me crew on a ship that was. Sometimes, when the South visited with the intention to return soon, I stayed ashore while it was gone. Not long enough to catch sickness, mind. No more than a few days at a time. During his recollection of these times, warmth had entered his eyes. He'd even smiled. Now, though, his face became as cold as the crags north of Narashtovic. Ten months back, we swung through the islands. Normal trip. But when I went ashore, they stopped me right on the sand, said all Rickson were forbidden. I told them I knew Larson. They didn't care. I tried to storm past them. Would have gotten into a right brawl if Nasia hadn't showed up to explain. She told me Larson was dead, that a fellow named Niles Adner had taken over his role, and that he'd kicked all foreigners off the islands. I asked her to come with me. Begged, more like. She said she couldn't leave her family. And that was the last time I ever saw her. He blinked, focusing his mile-off stare at Dante. That's how I knew Larson Galland. And that's how I know he's dead. Not to be indelicate, Dante said, but these people lie more than a six-year-old thief. You're sure they were telling you the truth? Got another explanation? None that would be polite. But it occurs to me the young woman might have decided she no longer relished your company and employed this excuse as a way to spare your feelings. Julson chuckled darkly. You almost made that sound like it's not an insult. You claim you've met Larson Galland. So what's he look like? Black hair, streaked white. Dirty grey beard, blue eyes like mine, bit hefty. You've just described a million different men who are getting old, but ain't yet elderly. This one, where his earlobes stuck fast to the side of his head, or did they hang freely like yours? I can't say I noticed. Then here's an easier one. Did he have a scar, right here, up past his hairline? Where no hair grows? That's right. There you go. Julson gestured. That's Niles Adner. If Dante hadn't already been hanging onto a nearby rope to combat the pitch of the ship, he might have fallen over. Do you know what happened to Larson? Died campaigning against the Tauren. Sounds to me like Niles has been impersonating him, eh? Now why would he do a thing like that? You'd know better than I. 
Julson combed his fingers through his beard. They look close enough to pass, if all you knew was what you've heard of them. Crewed together in days of yore, came to the islands together. Niles was a natural replacement. Wouldn't have any idea why they'd want him to pretend to be Larson, though. The sailor gave a bitter little laugh. Like you said, though, they treat lying like an art. Maybe they just wanted him to keep his skills honed. He turned to go. Dante grabbed his short sleeve. What was he like? The Larson you knew. What's it matter now? I'm no Rickson. I'm now Rizaka, and can come and go as I please. Tell me about Larson, and I'll tell Nasia anything you want me to. Don't know what else I'd have to say to her. Julson sucked on his teeth. Then again, I've run my idiot mouth so much here, what's another minute? Larson was a funny guy. Not like puppet show funny, although now and then he'd come at you with a line sharp enough to gut you. But funny, like playing with a sword. Handle yourself correctly, and he'd be right friendly. No harm would come to you. He grinned. The second you slipped up, though, he'd cut off your hand without a blink. He must have had some sense of justice, Dante said. The way most of them talk about Rickson, they would never have let you onto the island, no matter how benign your motives may have been. That's what I'm saying. He always treated me fair. From what I hear, he was a hell of a leader, too. Back in the day, he brought everyone together to fight down the Tauren. The alliance might not have been enough on its own, but he pulled off some neat maneuvers at sea. Not easy, given the currents. Dante was ready to ask for more, but at once there didn't seem to be any point. Like Julson had said, Larson was gone. So what did it matter what kind of man he'd been? Besides that, if Dante stayed in public much longer, he was liable to hurt someone. Thank you, he said as levelly as he could. What would you like me to tell Nasia? Julson sniffed. Tell her, hello. That's it. That's it. Dante moved to go. This time it was the sailor who reached out and grabbed his sleeve. One more thing. Tell her that I'm still here. And so is my offer. Dante made something close to a smile, then headed straight to his cabin. As soon as the door was closed behind him, Shadows streaked to him so swiftly he thought he could hear them screaming. The entire cabin darkened in a flurry of black snow. His nerves thrummed with a harsh and punishing coldness. It would be enough to burst the cabin apart, to punch a hole in the side of the ship and take them all to the bottom. Breath by breath, he let it slip away. The knock came ten minutes later. He'd been expecting it. He didn't open his eyes. What? Blazer's voice filtered through the door. Just checking we're not all about to be sucked down to hell in a typhoon of blood. Dante didn't respond. The door creaked open. Blaze entered and shut the door behind him. At least you knocked this time, Dante said. Is it true? Julson has no incentive to lie. He spent significant time around Larson, and his temperament matches his story. He was kicked off the island, separated from his love, and has been embittered ever since. 
So let me see if I've got this. The Torren are raiding Kandak again. On a scouting mission, Larson is killed. With the Kandayan's leader gone, along with all hope of victory, his friend Niles hatches a desperate plan. Pretend to be Larson, then lure Larson's son, rumored to be all-powerful, to come to the island to help defeat the raiders. Something like that. A plan which would involve getting the entire town to follow along. The ship rolls down a steep wave. Dante grabbed the edge of his bunk. Is it that hard to believe? Oh, I don't think it would require the threat of invasion to convince these people to lie to us. I think they'd do it just to get themselves a second piece of pie at dinner. Blaze tipped his head. To be fair, though, I'd lie for pie, too. These people are diseased, with something worse than any plague. I sense some wrath coming on. Niles had better pray I die of sickness before I reach the islands. Are you sure you want to get into it with him? Blaze said. He lied to me, lured me to the plagued islands to drag me into this fight, knowing it could take my life in the process. I'm well within my rights to claim his life is forfeit. I'm not sure I disagree with you. Then why are you trying to talk me out of it? Blaze folded his arms. Because I'm not sure. Then it's a good thing I have enough confidence for the both of us. Maybe you should be glad about this. My dad's dead, and his imposter's lies have caused me to become deathly ill. What on earth would I be glad about? At least it wasn't your father who tricked you. Dante laughed in disbelief. I can't believe you actually found a way to make me feel better about this. His improved mood didn't last long. Then again, such moods never did. The day ended in gusty, chilling winds. At least it meant they'd go faster. He woke to a hollowness in his stomach. Outside it was raining in heavy oceanic sheets. It was cold, but he stayed in the rainfall, hair plastered to his head, a temporary reprieve from the salt that constantly crusted his skin and clothes. The day after that, he woke to sunshine and fever. He moved about the deck in silence. He remained angry, but with no ability to act on it, his rage settled in his stomach like hot silt. Day by day, the air warmed until most of the crew worked shirtless, yet Dante found himself shivering. The dark specks inside him expanded inexorably. He slept in later and later. Blaze began to hover about, bringing him watery tea and flaky biscuits. Dante studied the illness inside him as best he could, but it remained impenetrable to the nether. His head grew too hot and foggy to focus for more than a few minutes at a time. He was in his bunk. The door opened, bringing painful light. Blaze said, We're passing the mill. Dante got his feet to the floor and shuffled outside, holding onto a rope or a rail at every step of the way. The funnel of gray water connected the sea to the sky. He thought he could hear it roaring, but maybe that was his heartbeat in his ears. The day after that, he was too weak to lift his legs out of his bunk. All he wanted to do was sleep, quit, close his eyes and leave them shut. 
but he had to hold on. He had to see Niles Ardner. Out on the deck, men shouted. Dante's eyes snapped open. He gasped, inhaling. Had he stopped breathing? A fluttery strength trickled through his limbs. Outside, a blue shape stood on the horizon. The island. He sat on a bench at the base of the aftercastle, willing his eyes to stay open. The sword of the south came about the slashing green cliffs of the Jaladi coast and hove into the bay at Kandak, dropping anchor just beyond where the waves broke against the reef. Blaze and Benny helped him into the longboat and rowed across the turquoise waters. The tiny waves lapped at the shore with lake-like calmness. Dante stepped onto the sand. A handful of locals watched, their work forgotten beside them. Wyndon ran down the path to the beach, arms pumping. She took one look at Dante and reached for his hand. The sickness, she said. I'm so sorry. Where is Larson? Later, right now, tell me where Larson is. She swayed back. This way. She hiked up the hill. Dante followed, drenched in sweat. His heart pounded. A pair of villagers waved from the shade, where they were trimming lengths of bamboo. Wyndon cut right, away from the houses on their stilts. After a traipse through the jungle, they emerged into the basket, where Larson was examining a violet flower. Seeing Dante and Blaze, he placed a hand on the small of his back and straightened, smiling sadly. Wish I could say I'm happy to see you, he said, but I know what must have brought you back so soon. Dante barely heard the man's words. Tottering forward, he drew his sword and swiped at the man's neck. Larson, Niles, cried out and ducked, falling prone to the purple dirt. Dante raised his elbow for a downward stroke, yet with his sword poised to strike, he found he no longer had the energy to swing it. His elbow quivered. Without warning, his legs gave out. He collapsed to his side. People were talking. They sounded concerned, but Dante didn't feel a thing. Salt. Slime. In his mouth. He spotted, coughing, sitting up. He was installed in a bed. A wind blew through the open wall, ruffling the gauzy curtain. Wyndham stood over him, holding a wooden spoon full of chopped gray bits. Dante wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. What are you doing? Trying to finish me off? The Chardon, she said. It will help you. It already has. He was in a hut quite possibly the one he'd been granted as Rizaka. Crystal blue waters shimmered beyond the other wall. He had a faint headache, and his limbs were shaky, but his fever had broken. The Chardon will help me for a week or two, he said, but what about a cure? A cure? Wyndon lowered her gaze, loose strands of hair undulating in the breeze. There is bad news. There isn't one. 
He waited for the shock and outrage to arrive, but he was too exhausted. There's no cure. Nothing permanent. There is only treatment. The sickness, it's called Ronone. The damnation. We all have it. We don't know what causes it. Is Shaddam the only thing that helps? That is why we need them so badly. We eat a little bit with most meals. That explains the brackishness of the sun paste. Do the snails grow anywhere else? No. There is something here that feeds them. The mill, Dante said. But there must be some way for you to leave. The woman who came to see me in Galador was from here. My half-sister. Unless that was another lie. Her name was Ridi. If you have our water, you can carry live Chardin with you, but they last no more than a few weeks. That's what killed her. It wasn't the Netherbur, and she ran out of Chardin. Probably so. It takes two weeks just to sail back to Bressel. The ship to Narashtovic would take nearly a month total. If the Chardin only lasted a few weeks, I couldn't make the trip back. He found her gaze. That means I can never go home. She closed her eyes. I'm so sorry. The curtains stirred in the wind. The hut's ceiling was high, drawing the warmer air away. Dante pulled the sheet from his body and found that he could stand. I need to see Blaze, he said, and Larson. Why did you try to kill him? Blaze didn't say. She shook her head. He hasn't said a word, except to ask how you are. Show me to Larson. First promise you won't hurt him. I'm stuck on this island for good, Dante said. If I want to kill him, you won't be able to protect him forever. Wyndon pressed her lips together. You're right. He is the one who brought you here. He will have to answer for it. Dante's sword stood in the corner. He picked it up and followed Wyndon into the daylight. As it turned out, Blaze and Larson were right there on the beach. Blaze appeared relaxed, but Dante could see the alertness in his stance. He'd been watching over Larson. Seeing Dante, Larson's face went slack with relief. You're alive, thank the gods. Dante drew his sword, throwing his scabbard aside. If I'd died, it would have been on your hands. So let the gods know who to blame, Niles Ardner. The old man's mouth fell open. He held an arm out to his side. How did you find out? One of the sailors knew my real father, and unlike everyone on this damned island, people elsewhere are capable of telling the truth. You'll get no more lies from me. Larson Gallant fell in battle with the Torin. My plan was desperate, but it was the only way I knew how to save our people. I'm starting to think they don't deserve saving. You want my life? Niles tugged down the collar of his shirt, exposing his tanned, wrinkled throat. Go ahead and take it. Dante's hand flexed on the hilt of his sword. 
He could imagine the feel of his arm lifting, wheeling the sword across the air and into the softness of the man's neck. Yet something stopped him. It certainly wasn't mercy. This deceiver deserved death, and probably one worse than Dante could have delivered with his sword. Though several people were watching from the shore and from the food stall in a shaded square uphill, he wasn't all that concerned about the publicity of it either. He had no intention of living with these people. If they came for him in the jungle, he'd cut them down easily enough. The problem was that he had no intention of staying on the island. Somehow, he would find a cure. Niles Ardner had been able to convince everyone in Kandak to bolster his lie. A man like that could be very useful. And if he wasn't, then Dante could always water the jungle with his blood on a later day. He pointed his sword at Niles's neck. You will help me find a cure, and to get away from this island forever. The man inclined his head, careful not to slice his chin on the blade. I can't promise I can find a cure any more than I can promise to cut down the moon like a coconut, but I swear I'll do everything I can to get you home. He gave Dante an arch look, and I'll even repeat that vow after you've lowered your sword. Dante picked up his sheath and put away his weapon. I've read what little is recorded of the island's history. Your people once left here without worries. All we have to do is rediscover what they knew. Back up a ways, Blaise said. What exactly do you need a cure for? Didn't the shells do the trick? There is no cure. That's why you have to go back to the Sword of the South, before you catch the Renone sickness, too. Let me get this straight. You want me to leave you here to die? I won't die. Not as long as we have a supply of shells. But there's no telling when I'll find my way out of here. Blaze glanced up at a cardinal peeping away on a branch. Then it sounds like it'll go much faster if I'm here, too. Dante threw his arms wide. There's no reason to put yourself at risk. What if you get trapped here, too? Nah, I have faith you'll figure this out. Don't you? And what would Min say about this decision? Blaze set his hands on his hips. First off, that is a low blow. Second, inasmuch as Min loves me, it's because I'm the kind of man who doesn't turn tail and run when my friends are in trouble. If I start doing that now, she'd probably leave me. I highly doubt that's how she'd look at it. Well, she's not here to ask, is she? And I know her much better than you do. Hence, you'll have to take my word. It seems to me, Niall said, that if he wants— Shut up, Dante said. No one asked for your opinion on this. Blaze, I know you think you're being noble, but this has crossed the idiot line. Perhaps you've spent so much time beyond that line that you no longer recognize it, but this idea is so dumb it couldn't feed itself without the help of a team of three servants and a guidebook. I want you to go back to the boat, and I want you to do it right now. Blaze took a half-step to his right, placing himself entirely within the shade. If that's how you feel about it, I'll go, then. And I'll take my idea with me. What idea? 
The one that's a thousand times better than anything you'll ever come up with. So tell me it, and then go to the boat. It's a really good idea, Blay said, but there's no guarantee it'll work, which is exactly why you need me around. If you get into trouble trying it alone and fail, then you might spend ten years searching for something else as good. So I won't give it to you unless I'm here to help see it through. Dante took a rag from his pocket and dabbed sweat from his brow. If you're that set on this, I don't see how I can kick you out of here. So out with it. All right, then. You said the histories say the people here used to be able to come and go as they please, right? The older ones, yes. But that seemed to stop at least five hundred years ago. That's when the old ways were lost, Niall said. And no living soul remembers. Not a problem, Blay said, because we're not going to ask the living. We're going to ask the dead. Dante laughed. Slowly at first then with increasing heart. You're right! That's good. That's very, very good. You want to travel into the mists, Wyndon said, as they do at the Dreaming Peaks. Is there anything stopping us? Yes, and no. Anyone can visit the mists, but doing so, it's not that simple. Sure it is, Blaze said. We chew some leaves, go on a magical journey, and ask the old folks how to get the hell away from their beautiful, lovely island. Saving our ancestors from the mists is our most sacred act. We may not even be allowed beyond the past lands. The monks may need to go in our stead, but the peaks have been captured. Enough, Nile said. No more lies. We're talking about the Dreaming Peaks. We're talking about saving Dante's life. And if he's able to find a cure for the Renone, we wouldn't be bound here any longer. If the Torrin try to destroy us, we can sail away. Wyndon's face went stony. But this is our homeland. Niles laughed bitterly. Is it? And if it's a choice between dying on our homeland and living in a new land, would you really choose the point of a sword? If we tell them, and the townsfolk learn of it, we'll be dead either way. I'm not a monster, Winden, and neither are you. We can save Kandak and set Dante free. If our people want to kill us for that, then we'll be waiting for them in the mists. They glared at each other. After three seconds, Wyndon gritted her teeth. This is the way you want it? Then this is the way we'll do it. It's a long story, Niles said to them. Let's find a place to sit down, somewhere a little more quiet. He led them a long ways down the beach to a spot in the sand, shaded by a roof of overhanging trees. Fallen pods and leaves coated the sand. He swept them away with his sandaled feet, clearing a spot to sit. What I'm about to tell you is our deepest truth, 
now said. It's forbidden to outsiders, Rizaka or not. Not even all our own people know it. By telling you, I can be put to death. I don't say these things to impress you or to make myself look selfless. I think we're well past that point. Blaze chuckled. Dante didn't. Niles went on. I'm telling you this because if we're doing this, there are things you need to know about the dreamers and the mists. And so that if anyone asks, you know to keep quiet and pretend your head's as empty as a faded shell. Got me? Empty-headed is Dante's specialty, Blaze said. As for myself, I'll swear the sky is green if that's what it takes to get us out of here. Understood, Dante said to Niles. The older man leaned forward, hands clasped in his lap. Five hundred years ago, the plagued islands weren't much more than a legend in Malon. In so much open sea, Malish galleys were most often lost than able to make it here. And those who stayed too long caught the Renone. Rowing back to Bressel, half the crew would drop dead before making it home. Some ships lost so many men they didn't have the crew to go on. Officers would pack themselves into the longboats and leave the oarsmen to starve. The few who returned told such harrowing tales that only the mad considered braving the trip to the south. But the survivors also brought back accounts of riches, plants and herbs that could cure all manner of ailments, and the Chardon, which could turn an ordinary nethomancer into a legend. The king at the time, Jordus of High Hill, poured rivers of silver into his plagued island's ventures. Along with funding voyages, he offered a hefty bounty to the captain who found safe passage, but he met with no success. Twenty years later, with Malin teetering on the brink of bankruptcy, King Jordus earned a dagger in his back, and the woman who ordered his death took his throne. Her name was Freda. To separate herself from Jordis's failure, the only interest she took in the islands was to denounce them as a death trap. Thing is, if old Jordis had lasted a little longer, his investment might well have saved him. After twenty years of trial by fire, or, more aptly, trial by water, Bressel's captains were starting to experiment with sails. The new sloops they produced were too small to deal with ocean storms, let alone the mill and its current, but the ships gained use anyway. Much cheaper to crew a little sailing vessel along the coasts than to maintain a hulking galley full of slaves. Ten years into Queen Freda's reign, a woman called Hallie Dane arrived in Bressel. The Danes were a noble house, more than wealthy enough to leave each of their children with an estate of their own. Rather than splitting his holdings in this manner, however, the Lord Dane only passed his land to his five sons. Halley was provided with a modest inheritance, but it wouldn't be enough to live out her days on. So, she hatched a plan. Moving to Bressel, she commissioned the construction of a much larger sailing vessel. Her goal to take it to the plagued islands and amass a fortune so vast it would shame her neglectful father's ghost. 
Two years later, the wind splitter was finished. It was the first carrack in Mallon. But Halley's wealth was exhausted. She'd have the funds for one trip and no more. The wind splitter sailed south, past the mill and into the current. It reached the islands. Hallie didn't stay long, but she was able to befriend the people she met here, who were known as the Dresh. And when the Windsplitter returned, bore such treasures that Captain Hallie nearly recouped everything she'd sunk into her ship. Within two years, she had three more vessels. Within five, she had enough silver to buy herself a title, along with her father's manor from her eldest brother, who'd fallen into rough tides. A man was walking down the beach toward them. Niles paused to sip from his waterskin, nodding as the man walked by. Once the wanderer was around a bend in the beach, Niles went on. But when you land a fish of that size, the gulls come out to grab what scraps they can catch. Others began to travel to the plagued islands. They were far less savvy than Halley. Some got into fights with the dredge, and the sailors brought disease back to Bressel. Queen Freda used this as an excuse to seize the trade lanes. She banned all travel to the islands. When Halley and the other captains continued to smuggle in their goods, Freda put together a grand expedition. Its goal was to capture the islands and build forts on its harbors, ensuring that only those who flew the crown's colors could do business there. Her armada sailed forth. A score of ships bearing two thousand men. The dresh fought back, but as usual they were divided. One after another, each town fell, but the invasion had a hell of a time with the Tauren, along with the Candaeans. During the fighting, infrastructure was destroyed, including the small Chardon farms both groups had managed to cultivate across generations. Meanwhile, the conquerors set up their forts. Soon, they all developed Ronone and they began to need shells, too. Oh, hell, Blaze said. Niles gave him a grim look. See where this is going, do you? In this case, I hope I'm much dumber than I think. Please, go on. Well, it wasn't long before the Shadden dwindled. At first, Freda's conquerors had the locals collecting them, but as they returned with fewer and fewer shells... The Malish started harvesting them instead. Soon, there weren't enough to go around. Bet you can guess who got the cure and who got nothing. Some of the Malish chose to sail back to Bressel. They died to a man. The Dresh fared little better. Between the invasion, the poxes brought by the Malish, and the Renone, almost every native islander died. The few that didn't become servants, or married into the Malish. Within a generation, their entire people had vanished. And the Malish invaders were trapped here to live atop the graves of those they'd slaughtered. A year after the first expedition, Queen Freda sent a second mission to learn what had happened. The stranded soldiers warned the newcomers away, told them that plagues cursed whoever traveled here. Trade ceased. Over time, the Malish survivors became the Dresh, adopted their clothes, their ways, their harvesting, even what remained of their speech. 
And we made lying into a virtue, because that was the only way to hide the horror of what we'd done. With his story complete, Niles took a deep breath, eyes downcast. This is all very extraordinary, Dante said, but I'm not sure what it has to do with us. Wyndon told you what the dreamers are up to, didn't she? They travel into the mists, to rescue the dead who have been condemned as liars by Cavill. Niles smiled with half his mouth. That's the story we tell the Rickson. Truth is, the dreamers don't go into the mists to rescue our people. They travel there to beg forgiveness from the islanders we killed. We believe that, when every single Dresh has forgiven us, they'll teach us how to lift the curse of the Renone. Dante drew back his head. The dreamers have been working on that for hundreds of years, haven't they? We know virtually nothing about this place. How do you expect us to do what your people can't? I don't. The dead wouldn't give a damn and a half about you. I'm telling you this so you understand what you're walking into. The people you want to speak to, they see us as mass murderers. It'll be harder to pry anything out of them than it is to talk the bones out of a live fish. I'm sensing a problem beyond the whole angry ghosts issue, Blaze said. According to what you said, the Dresh suffered the Renone, too. So, assuming we can get any of them to talk, why do you think they'll know anything about the cure? Because as recently as two or three hundred years before the Malish arrived, the Dresh sailed freely, without the need for Shaddon. I don't know what caused them to lose their cure, but that's what we're traveling to ask, isn't it? Dante frowned heavily. If it's that simple, why didn't the afflicted Dresh go and ask their ancestors how to lift the Renone? Niles lifted his eyebrows a fraction of an inch. The Dresh's ability to travel into the mists was very limited. It said that it was like trying to speak underwater or swim in mud. Our harvesters worked for years to refine the plant until we were able to send the dreamers all the way in. And in almost five hundred years, it's never occurred to your people to ask the older Dresh. He laughed. They'd never tell us that. If we knew how to cure ourselves, we could escape here and leave our crimes behind. It sounds like we'll have no chance of convincing them to spill their secret. Don't be too sure, Wyndon said. The dead, they don't think like we do. And you're Rixon. You won't carry the same stain we do. They might be willing to bargain. They're dead, Blay said. What would they want from us? A fresh delivery of worms? We won't know that until we're inside and through the past lands. And those are... They take several forms. They may be a cherished memory, or a wish made real. This place, it seems to be intended to hold the dead fast. Some spent decades there before moving on to the mist. Others never leave it. Come to think of it, I've been there, Blaise said. So maybe I can show the rest of you the way out.
Everyone goes into the past lands alone. It will be up to each of us to navigate through. Rougher than it sounds, Niall said. Once you're there, you forget everything. If you try to remember, it can come back to you, but if you're too far gone, you may not want it to. He stood, brushing sand from his seat. But this can wait until we're closer to ready. How long will it take us to find and speak to the dead? Dante said. There's no telling. Time is funny on the other side. But I can't see it taking less than a few days. Before hiking up to the temple, where Niles had been sick, which he had accomplished, Dante now knew, simply by not eating any chardon and letting the Renone advance, Dante wrote two letters. The first was to Ollivander. He had acted as steward of the sealed citadel before Dante had been ready to take his place as head of the council. In the letter, Dante warned him that he would need to reassume that role for the foreseeable future. The second was to Nack. Nack was the least powerful member of the council. There were several monks of far lesser title who could command the nether with more fluency, but his limits with the shadows had pushed him to excel as a scholar. And if Dante couldn't find his own way off of the island, he'd need every bit of Nack's talent to come up with other answers. Benny had brought the longboat back to the Sword of the South, so Dante borrowed flags from Niles and waved the rowboat back in. Captain Naren himself accompanied the small crew. He came ashore and looked Dante up and down. I am pleased to see you've stepped back from death's door. It's only a temporary reprieve, Dante said. I've got a sickness called Ronone. You pick it up by staying here too long, so you should wrap up your business and cast off as soon as possible. You mean to stay, then? I mean to find a permanent cure, which may be a fool's errand, but I happen to be an expert fool. Could you return in one month? Naren's eyes moved up and to the right. I'll have to adjust our schedule, but this will be no problem. And Blaze? He'll be staying as well. Naren's voice dropped. So, he's sick too? Only in the head. I have one other request. He held out the letters. These need to be delivered to Narastovic, the sealed citadel. That's a bit out of our way. By approximately a quarter of the world. It isn't that far. Just find someone you trust. Please. My city depends on it. Naren inserted the letters into the inner pocket of his shiny buttoned jacket. You have good relations with the Norin, yes? Dante chuckled. As far as that's possible. I'm a member of one of the clans, believe it or not. A small number of Norin have established commerce in Bressel. My understanding is they return to their homeland regularly. I'll see if I can convince one of them to deliver your letters. Dante thanked him and shook hands. Naren returned to the longboat. Dante watched the crew row across the impossibly clear waters of the bay. He rejoined the three others and began the trek to the heights. Near the ocean, the air was perfectly nice as long as you stuck to the shade, but as soon as Dante got moving, he was sweating buckets. It felt much better than the cold sweats he'd had during his fever, however, and he kept up easily.
They reached the temple by late afternoon. Dante now understood why it looked so old, so worn. The people who'd built it had died long ago. Their malish replacements hadn't had any idea how to craft such structures. Instead, they worked with bamboo, wood, woven grass. During Dante's meeting with Naren, Wyndon had visited the basket, acquiring one of the orange flowers the dreamers used to sink close enough to death to walk in the afterworld. She found a shady spot outside the temple, planted the flower, and harvested it into a full-grown bush. Orange petals bloomed in profusion. We can go now, she said, or wait until morning. It's up to you. Dante rubbed his upper lip. It had been an extremely long day. He hadn't entirely recovered from his illness, let alone had time to process the story Niles had told, which seemed to be the key to understanding the whole of Candean society, possibly the entire island. He was sorely tempted to eat a giant meal and take a long rest. But the thought of the dark spots growing inside him, lurking within him forever, filled him with a hot and prickly dread. We'll go now, he said. There's nothing to gain by waiting. Except a clear idea of what the hell we're getting ourselves into, Blaze muttered. Then again, maybe it's better not to know. Very well. Niles reached out and plucked a flower. You're coming with us, Dante said. Someone will need to help you to navigate the mists. They can be very deceptive. It's as easy to get lost in them as it is in the past lands. But I thought the Dresh hated your kind. I'll keep myself away from them. Amusement twinkled in his eyes. Besides, you don't like me any better than they do, do you? So if I'm there, your shared enmity will give you guys something to bond over. Wyndon plucked three more flowers, handing one to Dante and another to Blaze. They entered the temple and spread blankets and grass-stuffed mattresses across the floor. The flower, Wyndon said, it will taste very bitter, but eat it all, and when it comes, don't fight it. That's all, Dante said. No rituals. You might wish to lie down, unless you are unhappy with the shape of your head and think it would be improved by a fall. And we're all going under. What if this winds up taking days? We'll die of thirst. We've arranged for Stav to check in on us. He's the only one we can trust. Are you ready? Dante lay back and chewed his flower, releasing a taste as bitter as poison. He swallowed it down as fast as he could. Finished, he lay back on his blankets. He thought he could feel a warmness creeping up from his belly, but it was too faint to be sure. How will we find each other? Blazer's voice had a ringing quality to it. Once we're through to the mists. Wyndon shuffled on her mattress. We're entering the dream together. This means we'll enter the mists together, too. Dante thought he should ask more, but there didn't seem to be any point. Niles had said they'd forget everything in the past lands. Nothing he learned now would be useful until they were through to the mists. 
a breeze blew through the many windows of the temple wall. It was cooling. But within a minute, Dante couldn't seem to feel it at all. His body felt odd, as if the border between it and his blankets was indistinct, permeable. Motion caught his eye. The vaulted ceiling was pulling away from him. Or maybe the temple was growing. No, he was sinking into the floor. He could feel the momentum in his guts. He reached out to grab at the ground, but he wasn't sure his arms were moving. The ceiling went higher and higher. Darkness encircled him. He sank into the dream and saw his father. <laughs>